Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History, Herstory, and True History, Herstory of Nasara. Infinite blessings at this most holy time as we celebrate the weekend here. Um, tomorrow, the 12th, is the honoring of the Holy Trinity, three in one. And on the full moon, on on uh, we'll be celebrating the full moon Monday uh, to um, to Tuesday morning on the fourteenth. The full moon. This is the third in the sequence of the three spring festivals, and this is the festival of humanity or the Festival of Goodwill. So we'll be acknowledging that here to, uh, today as well, as well as Flag Day on June 14th. So we'll do our divine government work as well. So thank you for joining us, and let's get started. <clears throat> okay, dear ones, please go into your heart center. Going in, into the heart center we individually call forth our own mighty I am presence, our soul, our higher self, our monad, and ask for the full integration of each level of consciousness, each of these all the way through to our God presence and goddess presence. Please see yourself in a magnificent pillar of light. And if it feels comfortable, allow that pillar to expand on either side of you, in front of you and behind you. See, sense and feel as it is fully anchored to source and anchored to the heart of Mother Earth. Feel the blessings that come from each direction, knowing that you are one with the Earth and one with source. You are one with all that is. We invite everyone to join us across the planet for this ascension work as we affirm. Please join me in saying, I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with the I am presence of every man, woman, and child. I am one with all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. And so let us see everyone across the planet joining us, all of our family and friends, all those that we know, and every man, woman, and child across the planet joining us in their own pillar of light, filled with a beautiful white and gold of ascension, as we anchor once again and we serve as the bridge between heaven and earth, as the anchor for the new golden age and the open door that no one can shut. Thus, for one and all, we invite in all soul extensions, planetary and galactic. all of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, your ancestral lineage, 
all the generations past and forward. Our spiritual lineage, our soul families, and soul pods. We welcome for everyone, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council and mission council. We welcome the assistance of all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the divi kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim and all angelic healing teams. We welcome the Ascended Masters, the Brotherhood of Light, the Sisterhood of the Rays and Rose, the Order of Melchizedek, the Radiant Ones, all of the Enlightened Masters, all Divine Mother Emissaries, Divine Father Emissaries, all of the Planetary Hierarchy of Light and Cosmic Hierarchy of Light, and all Ascended Master Healers and Healing Teams. We welcome the assistance of the healing teams from the Galactic Federation of Light, especially those that we work most closely with, from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, from Venus. We welcome the assistance of all cosmic galactic universal healers. We welcome the assistance of the entire company of heaven. And ask that our Mother, Father, God, overlight all that we do. And magnify, magnify, magnify all that we do, a minimum of 10 billion times, 10 billion fold, in alignment with divine will and divine law. And we invite in all of the rays, all of the flames, all of the universal laws and ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and evocation, every blessing, every every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level. Through every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our auric field, multidimensionally. And the maximum that we can receive individually and collectively through our divine I am presence, ever-expanding to perfection. We ask to easily and effortlessly digest and assimilate, ground and anchor, integrate and embody all of these frequencies, gifts, and dispensations, and do so with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy, serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium, without resistance on any level, without discomfort on any level, without fear on any level, in love and light and laughter. We call forth everyone and everything in our circle of support to receive this as well. From the very first name that created it to each and every family member and loved one, each and every man, woman, and child, each and every organization and group, each and every corporation and business, 
each and every nation, each government, each military, all governmental leaders, each and every summit, each and every march, protest, all that is going on for the good of the world, each and every weather pattern, every situation that we've placed in the circle, each and every condition of the planet that we've placed in the circle. And we ask to utilize the attention on each one of the events, on each one of the meetings, on the the marches that are taking place today. Um, we, we ask to utilize all of that energy, including the energy of the Festival of Humanity coming up to used to be used for the transformation of the planet, to be used in our collective cup of consciousness, to raise the consciousness of every man, woman, and child, to truly manifest heaven on earth. We ask that Gaia receive all that we receive through her chakras and meridians and layers of her orc field, through every ley line and song line, every molecule of soil, molecule of air, molecule of water, molecule of fire. Through the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all the multidimensional grid system, and through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site and place of power, every stargate, every city of light, as we continue up this amazing spiral of evolution, along with our mother Gaia, as she takes her rightful place as freedom star. So take a nice deep breath as we begin our work here today. And we say a prayer entitled, the prayer of the seven galactic directions. From the east, house of light, may wisdom dawn in us so we may see all things in clarity. From the north, house of night, may wisdom ripen in us so we may know all from within. From the west, house of transformation, May wisdom be transformed into right action so we may do what must be done. From the south, house of the eternal sun, may right action reap the harvest so we may enjoy the fruits of planetary being. From above, house of heaven, where star people and ancestors gather, may their blessings come to us now. From below, house of earth, may the heartbeat of her crystal core bless us with harmonies to end all war. From the center, galactic source, which is everywhere at once, may everything be known as the light of mutual love. Ah, yum hunab, ku evam maya i ma ho. All hail the harmony of mind and nature. And so it is. And we give thanks for this. We're working with the threefold plane, so please focus once again in your heart. 
and see the divine flame, the sapphire blue on the left, the pink flame on the right, and top center, the yellow gold. As we call forth the complete balancing of the threefold flame in our hearts, we ask it to connect to the threefold flame of every man, woman, and child. We ask to connect to the threefold flame, the cosmic threefold flame of all that is. Everyone connecting to that now can feel it, sense it, experience it. The newly balanced threefold flame in my heart has a dual pulsation. The first pulsation is the in-breath, assimilation and absorption. And the second pulsation is the out-breath, expansion and radiation. On the in-breath, my threefold flame extends up in vibration, piercing into the very heart and mind of God, Goddess, the source of never-ending perfection. On the out-breath, my threefold flame radiates the blessings from the heart and mind of God, Goddess, into the physical plane. eventually projecting these gifts out throughout the planet and into the universe. On every in-breath, my heart flame ascends into new heights of divinity. And on each out-breath, my flame becomes a stronger pulsation of God's blessings into the world of form. Because of this dual activity, my heart flame is both the portal to the pure land of boundless splendor and infinite light within me, as well as the source of all divine blessings for humanity and the planet. My threefold flame is both the inward portal to my fifth dimensional I am presence and the open door for the gifts of my mother, father, God, radiating outward into my daily life. Through the holy breath within my heart flame, my inner journey to source and my outer service to life are brought into perfect balance. It is within this balance that I find my I am presence, the master within, the keeper of the flame. It is within this balance that I enter the flow of pure love. The threefold flame in my heart is the point of I am consciousness, directed downward into denser vibrations by my I am presence. My heart flame is in the center of my being, contains all the basic elements of creation. It pulsates with energy, matter, and intelligence, or power, love, and wisdom. The holy breath... Excuse me. The holy breath is the vehicle for the assimilation and the expansion of my threefold flame. I continuously assimilate the nature of divine love into my heart flame with every in-breath. (coughs) 
and I expand the blessings of God, goddess, into the world around me with every breath. Thus, breath by breath, I am building my spiritual aura through which the miracles of my I am presence and my mother, father, God will manifest as the new earth. With the return of my mother God, I now have the ability to assimilate the entire nature of divine love into my heart flame on every in-breath as I rise endlessly toward the supreme source of all life. And on every out-breath, I now have the ability to expand the patterns of perfection from the causal body of God into the world of form, greatly enhancing my ability to co-create the perfection of heaven on earth. I now experience the entire family of humanity consciously participating in this wondrous activity of light with me. I visualize the I am presence of every person on earth, sending forth myriad rays of light, connecting threefold flame to threefold flame. This activity of light creates a grid of divine love, uniting the fifth dimensional solar heart chakras of every embodied soul. I see the family of humanity interconnected through these rays of divine love, expressing the full divine potential of our I Am Presence as we each weave our unique gifts and divine momentums into the golden tapestry of life unfolding on earth. I am a source of God's blessings united with humanity as one breath, one heartbeat, one energy, vibration, and consciousness of pure divine love. I'm dispensing more and more profound gifts from the causal body of God got us into the physical plane. Through my united efforts, my mother God is able to take full dominion and the balance of the masculine, divine masculine and divine feminine become a manifest reality in every human heart. The adverse effects of the fall are permanently healed. As one unified family of light, I affirm, I am a force of God moving on this planet. I am an upward rushing force of vibration and consciousness, which is my immortal victorious threefold flame, the center of my being. My balanced threefold flame is my electronic aura spiraling around me. The love, wisdom, and power of my mother, father, God continually flow through my aura. I am a being of very powerful light. I am one with the universal consciousness of all that is. I am that I am. I am that I am. I am that I am. And so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. So the full moon on Tuesday the 14th, I don't have the exact, oh, maybe it's over here. I'm trying to look for the exact time here, 7.52 a.m. Eastern Time. 
considered a supermoon. And I just wanted to share with you about a little bit about this third festival of the three holy festivals of the spring. The festival of the spirit of humanity aspires toward divinity, attunement to God's will, and right human relationships. It occurs each day at the full moon in June. It is a day to recognize and honor the divine nature of humanity and aspire toward spiritual fellowship. This festival represents the effects on human consciousness of the work of Gautama Buddha, Lord Maitreya, and the Christ. This festival has been also recognized as World Invocation Day. The force prevalent at this festival is the force of reconstruction. This is the force of the first ray, or the will aspect of divinity, that is directed, directly connected with Shambhala. This force is mainly effective between nations of the earth. Its effect on a given nation is governed by that nation's evolution. This was written uh, some time ago. This is probably 1994. This is Joshua David Stone. And he says the two extremes are egocentric nations versus nations focused on world unity. The three forces of restoration, enlightenment, and reconstruction express the light, love, and knowledge of God. The synthesis of these forces and the effects of these festivals consciously celebrated by humanity will produce the following results as outlined by Alice Bailey in her book, Serving Humanity. And so, the first one is power will be given to the disciples and initiates so they can directly, they can direct efficiently and wisely the process of rebuilding. Two, the will to love will stimulate all of humanity everywhere, gradually overcoming hatred. The inner urge in men and women to live together cooperatively already exists and is subject to stimulation. Three, the will to action will lead intelligent people throughout the world to inaugurate those activities which will lay the foundation for a new, better, and happier world. Four, the will to cooperate will steadily increase. Men and women will desire and demand right human relationships as a natural way of life. Five, The will to know and think correctly and creatively will become an outstanding characteristic of the masses. Knowledge is the first step toward wisdom. Six, the will to persist will become a human characteristic, a a sublimation of the basic institute. I'm sorry. (laughs) A little tongue-tied here today. Of the basic instinct of self-preservation and self-centeredness. This will lead to a persistent belief in the ideals presented by the spiritual hierarchy and the demonstration of immortality. Seven, the will to organize will will further a building process which will be carried forward under the direct inspiration of the spiritual hierarchy. The medium will be the potency of the will to good 
of the new group of world servers and the responsive goodwill of mankind. And so that's just a little summary of what the intention is for the Festival of Humanity. And we are calling forth everyone <clears throat> to join us in this sacred festival of unity consciousness. And we're going to go ahead and do the short version today of the great invocation that's done at the different festivals. From the point of light within the mind of God, let light stream forth into the minds of all. Let light descend on earth. From the point of love within the heart of God, let love stream forth into the hearts of all. May Christ return to earth. From the center where the will of God is known, let purpose guide the little wills of all, the purpose which the masters know and serve. From the center which we call the race of humanity, let the plan of love and light work out, and may it seal the door where evil dwells. Let light and love and power restore the plan on earth. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. One of the things suggested to use at this time is one of my favorite prayers, the prayer of St. Francis. So please join me as we send peace and goodwill out to all of humanity. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me so love. Where there is injury, pardon where there is doubt, faith, where there is despair, hope, where there is darkness, light, and where there is sadness, joy. Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. And so it is. Take a nice deep breath. We're going to do the world healing meditation as we bring everyone into harmony and balance. This is the one that's traditionally done on New Year's Eve. But I like to use it all the time. In the beginning, in the beginning God, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. 
Now is the time of the new beginning. I am a co-creator with God, and it is a new heaven that comes as the goodwill of God is expressed on earth through me. It is the kingdom of light, love, peace, and understanding. And I'm doing my part to reveal its reality. I begin with me. I'm a living soul, and the spirit of God, Goddess, dwells in me as me. I and my mother and father are one. And all that my mother, father, God has is mine. In truth, I am the Christ of God. What is true of me is true of everyone, for God is all, and all is God. I see only the spirit of God in every soul. And to every man, woman, and child on earth, I say, I love you, for you are me. You are my holy self. I now open my heart and let the pure essence of unconditional love pour out. I see it as a golden light radiating from the center of my being, and I feel its divine vibration in and through me, above and below me. I am one with the light. I am filled with the light. I am illumined by the light. I am the light of the world. With purpose of mind, I send forth the light. I let the radiance go before me to join the other lights. I know this is happening all over the world at this moment. I see the merging lights. There is now one light. We are the light of the world. The one light of love peace and understanding is moving. It flows across the face of the earth, touching and illuminating every soul in the shadow of the illusion. And where there was darkness, there is now the light of reality. The radiance grows, permeating, saturating every form of life. There is only the vibration of one perfect life now. All the kingdoms of earth respond, and the planet is alive with light and love. There is total oneness, and in this oneness we speak the word. Let the sense of separation be dissolved. Let humankind be returned to Godkind. Let peace come forth in every mind. Let love flow forth from every heart. Let forgiveness reign in every soul. Let understanding be the common bond. And now from the light of the world, the one presence and power of the universe responds. The activity of God, Goddess, is healing and harmonizing planet Earth. Omnipotence is made manifest. I am seeing the salvation of the planet before my very eyes as all false beliefs and error patterns are dissolved. The sense of separation is no more. The healing has taken place and the world is restored to sanity. This is the beginning 
of peace on earth and goodwill toward all as love flows forth from every heart. Forgiveness reigns in every soul. And all hearts and minds are one in perfect understanding. It is done. And so it is. And so this is our intention for our Festival of Humanity at this full moon. We call forth divine government as well. As we call it forth for this nation, we call it forth for every nation. And we say, I am my I am presence, and I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I invoke the great beings of light associated with divine government to this planet. And of course, this includes St. Germain, Master Elmorium, the great divine director, the goddess of liberty, the goddess of justice the goddess of freedom, and so many, many more. I invoke the beloved ascended masters guarding the evolutions of earth. Blessed ones blaze the sacred fires of God's perfect will and divine illumination in through and around every person involved with the governments of earth at national, state, and local levels. Blaze the sacred fires of God's will and divine illumination in through and around the electorate and governmental officials of all nations. Let them feel and tangibly experience the power, wisdom, and love nature of our Mother, Father, God flowing through them as they elect their governments and vote on all issues before them. Seal this activity in the light of the cosmic threefold flame, anchored within the hearts of all humanity. Expand this light daily and hourly a thousand times a thousandfold. Please join me in saying, Victory is ours in love governing this planet. Victory is ours in love governing this planet. Victory is ours and love governing this planet. And so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Majestic Christ, I am. Beloved Saint Germain. Lady Nada. Goddess of Liberty. Charge, charge, charge every single heart of every single American with the Ascended Master's courage and determination to reach up to God, Goddess, the I Am Christ Presence, demanding her freedom from all viciousness imposed upon her. America, we love you. America, we love you. America, we love you, thou precious jewel of St. Germain's heart and blessed cup of light to the world. Rise, rise, rise through the unfed flames of those gathered 
and the I am Christ presence of all humankind. And release, release, release the mightiest cosmic concentrations of the sacred fire from the great central sun's master power flame and blaze, blaze, blaze into the atmosphere of America, all the three Americas and the world until all are compelled to see the sacred fire and in seeing it to be set free for eternity. Oh, great beings of light, use these mighty activities of the sacred fire to keep the American people safe and protected. We call upon the Christ energy to project the illumined presence of the Christ into the minds of the American people that they may be wiser in their decisions that life will seem to compel them to make. Goddess of Liberty, release, release, release limitless legions of your angels of liberation throughout America and the world to set all life free and keep it free for all eternity. I am, I am, I am. By all God's love, I know I am. The invincible, eternal, indestructible, unconquerable, illimitable force of a trillion suns and mighty victories victory manifest throughout America and throughout the world. Compelling God manifest in full Christ control of all within America and the world that reveals the perfection of life as has always been intended for all by the ascended masters, the higher mental bodies, and the I am Christ presence of all humankind. Finish this now and get it done. With the speed of blue lightning from the great central sun. And stand in the light of true victory one. <clears throat> For all eternity a blazing cosmic sun. The light of God never fails. The love of God always fulfills. And the truth of God always prevails. Beloved St. Germain, we decree with all our hearts the invincible protection and prevention of all which the sinister force seeks to bring to this beloved land of freedom. I am the resurrection and the life of America's invincible freedom forever. Beloved Goddess of Purity, we invite thy great cosmic presence to come into our consciousness and release your ascended master heart flame evermore of immortal purity, the master power flame of diamond shining purity, and anchor these flames into our minds, our thoughts, and feeling side of life, and then anchor this master power flame of diamond shining purity into America, that thou may blaze a mighty sun's presence into each and every nation of the three Americas and the world, then all may behold. Here is the lantern of light. Here in the mighty lands that must be the fulfillment of the destiny of the seventh golden age for the freedom of all life upon this earth. So be it, and so it is. I am that I am. 
I am that I am. I am that I am. And thus, we complete our invocation work here for today. We ask that it be sealed, maintained, and sustained, ever expanding to perfection. As we are in this three-day period before our Festival of Humanity, our Festival of Goodwill, May peace and harmony, goodwill, and love fill every person, every relationship, every nation. Fill the planet and all upon her. So be it. And so it is. Again, we ask that this be sealed in the highest frequencies of source, light, and love. Thank you, thank you, thank you, everyone, for your divine service. Thank you for joining me in this work here today as we do this work of bringing heaven to earth. And I invite you to join us every Sunday and Monday evening as we do our ascension meditation and activation calls. And we do this as a teleconference call. We begin at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. We have about 25 minutes of greetings, and then Tar and Rama come in and give us a brief update. At 9.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Pacific Time, we begin our work in earnest of bringing heaven to earth, of doing our meditations, our visualizations, our activations, our invocations and prayers. Each call is unique. We'll have some full moon updates as well as our celebration of the Festival of Humanity this weekend. So please plan on joining us. If you haven't been on the call, please take down the number. This is the main number. It's area code 425-436-6260. Again, area code 425-436-6260. The access code is 946-7441-POUND. 946-7441-POUND. We'd love to have you join us and become a regular. There are additional numbers. There are international numbers. There's links to get on the on through your computer. If you need that additional information, please contact me. I'd be happy to share that. Make sure that you have a Email me at Cheryl Croce, C-H-E-R-Y-L-C-R-O-C-I at AOL.com. So Cheryl Croce at AOL.com, and I'll get that to you. And you can send out, you can receive any updates that I send out. We'd be happy to hear your voice and where you're calling from when you do tune in. 
to our ascension work. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your divine service. We want to take this time to thank Tara and Rama for their continued service and my sister Rainbird as well. Have a glorious week, everybody, filled with magic and miracles. And I'm going to wish everybody out a happy Father's Day because I won't be here next Saturday. But we will be doing calls Saturday the 19th on Father's Day, as well as the 20th. We'll be celebrating our solstice. We've got so much to celebrate these two weekends. Please be a part of the calls. With that, I'm going to pass the talking stick filled with the three-fold flame colors, the pink, the blue, the yellow gold, the white and gold of ascension, St. Germain's violet flame, the blue of divine government, and every other color, the white of the purity that we worked with, and the, the red, white, and blue of the flag. So with that, I'm going to pass the talking stick with all of its magical properties, all of its blessings, all of the energies of the elementals and the fairies and the angels. And so with that, I pass the talking stick. Okay, I got it. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you for your divine service as well. We're so grateful each week when you're here. So <clears throat> I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are listener-supported radio program. It's each of us that makes it happen. So here's what we need to do. Each week we need um, $300 for BBS radio. And <clears throat> and so this week what we need is $300. It's due on Tuesday, and we have 90 of it, so we need $210 more by Tuesday to uh, reach that deadline. So, and then, of course, next Tuesday we'll need another 300. So we're on Tuesday schedule, and so we're needing that. Um, those donations to come in quickly for that, so that we can make that um, that deadline on Tuesday. So thank you for taking this action. Here's what you need to do. You want to go into your heart space and see what is yours to give, and then go to bbsradio.com. Click on Radio Station 2. You're looking for that schedule or the menu. For Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, the Thursday and Friday shows are at the 6 o'clock hour. And so um, then this specific time. So as you get to that icon there that for the Thursday, just click on it, and that takes you directly to our account. For uh, let's see, the Thursday show is a panel, a night at the round table with the panel, and um, beautiful little icon there. And then the Friday show is the hard news with Tara and Lama on Friday nights at that six o'clock hour. So you can click on that icon, and our, and our Saturday show is the one thirty, the two history history. <laughs> Um, the Sarah and our Galactic Origins. So you can click on any one of those icons. It takes you to our account, or you can use your bank card to make a donation in any amount. So thank you for taking that action. The more of us that do it, that's the better. So let's 
this all she desires to give on this uh, and take that action. Uh, <clears throat> what else? Yeah, that that'll do it. We we need that by Tuesday, two hundred and ten dollars, and then of course the week after it'll be another three hundred. So we keep it rolling like that. So thank you, thirteen thank yous and honey in the heart. We're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs, and um, so this week what they're needing is three hundred dollars for living expenses and three hundred dollars for bills. And uh, those bills are due this week, so that's very important to make sure that happens. And last I checked, Tara and Rama are still eating and using gas, so. We need that $300 this week, too. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for your kind consideration. Here's how we make a um, donation to Tara and Rama. You want to go to the web address, rainbowroundtable.net. And as you pull that up, you'll see on the home page, the menu grid at the top left. Click on that. And uh, you'll see the donate link near the bottom of that list that drops down. Um, so click on that. That will link you to Rama's PayPal account, and there you can make uh, a donation in any amount using your bank card. Um, and so as you're doing that, that's wonderful. And as you have your own PayPal account, you can access the friend options. By putting Rama's email at at Hotmail, I mean at at PayPal in there, and that email address is Koran K O R A N nine 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 at Hotmail dot no nine 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 four nine at Hotmail dot com. And then as you're sending, and then as you do that, you'll see that that takes you to the friends option, or you have that option there. Anyway, lots of gratitude for that. As you're sending something, um, you want to send an email to Rama and let him know that you sent something when you sent it. So Rama's personal email is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999 at Comcast.net. So um, as you need it, the mailing address is as follows. Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M, D. Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z. Post Office Box 280-280. And that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico. And the zip code 87567. And I'll just say it again, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So thank you for your support. And we're so grateful. We're grateful to for all all that uh, Rama and Tara do, and we're grateful that, that Rama has enough gas in his car to do it, and that's, and they both have enough food in their bellies to keep on trucking. <laughs> so lots of gratitude for all your assistance. Um, yeah, thirteen thank yous and honey in the heart. And then also, I want to give you the two web addresses for the two projects that Rainbow Roundtable is involved in, so you can support those projects and support yourselves as well. The first is Shop Framework, HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash www.shopfreemart.com. 
com forward slash T-A-R-R-A-M. And then the other web address for joining um, one of the projects that comes from Shop Fremort. It's a, a cryptocurrency that you might find a very healthy <laughs> passive income through that. So this is that, that address. We're signing up under Tyron Rama. HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash www.newgencoin.com and Newgen is spelled N-U-G-E-N C-O-I-N and then dot com after that the, the username is the same forward slash T-A-R-R-A-M and optionally you could also sign up under Marshall in that would be dot com forward slash M A R N O R. So either either one is great and it's a, it's another way to work with your own abundance as well. So again, thirteen thank yous, honey in the heart. Long life, no evil, and I'm passing this talking stick. And you heard about it from Cheryl. It is beautiful, and it does have all those rays and all those flames, and um, all the elementals are there. So (laughs) here comes that talking stick, and it's also got lots of fairies and feathers and little people, the the hobbits, the gnomes, the elves, and the manahoonies, and the unicorns, and... um, Oh, yeah, the dragons are there. Greetings, Tara and Lama. Here comes this talking stick. Greetings. Ah, oh, you commanders, eagles, and angels, and rainbird, and Cheryl. I mean, the energies that you share with us. I just get higher and higher. Yes, thank you so much. <laughs> I'm keeping my feet on the ground, and I think that's a good idea, everyone. Head in the clouds, feet on the ground. It's a very joyful experience. It really is. I was just looking at some older reports, and I pulled this one. Uh, This came in. April 21st, from Syria to Ukraine, Western media is practicing the same lies. Mm -hmm. And towards the end of this, it says, Bartlett went on to say that most Western media denied the existence of Nazism in Ukraine. Hello? (laughs) Everybody, come and see Cheryl. She said all that information. Uh, it's really critical time to make it part of our lives now. Let's make that group grow. It, 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 the energies are so high, and as we collectively work with them, uh, the the intervention comes in faster and faster. It does. So I'm going to just repeat the number. It's on Sunday and Monday evenings, about 10 minutes of the hour of 9 Eastern time, 10 minutes of the hour of 6 Pacific time, and then everything in between. 
425-436. Kind of begins with the four of those two numbers. And the first uh, after the four is two and five. And the sec- after the second four, it's three and six. That's kind of interesting. 425-436. And then 6260. And the PIN code is 946-7441-POUND. 946-7441-POUND. Amazing Grace. Rama's going to play some more beautiful music from, what's that? Uh, Professor Paul. Okay, he's got a longer other name. Yes. But our sister Caroline brought him to us on our hard, our, our news, our, our round, our rainbow round. Rainbow round, well, night at the round table. Yes. Thursday. Night at the round table Thursday. Um, they are squawking about the gas prices everywhere. And it's this six dollars and almost fifty cents a gallon in LA. It's uh not quite five dollars yet here in No, it's four seventy one and four sixty five and depending in this general thirty mile radius area. And some places it's four four seventy nine, four eighty I saw today. Oh. Yeah. And um, like Dr. Greer said to us, you know, this has been going on for over 100 years and we never needed to touch one drop of oil. Not one. We could touch into the ether, the aether, just like Tesla taught us. And uh, A few rich, greedy men thought it would be good because we would be subjugated to having to spend money for this stuff. Even hemp oil is a bit of a challenge, but, I mean, it's a better thing than gas, hemp oil, to run in a car. Well, that's not a challenge. No. Hemp oil grows... Re- Hemp seeds grow really fast. Yeah. And they're just constantly you renewable. You just got to have a pro- way to process it into something like... Well, you don't yeah. need this antiquated type of engine, period. Yes. Shuttlecraft. Where's my shuttlecraft? <laughs> and that's crystalline energy. Yes, it is. And there's plenty of crystals, and they keep on growing. They do. They do. Rama, you went to the uh, Tucson Crystal Gem and Mineral Show, show, right? You went many times, right? Yes, I have. I've been there a couple of times. In the 80s. Yeah, way back when. Yeah. (laughs) Gosh, I don't even want to ask what the temperature is down there, if it's (sighs) what it is up here. I turn into brown sugar. In Berlin, which is just a slight bit south of Albuquerque, it's 98 degrees about an hour ago, so it's probably hotter now. Yeah. And I don't even want to think about what Las Vegas, Nevada temperature is. Oh, it's 100 something. 100 and something, something, something. And it doesn't get below 100 even at night sometimes. 
Um, so anyway. Um, what I heard today on Living on the Edge, and we're, I'm going to play this um, astrology report from our friend Mary Lynn um, talking about guns in the Americas, and this goes back to um, 1776, and it has to do with Mars and Uranus and Pluto, and this is a big deal because it is affecting our reality right now as Mars and Pluto and Uranus are, you know, in play with the energies and um, there's another way. It's called divine compassion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, on DW News and other places, they've been just saying that the Western media just tells lie after lie about what's really happening in Ukraine. Not to mention how many lies are going on with every other piece of news on the world stage from the Western point of view. Yet Russia has 10 to 15 times more weapons systems in operation in Ukraine at the moment. I'm not emphasizing that that's what they want, but to make more weapons and stuff, I'm just saying that's the fact on the ground. Um, Ukraine is a lot better at working with the drones that they do have. They're a lot better at coordinating the intelligence and passing it around. But not anywhere near enough to change the direction of the outcome at the moment. And what I Russia- talked to Mr. X by text today. Mr. X said the chess pieces are falling off the board. <laughs> he didn't explain how they're falling off the board, but they are falling off the board. And I would well, say, the board is the old program, so they're shaking everything off that board because that board's not going. Yeah, be it's the old timeline, and we're not doing an war any longer. And it's uh, it's. All we are saying is get peace of chance. Yeah, and we witnessed up to our third eyes and crown chakras what happened on the first, 6th of January 2021. Yeah, and it's not hard to say coup d'etat. <laughs> and whether folks want to believe it or not, QAnon in this whole story because it kind of ties in with Nasara and this fake word that goes around, G-Sara. There is no G-Sara. That is just a variation on Nasara. And it it's has, not even accurate at all in terms of what they say no. G-Sara is. And, and it's not. I would say... You know, the quantum financial network, there's words out there like that that are connected with QAnon and Trump and this whole story. And as you're starting to play with AI that's connected with the dark side, 
place supplied with fire is what I can say. I'm going to jump over to um, Ukraine again. The um, United Nations are saying that the Donbass death penalty, there's a death sentence, and they had a trial of uh, three quote-unquote war criminals, as they said. Two of them are British, and one is... Moroccan. Is that where, yeah. And this... And this, 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 uh, this, this trial was, uh, held in a court that's not recognized by international law as being even valid. And... And they want to execute them. And I'll put the shoe on the other foot, and... We had Blackwater in Iraq and Afghanistan killing people. And um, where is Eric Prince making more money? He's not sitting in jail. Neither is his sister, uh, Miss uh, DeVos of the Amway Corporation. And really what this is over is having access to the ports along Crimea between Russia and Crimea to do trade. Let's see, as we completely go on to higher energy systems, it unites the whole world because these energy systems are coming from a galactic source and they're not looking for digging in the earth for something to make your choo-choo train go. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll talk to stop talking now. <laughs> and Rama wants to play something that's tell us. This is this a is, half an hour. This is um Mary Lynn talking about guns in the Americas and the astrological chart for the Constitution and for the Declaration. She, I, she covers both of those as I recall. I mean, she spills out a lot of information. She's like Kepacha, only in a different way. And and her her name of her program is Moonwise. Moonwise. So and you find it on ksfr dot org. There you go. <laughs> yeah, let's just get started now, Ralph. Here we go. Here we go. Half an hour, everybody. Twenty eight minutes. Astrology is the myths of the stars and planets, telling the themes and plots of our lives. These stories come to us daily through our satellite, the moon. She is constantly spinning astro news. Hi, I'm Mary LeBlanc with Moonwise. Guns have been problematic in the United States of America for a long time, with assaults on innocent people, especially in our schools. So today I want to address guns as they show up in horoscopes for the United States of America, more specifically in the charts for our Declaration of Independence, for the ratification of our Constitution, and for the chart which included the ratification of the Second Amendment. First, I want to address guns in general from an astrological perspective. Guns are represented by the planet Mars. Astrology is a condensed language. If you asked an astrologer, what does Mars represent? Many will start a list with men or actions, 
and go on with other things for quite a while. Some might come up with a list of words beginning with every letter in the alphabet. Some people will start with the symbol or glyph for Mars, a circle with an arrow pointing at a spot on the circumference, pointing out its left side towards the sky. The circle represents a space full of potential, sort of like a zero represents a space which could become a one or a two and so forth in mathematics. Dan Rudyard, the astrologer whom I often quote, wrote about the glyphs for the planets and said about Mars that on the circle at a 45 degree angle above the horizontal is an arrow pointing up to outer space. The 45 degree angle is very significant in that it marks a direction of maximum intensity in electromagnetic fields. The circle here represents the biopsychic field of man's personality. And when internal pressure builds up to an explosive point, it is released in a Martian outgoing. What we have, therefore, in the Mars symbol is a picture of simple, spontaneous release of energy. We can see an example of this in the image of a man with an erection that's consummated. <laughs> and, of course, there's that title, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. <laughs> Mars and Venus can refer to gender, but they are metaphors for different types of energy which transcend gender. All humans, no matter the gender associations, are defined by all the planetary activities we astrologers address. We all act, which is a release of energy. We all can argue, can assert, can attack, can defend, can energize, can identify, can lead, can move, can provoke, can fight. These and more are Martian activities. They represent that release of energy out towards something. Astrology is a simple language, yet packed with expansive metaphors. Blisters and pimples are represented by Mars as they pop out of the skin, just as the arrow pops out of the circle image for Mars. Bullets are Martian as they pop out of guns. And guns are like the male human body, only that body fertilizes life, whereas the ammunition of guns can kill life. Mars has to do with our motivations and drives, as well as elimination processes, such as urinating and defecating and even killing. I bring this up to emphasize both the good and not good attributes of Mars. The killing and wars has been justified by the metaphor of getting rid of the bad. Some of that is questionable. <laughs> so to talk about guns in America from an astrological perspective, we need to talk about the planet Mars and to some extent the planet Pluto, 
which is related to devastation, destruction, mass killings, and the like. If one wants to explore life and death issues in a horoscope, those two planets will definitely be considered. I'm going to look at their placement in the charts of our Declaration of Independence, the United States ratification of our Constitution, and the ratification of the Second Amendment to our Constitution. So first, the Declaration of Independence chart. In that chart, we find Mars in the seventh house. The seventh house emphasizes relationships. Positively speaking, our founders who declared independence from the British kingdom were driven to form relationships with others, such as the Germans and French, to assist in eliminating their ties to the Brits, especially economically in terms of taxes. This is indicated by the planet Pluto being in Capricorn in the second house of the independence chart. That area emphasizes material things of value and money. The founding fathers wanted to have dominion over the country's resources. So our nation's founders began its conception with a war using guns against the kingdom which had claimed ownership of their homeland. Mars and Pluto in the Declaration chart are indicative of war with guns to end a particular relationship which limited or claimed its resources. Again, I want to remind you that these planets have positive implications as well such as for the citizens of the colonies to have a relationship or connection to guns for their personal needs, giving them access to natural resources such as food as well as security against any entity uh, that would threaten their material existence, including any government. Or that Americans can fight neighboring countries who impose upon or threaten their way of life. Gemini, the sign that Mars occupies in the declaration chart, relates to neighbors. In mythology, Gemini were siblings, twins to be exact, who fought each other. They look alike, even if they aren't identical. And some of us say from time to time that we are all brothers and sisters who sometimes hurt each other, which speaks to some of the violence to people of darker color, not only to the slaves who were brought here by some of the colonists, but also to the Native Americans and to those from Mexico or China. Some of the issues which come up with Mars and Pluto have to do with power and sharing and strategies for dealing with force. Conflicts arise over freedom versus bondage, holding on versus letting go, which come up with attachments to the past. With these two planets, we are in the territory of intense energy, which could be displayed in belligerence, defensiveness, 
or threats. Mars in the Declaration of Independence chart is at the 22nd degree of Gemini, symbolized by dancing couples in a harvest festival. This is about the shifts in the dance of life and who we move through experiences with, our erratic connections to others, taking things as they are and adapting. Pluto in that horoscope is at the 28th degree of Capricorn, symbolized by a large aviary, which describes group processes within contained habitats and making a space for everything. This Pluto was in the second house of the Declaration chart, representing the personal resources of the colonists, some of whom had the monetary resources or connections for securing what was needed to wage war, such as guns and ammunition. This Pluto also represents the plutocrats, the moneyed class, who have been able to control a great deal of the resources in this country throughout its conception and had the financial and social means to initiate a war. The relationship of Mars and Pluto in the independence chart was um, a gibbous phase, indicating that the possessiveness of guns was not yet at its fullest capacity, but could serve to sever the ties with the monarchy. They needed all the power of guns to overthrow the ruling Brits. That oppression was indicated in the 12th house of the Declaration Chart, ruled by both Mars and Pluto. That area of the chart refers to the various types of experiences endured day by day, which on the negative side can be psychologically oppressive. Scorpio in the 12th house of this founding chart for our country can indicate the psychological impact of what has been shared with everyone in the country and what has not. Our collective psyche, whether conscious or not, contains the cruelties and injustices brought about in part by the power of guns and war in this country. And as Pluto has returned to its location in the declaration chart presently, it is releasing into our nation's collective psyche the hidden psychological damage wrought over 250 years, especially to people of color. If I could access the horoscopes of these mass murderers in the United States of America's chart, I would look at their connections to this area of the chart. The planet Mars also rules over the fourth and fifth houses of the Declaration of Independence horoscope, dealing with any foreign claims on people's homes and lands and the personal expression of how they used that property. 
In those times, gun ownership was common, especially for hunting for food and protection from dangerous animals, even from humans or governments who threatened one's way of life. Before we take a break, I, I want to emphasize that there are many other interpretations of Mars and Pluto in a horoscope. Some very positive, but my topic today is on guns and killing in our country. You're listening to Moonwise here on 101.1 FM in Santa Fe or streaming on the web at ksfr.org where you can always listen to and share podcasts at this show and other show that shows that KSFR produces. And remember, this is public radio, which depends financially on you, the listener, for support to keep broadcasting. There's a donate button on the homepage of KSFR that you can use or call 505-510-KSFR. Here's the Moon Minute. I'm Mary Lynn LeBlanc, and I'll be back after this. Welcome back to Moonwise. I'm Mary Lynn LeBlanc talking about the violent use of guns in our country. In the first part of today's show, I talked about what the horoscope for the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1776 says about guns. And of course, that chart is relevant to a war, the revolutionary one that we had. So... Of course, guns played a role. Now I'll address what the chart for the creation of the United States of America's Constitution says about guns. The date for this chart was September 17, 1787 at 11.29 a.m. in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Again, I'll address Mars and Pluto as representative of guns and their use in this horoscope. The Second Amendment was not part of our Constitution then, but as in any horoscope depicting the known planets, there's Mars and Pluto, although Pluto wasn't discovered until the 20th century. In this horoscope for the Constitution, Mars is in the sign of cancer in the eighth house. That area is about shared resources, especially in situations which are emotional and intimate. That gets doubly emphasized with the sign of cancer there. In the 18th century in North America, I imagine that many households had a gun, and the sign of cancer there is reflective of the resources of a home in this eighth area of shared possessions. The planet associated with the sign of cancer is the moon. She is said to rule cancer and will offer more information about other elements related to the eighth house such as legacies, wills, and inheritance. The moon in the Constitution chart is in the first house in the sign of Sagittarius. The first thing that jumps out at me as I'm discussing guns is that the glyph for Sagittarius is an arrow with a line somewhat perpendicular through the stem of the arrow. And think about it, arrows can be used as a weapon. 
Sagittarius is often depicted as a horseman with a bow and arrow. There are plenty of interpretations for this moon and Sagittarius in the first house. But focusing on guns, I could say that part of what is the nature of this country is having a weapon in the home. Now, thank God, many of us citizens do not have guns in our homes. And if we use the symbol for the fifth degree of Sagittarius, where the moon is located in this constitution chart, a very different image comes up for that moon in Sagittarius in the first house. The symbol is an owl sitting in a tree, which suggests some kind of higher wisdom. But I was struck by another astrologer, Robert Blaschke's comment about this degree and adjacent degrees having a moon-Mars theme. There's that gun-related Mars. Emphasizing themes of the fight to overcome one's past, which takes wisdom, the owl. The development of intuitive decisiveness and protective nurturing of others are also represented by this. The moon does have a protective element, as does her sign, Cancer, the crab with its shell. And I would say that it's that element of protection, of securing our identity, that led to the inclusion of the Second Amendment in our Constitution. And, of course, the Second Amendment pretty much says that. The planet Mars in this Constitution chart led us to make these remarks so far. And I want to address one more thing about this Mars before looking at Pluto. Mars rules the signs of Aries and Scorpio. Aries takes us to the fourth and fifth houses of this constitution chart, as as it did also in the declaration chart, emphasizing the need to protect one's homestead and the pleasures it affords us, including children. And yet of late, children stand out significantly as victims of shootings. And in both the Declaration and Constitution charts, Aries, one of Mars' signs, describes the fifth house, which is an area that can refer to children. An interpretation of this is that our children are creative individuals whom we prop and we partner with to initiate ongoing and greater resources. But they are vulnerable to psychologically disturbed individuals. This Mars also refers to these gunmen, and yes, the majority are male, as these men as wounded by certain relationships and in need of psychotherapy. Planet Pluto is in Aquarius in the third house of the Constitution chart, very close to the planet Saturn. Saturn and Pluto together can transform reality. Matter of fact, when COVID began to show up in part of the world at the end of the 29, of 2019 and the beginning of 2020, Saturn and Pluto were together in Capricorn. And that was the beginning of a world, worldwide shift in daily reality. And so, so too, for settlers, 
in what was the beginning of the United States of America. They had had enough of destructive behavior threatening their dwelling places, and guns could halt more devastation. The planets Mars and Pluto were in a gibbous phase, just as they were at the time of the Declaration of Independence, but closer to the beginning of that phase in a more celebratory mood, even though there were still concerns about any ruling party taking advantage of the colonists. Between the creation of our Constitution and its ratification, Many concerns about the rights of individuals came up, which led to amendments to our Constitution. The first ten amendments, known as the Bill of Rights, were ratified on December 15, 1791. The second of those ten is the right to bear arms. Mars was in Virgo and Pluto in Aquarius at that time. So from the Declaration of Independence in 1776 to the ratification of the Bill of Rights in 1791, a span of 15 years, Pluto went from Capricorn into Aquarius. And next year she's going to, he or she, that planet, Pluto is going to go into Aquarius as well. Takes about 250 years for that, for Pluto to complete its cycle around the zodiac. Mars circles the zodiac in about seven times in that period, in that 15 year period, because Mars does a complete cycle every two years. Yet the relationship between these two planets during the times of key policy making, hadn't changed much. Mars and Pluto were in a gibbous phase relationship for the Declaration Chart and the Constitution Chart. In the Bill of Rights Chart, they are in a full phase relation, which comes right after the gibbous. So, you know, there we have that because the, that included the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, we have that right to have arms fully realized. Full phases have to do with the manifestation or expression of something, while gibbous phases is bringing it into a form that shows the outline and potential of what will manifest. In our Declaration of Independence chart, that suggested manifestation of Mars and Pluto apropos to guns and killing is symbolized here by, in that chart, by a storm in a canyon, which can be representative of the dramatic force expressed in mass killings done because of some hidden need on the part of the shooter. In the Constitution chart, Mars and Pluto suggest demonstrating some kind of power which could lead to uncovering some of the deep-seated poses and defenses of the killer. In these two charts, there are connections of these two gun-representative planets to local environments, neighborhoods, and schools. 
which not only point out the places of many of the mass shootings in our lifetimes, but also say something about the early environments of the shooters, their neighborhoods and homes and schools, which have strong influences on their psychological makeups. The Mars in the first two charts I discussed, the Declaration and the Constitution, are close together and form a last quarter square to Mars in the Bill of Rights chart, which speaks to the ongoing reflection we have about the possession and use of guns in our country and how we are challenged to let go of the past and emerge into a greater consciousness of who we are as humans in a social context, which finds ways to not be threatened by each other, but supported in ways that allow each of us to thrive. Before closing, I want to point out a striking connection in these three charts for our country, and that is how the area of Virgo is emphasized. Mars in one chart is at the same degree as Neptune in another, emphasizing that we need to focus on the mental health of our citizens. And in the remaining chart that Mars has this, well, the charts have the sun nearby these two planets, suggesting we be committed to improving mental health for all to lessen destructive violence towards others in our country. Thanks for listening today. That's all we have time for. Stay tuned to KSFR for the BBC News. That's so wow, that was really good. That was a good place to start, everybody. <laughs> okay, what are we going to do next here, Rama? Um, the story of Maya. Yeah, tell everybody the whole thing. <coughs> um... We also have the realities of truth. Which one do you want to do first? I'll do the reality of truth. Okay, say what that says there. Um, this documentary explores the relationship between spirituality, religion, and plant medicine. Featuring Deepak Chopra, Ram Dass, Marianne Williams, and Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, and... Hosted by Mike Zappi Zappolin. The film explores how to access the true reality through plant medicine and meditation. It includes first of its kind interviews with top spiritual gurus, celebrities, and people of all faiths. Okay, here we go. Yes, how long is that one? Hour and 11 minutes. One hour, 11 minutes. Let's do it, Emma. Bible about God providing manna from heaven, food to sustain the Israelites 
while they were wandering in the wilderness. But it never said specifically what it was. What was this manna from heaven? When I asked that question, I had no idea how much my life was about to change. I discovered that eight immortal kings of Samaria lived a total of 241,200 years. first miracle that Jesus was reported to have done was turning water into wine at a wedding. The story goes that they ran out of wine and Jesus put a portion of the manna into the water that they boiled as tea. He told the waiters to pass it out as wine. So I call up Deepak and I said, Deepak, I got to talk to you. I go, I just found some stuff in the Bible that's not making any sense. I think I found some psychedelics in there. I think there's meditation. Like, wh- what do you think? And he's quiet on the phone. And I was like, Deepak, are you there? And he's like, yeah. He said, uh, where'd you where'd you find this exactly? Like, send me what you're talking to me about. What do you want to do, Deepak? What should we do about this? You want to write something up? And Deepak was like, this is too important. He's like, why don't we have a conversation about this? Could part of the religious experience have to do with plant sacraments? Yeah. In Deepak's tradition, the mystery plant Soma was used to bring people to communion with God. Could have been that the hymns of the Rig Veda were actually sung to this plant, which had no seeds, that uh, had no flowers, that was really mushrooms. There's a scene in the movie Noah, starring Russell Crowe, where he has a dream that he's underwater with animals floating past. He wakes up knowing that God wants him to do something, but he doesn't know what. He goes and sits with the wise man in the cave, played by Anthony Hopkins, who gives him some psychedelic tea. He drinks it and has a detailed vision of exactly what God wants him to do. First of all, that's a possibility. Secondly, why does our brain have receptors to these things? Well, because we're part of the same nature. You know, we're not separate from nature. Science is based on a subject-object split on the separation that is artificial. Me and the universe, when in fact I'm also part of the universe. So the same electrical storms that create thunder and lightning in the sky create synaptic firings in my brain, which creates thought. Mm -hmm. We are part of a wholeness. And what the religious experiences to experience that wholeness? What is enlightenment but being one with the source? So whilst they gave people what I wouldn't even call altered state of consciousness, I wouldn't call them hallucinations. They help people break out of the everyday hallucination of separation and to the reality of truth. And whether they did it through wine or mana or soma, who cares? It doesn't even make any sense. How could these ancient plants that connect you to God be somehow taken out? 
Could these plants be the ancient wisdom that we need for our modern problems? Yeah. What we call today everyday reality, which we take for normal, okay? Mm-hmm. There's war. There's terrorism. There's global warming. There's social injustice. 50% of the world lives on less than $2 a day. The environment is totally screwed up. And we say this is normal. Yeah. It's psychotic, mm-hmm. right? And it's psychotic because we have created it. What do you think it would take to break through that boundary at this point. I mean, here we are in this 21st century. Let's have a party. We'll bring everybody down to Haru and enlighten them. Yeah, put some in the pot and let's drink it. (laughs) Amen. Amen. Did Deepak Chopra just tell me to go down to Peru and drink ayahuasca tea, one of the most powerful psychedelics known to man? Still dazed by what Deepak had recommended? I bumped into our friend Jerry, who had generously loaned us his beach house for the interview. I was curious what he thought about what Deepak said. I didn't realize at the time, but Jerry's world was spinning out of control. Despite having sold his company for almost $100 million, Jerry was abusing drugs, drinking a lot of alcohol, his family was in shambles, and he was basically trying to kill himself slowly. More than I realized, Deepak's words were really sinking in. At this point, you might be wondering who this zappy guy is. Let me tell you a little bit about myself. I've done everything society told me to do. Go to school, get a job, make a bunch of money, fall in love, start a family. I was living the American dream. I bought Beer.com for $80,000. A few months later, I sold it for $7 million. Here I am starring in my own Super Bowl ad. If you start to lose weight, you must see this. A fact-dissolving loophole has just been leaked that can dissolve 50... Life was becoming very surreal. Even though I had it all... My conversation with Deepak made it clear that there were other experiences that I needed to have. The value that I place on the experience is more important to me. So I always felt like I'd rather have a passport full of stamps than a house of a certain type. It occurred to me that like most people, I've been searching for happiness outside of myself. And I was having the realization that I might never be truly happy unless I went inside my own mind to look for some answers. Albert Einstein famously said, you can't fix a problem with the same consciousness or thinking that got you into the situation. What this meant to me was that if I wanted to solve a problem in my life, or if we as a society wanted to solve some of the big problems we have, like violence, eco-destruction, addiction, depression, we needed to change our collective consciousness. Could society use some of these ancient techniques for its modern problems? I was inspired by people who came before me that seemingly had it all, but chose to take the risk of going inside their own minds. These people were what I would call psychonauts, sailors of the mind. And I saw that these people were going inside their minds 
and exploring inside their minds as part of what they wound up doing. And I thought, wow, I have to do that. I figured before I got too extreme and sat with a shaman, I should go out and talk to some of Deepak's friends about our so-called reality. If you only identify with the realm of three dimensions, if you only identify with the realm of the body, if you only identify with the mortal circumstance and the mortal experience, then to that extent, you are at the effect of those circumstances. Faith is standing on the conviction, standing on the knowledge and the conviction. There's something way bigger going on here. What we see is only a small portion of the total reality. See, we have three states, waking, dreaming, and sleep. But beyond that, there is a state where it's neither of these three. But there is a restful alertness, a dawn stupidity. Where, where we escape from being energy. So we're always energy. What we see as it looks physical material is actually the reflection of light. Photons of light that hit our energy and bounce back. So we're reflecting light, but we're reflecting it as a force field, a tornado of energy. If we can stand within the unreal world, the ultimate unreal that appears real, that seems limited by the laws of time and space, and yet have faith, in the realm beyond that literally invokes that realm into being. It seemed like what everyone was saying is reality is just a concept. I needed to have the direct experience of going inside. Could ancient wisdom have included plants and meditation? I was excited to learn that a lot of celebrities, people like Jerry Seinfeld, Martin Scorsese, we're doing this meditation for a long time. And recently, people like Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Oz and Katy Perry had taken up the meditation, and it seemed to be making them even more creative. I wanted to see if some of this ancient wisdom could help me to tap into my creativity. In the 1960s, a funny little man named Maharishi Mahesh Yogi came out of the Himalayas to the United States. And he wound up teaching his transcendental meditation technique to the Beatles. And the rest is history. Today, there are more than 7 million people worldwide doing transcendental meditation. What I like about TM technique is that there's no dogma attached to it. It's really just a simple technique of silently repeating a mantra to yourself, which causes you to transcend into your quieted mind to subtler and subtler states of consciousness until a point that you reach a place called universal consciousness. An endless field of energy that connects all of us, where all knowledge is contained and where everything is manifested from. When the Maharishi passed away in 2007, he put John Hagelin in charge. As a quantum physicist and a meditator, he had successfully used quantum theory to support Maharishi's model of creative intelligence being at the center of all creation. Waking consciousness is all about being aware of something, this, that, this concept, that person. Mm -hmm. Transcending is leaving all of that behind to isolate and experience the self itself. It's blissful. It's not the end of the story. 
10, 20 minutes of that is enough. The idea is to come back into activity and increasingly integrate and stabilize the experience of inner reality, inner silence, along with outer reality. And that's when life really gets to be interesting and fun. has two aspects to it. It's the brain, this which is very concrete, you can measure it, you can touch it, but it's interacting with this field of consciousness. And what they come together is our individual self, our individual personality. And that's what most people think they are. I'm five foot eleven, I have this education, I'm this part in society, I have this amount of money. But it's not fundamentally who you are. And to know that you need to have the experience of that. And that's where meditation experience comes in. That's what the meditators are saying. It's so obvious. It's right there. The, the Bible is saying, meditate. These days, religious affiliation is shrinking. I needed to go speak to some of the religious leaders and top scholars of our time about whether meditation was once part of religion. religious leaders, there's no one more high profile than Joel Osteen. I wanted to ask Joel what he thought the mana from heaven was. I always thought it was like bread, you know, like a mushroom or something. That's what I heard. That's what I heard. I'd, I'd like it if it was mushrooms. Sustain them and... Wow. I did not expect that. <laughs> Drinking water before bed burns 46 pounds in two weeks. If you are struggling to lose weight and you're over 25, then you need to hear this. People are burning two and a half pounds of fat each night. Bible descriptions from Moses and Jesus sound more like mushrooms than bread. In fact, every other miracle that Jesus is reported have done was after they drank the mushroom tea. St. Mark's Basilica in Venice, Italy. Here's all the disciples. Here's Jesus. Giant oh, mushrooms yeah. behind him. Oh, very cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, got Jesus over here with these giant mushrooms behind him. <laughs> Jesus with the giant mushrooms behind him. <laughs> Some people who've been there, done that.
as much psychedelics as anyone alive. When you fall away for a minute, something happens. That's actually the beginning. And now you have to relearn the world just like you were a baby. What I found, uh, Max, I was very special, number one, is it's the only mind-altering substance that needs more than one substance. And the other fact that's interesting is that both of these substances, the MAO, which is harmalin or tetrahydrohamalol, or the DMT, both of these substances are produced in every mammalian nervous system. So there are substances that our body produces. Filmmaker Foster Gamble's documentary Thrive shattered many of the myths that we've been presented by regular society that keep us slaves to our so-called reality. So it seems to be a natural inclination to alter our consciousness somewhat. And I think one of the reasons for that is when we alter our consciousness, we can see our daily consciousness in a new way. And it shifts, tends to raise and expand our daily consciousness. And to me, that's the point. And if we can use substances, whether it's broccoli or ayahuasca or, uh, you know, C-sharp major, <laughs> to give us a glimpse of what's possible for human beings and specifically what's next for me? What am I ready for? When my consciousness separated from my body, it changed the paradigm entirely. I realized, aha, there's something more than this meat vehicle that we have. And that one realization set me off writing all night furiously <laughs> until the dawn. And it just reevaluated my whole philosophy. And from that point on, I've been on a journey of experiential spirituality, finding the answers myself, and the plants have been the greatest teachers in that quest. Many times there's a huge benefit with one experience because it really gets to the core of what's been happening. So it's almost like, you know, 10 years of, of therapy in seven hours. Kundalini yoga icon Gurmukh teaches many celebrities how to journey inside using the Kundalini technique. She had her own experience with mind-altering energies. I do not regret anything I've ever done. You know, people say, I did drugs. I said, well, so what? I got you here. Forget it. I've met other people that I wish they had because I feel they can't go through the barrier. They can't go into that sixth dimension. However you want to look at it, it's going to be the unknown. And you have a choice, fear or faith. You know, faith that you're going to come out all right, that the lessons are going to be valuable, and that the medicine will guide you, or fear, fear that something else is going to happen. It's going to be the unknown either way, so might as well choose faith. There are times in life where through different means, and God works in mysterious ways, we're shown the mountaintop. It's like through grace. It's like the hand of God lifts us up and just shows us the mountain. I owe um, a definite debt of gratitude to uh, my experience with various substances. I can't endorse it unless you're in a certain yeah. space, in a certain environment, with certain true healers, because it can run havoc, just like LSD did. They are powerful, transformational tools and have to be respected. And if you approach them with enough humility and respect, I tend to believe you'll be fine with them. People are afraid that when they go down there and do these medicines, they're going to lose the things that they love the most about themselves. And that's just this common fear. You know, you get someone who loves their career. Not, what if I go down and I tells me I want to be a yoga instructor? I'm like, it's not going to do that, man. And if it does, you're going to be even happier about the fact that it did. There's an opportunity to use psychotropic drugs. 
which will open up that mind and show you, my God, who you really are. I'm fascinated by it. Uh, I'm interested in it. I, I believe it will have real utility somewhere. I just, it's too soon for me as a, somebody that's trained to, you know, a certain way, <laughs> do no harm, tell, you know, really, really be clear about what you're doing. We're not clear yet. Whatever it takes, whether you do the drug or whether you do the, the meditation exercises or whatever way, I don't really care. There, there's no doubt in my mind that the first indication, the first formal use for hallucinogens will be at end of life. Because it's clear what I'm reading and seeing in the research is that it, it improves our ability to be connected with something and feel okay about the dying process. And God knows we need help with that in this country. The traditional psychological model or the traditional medical model, it usually takes years and years and years of therapy and years of intervention and working with a team of experts to get even just a little progress in someone's life. What I've seen and the, the analogy I give is it's 10 to 20 years of psychotherapy, often in one to two plant medicine sessions. There is a relationship to plant medicine when it is entered through the door of the traditions that brings people more to a sacred recognition of their life, their path. I think the word drug is really has a lot of negative connotations. I can't think of, you know, maybe if some if some drug actually cures someone, it's medicine. See, I, I haven't heard of people going off the rails. I've seen people go off the rails. I didn't choose this exact type of metastatic breast cancer, but I did pick clarity by knowing I have a treatment that goes on. Before I took the final leap, I needed to hear it from a psychedelic badass. That person is Ramdas. His real name was Richard Alpert, born to an affluent New England family. He attended Harvard and after graduation began as a researcher at the university. It was the 1960s and LSD had just been discovered. The government was studying its effect on individuals and enemy combatants. While a researcher at Harvard, Alpert and Professor Timothy Leary started to run experiments on students with psilocybin mushrooms and LSD, both of which were legal at the time. The results were nothing short of miraculous. Users were reporting that they were having life-changing experiences, including a study that showed that 60% of alcoholics that were given one dose of psilocybin mushrooms in the right sentence setting were never alcoholics again. How can everybody not know about this? Discouraged with the West, he headed to India. His guru named him Ramdas. And when he came back to the United States and published his book, Be Here Now, he was followed around by massive groups of young people. If anybody has the great intent to want to go to their own spiritual uh, insides, the psychedelics are wonderful for them. Wonderful. Would you recommend that somebody yes. looking? Yes. So seekers should go find a shaman. Sure. And go down and. Sure. Sure. That was it. 
I was going to gather up a group of friends who wanted to take the risk and go as deep into our minds as humanly possible. falling in place, you know, uh, it feels like it's guided, it feels like it's meant to be, so for me, I'm just letting it go, you know, I just assume every miracle that is going to happen is about to happen, and I should just kind of enjoy it and uh, let it happen. I have chosen to work with the Mesa, which is medicine bundle, meditations, rituals, um, counseling, and working with ancestral medicines such as Wachuma or San Pedro, which are ancestral medicines that have been used for over 5,000 years in the Andes of Peru uh, by pre-Incan cultures who are masters of accessing dimensions of consciousness that are so deep that we often don't access. No, I feel like it doesn't matter where in the world you go, it's like you'll always find, you know, your kind. And um, when it comes to spirituality, I... I respect anything that, or anyone who kind of walks respecting the planet, loving nature and opening their heart to, you know, the universe and love itself. As long as that's the main priority behind your religion or your, you know, ceremonial spiritual belief, then, you know, I'm down with you. I've got a few intents. Some are very personal which I'm going to try and bring back to my family and loved ones um, and try and take some of that knowledge or the glimpse of the other dimensions that are out there, which I've been trying to do kind of in artificial ways. I mean, sometimes with my artwork and my creativity, but in other ways with less natural things. And sometimes that's an anesthetic for pain or just your day-to-day life that gets you down. But, um, yeah, this is something that's been calling me for a while to come and do this. But it hasn't been the right moment in my life. And so it all seemed to just fall into place naturally. I'm here to have sort of like a rebirth um, to, you know, tap into a, a place that I've, I guess I've never gone. So I don't know where that is. I don't know what that is. But hopefully it's, it's a good thing and, and, I'll, and I'll be able to get through it. When you drink the medicine... of the medicine's responsibility is to do all the healing, all the cleansing, all the awakening, all the clearing, all the harmonizing that it needs to do. But the other 50% of taking it further, of taking it deeper, is always yours. Part of my my, uh, work 
in this is to make the most gentle transition possible from being very sleepy to being fully awake. <laughs> really looking forward to tapping into some of those guys' stuff upstairs. one of the biggest marketplaces in the world but instead audible is where you so San Pedro trip was, was gnarly um, it was really insane because Freddy Puma you know the the shaman that introduced us to the to the catalyst to a spiritual journey um you know which was the san pedro the drink he uh so in tune that guy and i recall you know being at the at the at the top of the mountain you know at this plateau where we all you know we're just so tired from this massive you know high altitude trek and we're finally you know getting some air and you're you're looking off at these amazing clouds that are flying right at you and you're at the precipice of this mountaintop and you know you see hundreds of feet below you and i got this enormous sorrow that i i was so overwhelmed with and the sorrow that consumed me was something that i've been carrying for many years kind of like a like a little rebellious anger like why am i here like you know like dad you know like i didn't knock on your balls you know to come out into this you know universe kind of anger that i that, that i've been holding since i was a teenager you know what i mean why stay in the couch <laughs> why suffer why struggle when you can liberate all of that and be of higher service while being gentle on yourself I know that you need your ups and downs so you can be human and enjoy life um and transition because it's part of the beauty of existence is to be sad and enjoy happiness. You need to know both sides. But this overwhelming sadness wasn't mine. It didn't belong to me. Ever since I was a little kid, it didn't belong to me. It's not mine. I'm, I'm a passenger like Iggy Pop says, you know what I mean? I'm here to ride this, you know, and 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 in a respectful way. Respect every, every everything that I come across, and you know, walk my path with love, and you know, say goodbye after my journey's done. And he came out, and he just—I felt this warm energy behind me, and there he was, while I was on the rock, overlooking the the, the clouds that are flying towards me. I was crying, you know. And he touched my shoulder, and he said, "It's not yours. Let it go." <sighs> <laughs>
my trip ended today. I've had, you know, 20 years of heavy pain lifted off of my shoulders and I'd be a happy camper without doing the ayahuasca. So I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm feeling, I'm feeling really, 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 really light on my feet, happy, appreciative and receptive, very feminine, you know, <laughs> such a tomboy. It's kind of about time I step into my femininity. My full intent coming down here, my macro intent was to try to share with everybody in the world for that matter um, the fact that there's different ways to see reality and that we sort of in this moment of chaos need to take a step back everybody and you know just try to see things a little differently the only way that you're supposed to fulfill your role is by being yourself that is the heightened you you attract more love and you attract more energy one of one of my intents and one of the things I asked for was to face my fears. And I realized that, no, I don't need to face my fears. My fears are not going to go away. First, I have to accept myself with my fears. Each person have a pattern. And that pattern is 50% woven by the person and 50% by the divine. Ayahuasca is capable of changing that whole pattern. From being... One person one day, the next day you're completely another person. I'm open to light and love and just good vibes and anything that isn't on that vibration or frequency. I'm just like, I don't even see you. You don't exist. So that's how I'm walking into this ayahuasca trip. I'm just in a very receptive place. I just, you know, I know what I'm about. I know what I stand for and I know what I resonate with. And, you know, I just... I just hope to walk that path and, you know, whoever's walking on, along that path, you know, I hope to meet you and we can join hands and, you know, take this trip together. You know? It happened for me in my ayahuasca experience when I was sitting there and I realized that I had just died. As I was looking at death and experiencing death, I saw how dynamic it was and how much was going on. And I realized that I never needed to fear death again. It was totally liberating. And as I spent time in this ayahuasca experience, I realized that I was sitting in a place where I could ask any question. I could go into the future. I could go into the past. Whatever I wanted to know, I'm going to ask a big question. So I decided to ask, why do bad things happen? And immediately upon asking that, I was whipped out into the edge of space, back to where when you're a kid, you go, yeah, but what's past space? And people go, oh, more space. And what's past that? More space. I was out there on that edge looking at everything in the universe basically contained like God would look at The path of divine love is not travel for any personality. The goal of this path is only one, and that is to settle for nothing less than. And as I'm looking at it, Spirit said to me, you see that? It's totally balanced. It's perfect. And I looked at it and I was like, wow. 
That's true. It's totally balanced. It's perfect. If something happens over here, it'll just be made up over here. And as soon as I had that realization, I was sucked right back in. I was sitting in the room again. And as I was coming out, I just started to laugh. I was laughing and I realized that I had just gotten the entire human cosmic joke. Here we are with God, the man with the white beard, and Buddha, and Muhammad, and Jesus, all these men. And I was with God and it was a woman. That has stuck with me every day since my ayahuasca experience. Well, for me, ingesting the medicine was uh, a destruction of everything I've ever known, everything I've ever believed in, everything I ever thought was true. I've tried to reason it for a while, two days um, after. Try to reason the idea that it's a hallucinogenic drug, Michelle. It just, you know, it takes things from your subconscious and projects them. You know, there's absolutely no way that there's any truth in what you envisioned. Um, that it's, it's, it's just a trip. You know, you read tons of books on alchemy. You know, you have tons of you know, information about symbolism and religion deep embedded into your brain since you're a little kid. But I know in my heart of hearts, it's not true. And that everything that I have ever known could quite probably be bullshit. <laughs> and uh, it makes me happy. I felt a peace and calm that I've never experienced in my life. An overwhelming feeling that I could relax instead of constantly macheting my way through life and my urban armor on. It just stripped everything away and put me in contact with something that was a benevolent higher power. That's the only way I can really describe it. It's such a hard time. In the middle of it. You know, like a surgeon. And I thought my wounds, <clears throat> my wounds just opened up. And I was feeling the pain. And then, uh, like I grew up and I was able to, uh, love myself a little bit more. Once I got through that hard part or the part that I needed to get out it was just definitely the best life changing experience that I've ever been through when people access these medicines they need to access with full love, with full willpower otherwise they need to find other ways People will transcend anyways. Now is the time. And these medicines are major assistants, major helpers, major masters. 
you know, assisting this process of transition for humanity from one level of consciousness to a higher level of consciousness. I've lost a lot of anger, a lot of hatred, and a lot of, you know what, if you're an asshole, be an asshole. It's your fate. You know what I mean? Like, I'm easy now. Like, I'm not angry anymore at all the mean people in the world. You know? Because I accept that they're part of it. And it's all good. You know what I mean? It's not my walk. But, you know, do your thing. And I respect your path. But don't come near me with your evil energy because I'll knock you the fuck out. It all comes down to intent for me. If your intent is right, it's going to work. It's going to be better than you thought, and you're going to have a lot less chaos. It seemed to me that nature recognizes that people are highly stressed and that people need healing medicines for the problems of addiction and depression. I kept looking for ways to transcend on a daily basis, and I was introduced to Sri Sri Ravi Shankar and his breathing technique called Sudarshan Kriya. The technique is being done by millions of people, including prisoners and inner city youth who've been trained by Sri Sri to use the technique to overcome their physical environment and give themselves internal strength. Sri Sri's logic goes that when we're born, we draw in our first breath. And when we die, we let out our final breath. But most people think nothing of it in between, when in fact, breathing may be our most valuable capability. It's an important tool. For every emotion, there is a particular rhythm in the breath. And if we attend to the breath by manipulating your own breath, you can slip into Uh, the altered state of consciousness, at will. I learned the Kriya breathing, which blew my mind. The fact that I was able to put myself into a psychedelic state with just my breath. Lightning bolts were shooting out of my hands and feet. Time stood still. I continued to get together with my friends to talk about our experience and how we were integrating our psychonaut training into our lives. There's a whole group of scientists, very few but enough, who are saying maybe brain doesn't produce consciousness, maybe brain filters consciousness. You're saying we're transmitters? We're transmitters. <laughs> and what you're transmitters of is that infinite potential that you spoke of, that field of possibilities. And so when you start to break down the boundaries, then all that's left is the infinite. So the boundaries are like your prejudices, things that you know that you've accumulated throughout life that you either repel or are attracted to. Yeah, every boundary is a conceptual boundary in consciousness. This is an Earth rover. This gives me an opportunity to come to this planet, step into this suit, have these life experiences, be creative. And, and 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 marvel at this that this planet that that we come to, and it's so funny because a I started this whole thing not spiritual, b 
Once I saw the nature of the cell membrane, the cell receptors, I said, oh my God, instantaneously I had to recognize if you buy the science, then it's not, is there or is there not, there's a spirit. So it really helped me to bring my scientific mind and my kind of spiritual experience in together and they're not different at all. We're just discovering through all these pathways how all of that is one. Sorry about all the commercials. Does it get any better than that? Yes, it does. The Toasted Cheddar Chalupa Box. After I started to really journey with the plants was when things sort of changed. When that older boyfriend of mine, I was like 24 at the time, he told me I was an idiot. And he said, you need, you, you, you are very passionate, but you have nothing to, to back up how you feel about the world. You've got, you don't read, you don't have, you know, you read one book and you can get 20 years worth of research in one book. And he kind of like opened up my mind to do research and to fill my mind. Now when I see the world, I do a psychedelic, I think metaphorically, I think on so many different layers that, you know, and of course I enjoy the moment too. I can chase sensations like any of them. You know, I love to feel good and have fun and interact with people, but you know, information is so beautiful. And if we could just tap into the reservoirs or fountains of, of the people before us, you know, you never know where I could take you. When I lost Paul, I was like, I went through uh, about a year of just being like an animal. Like, what could I do physically to just get my mind off of existentialism, get my mind off of how transient life is and how we just come here and can disappear at any moment? Um, how can I get my mind off that so I can just summer, crazy, nuts, berserko. <laughs> Like, I did everything I could possibly do to hide from myself. And uh, I'll tell you that my ayahuasca trip made me sad that he left me here. <laughs> it wasn't a sadness that he's gone. It was more like a jealousy that he's there first. <laughs> I think it was affirmed to me in the ayahuasca experience and some other trips I've had in my life where what was happening is when I took the medicine or I meditated and I went inside that they were basically I was taking filters off is what was happening. So all this bullshit. Reticular activation system. It's like doors of perception when he popped it. Yeah. He felt like that filtration mechanism that we create by the age of seven was just lifted off. You know how like you've received so much information in your, in your visual cortex, but your brain only accepts a certain amount so that you're not overwhelmed. That's your reticular activation system deciding according to your wants, likes and, and, and fight or flight deciding what information you're going to take in. Each time I got together with my fellow psychonauts, 
we felt stronger and stronger about the need to get the information out so we could help others to access some of these ancient techniques that had been so profound in our lives. You should just, you know, the Street Reality Society should set up a place in, like, Costa Rica. Like a, a dome, haven like for people haven who of, think the same way? Put them all around the world. I and like that. And the consciousness of it is like... I'm in. I'm in. All right. Everything's rolling along. Things are falling into place. And... You know, like everything in life, you you want validation. You want to know that it's having some kind of an effect beyond just, hey, I'm having a good time. I'm learning a lot. I'm having all these cool experiences. But, you know, am I really is something really happening? And I was looking for some kind of sign that, you know, it, it was making a difference because I couldn't see what the difference was. And other than my own friends and people around me. So I, I was kind of think, God, give me a sign here that. You know, this is is making a difference, that there's something to it. And then the phone call came from Jerry. Who I hadn't seen since we shot with Deepak in his apartment years earlier. Unbeknownst to me, Jerry had taken Deepak's advice as well. And he went down to Costa Rica to do a plant medicine called Iboga that comes from an African root. It's the strongest psychedelic known to man. And Jerry was taking it to see if he could break his addiction. The full moon came to Jerry and asked him if he wanted to see why he was so messed up. Well, because of my life, I had like addiction issues, tons of women issues, ego issues out the gazoo, smoking, drinking, and you name it, I was a, a fan, right? So uh, I said, what's, what's wrong with you? And so what happened then is that my body went to a house that I hadn't seen in 48 years. It was my grand my grandfather's house in, in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And at the front of the house, like three-year-old me is going like this to me. He's like waving me in. And I'm looking at the floor and there was, as a kid, I knocked over uh, cranberry juice or grape juice and it hit the wall. And that stain was on the wall. This is how perfect detail. And then next thing you know, the kid opened the door and like went like this to me, like, go look at it. And my grandfather was sexually molesting me, and I, I was three. The moon told Jerry to go see his dead grandfather and have him explain why he'd done it and give him an apology. Jerry went to see his grandfather, who denied it ever happened, and sent him away. She told him to get his father to help him to get an apology from his grandfather. And he said that he was sorry, and I told him I forgave him, And uh, even though he wouldn't do anything for me. And then the guy in the shaman goes, hey, go to the moon. So I went to the moon, back to the moon, and uh, I said... I said, Mrs. Mrs. Moon, what can you do for me? And she said, open your chest. And I went like this, and my heart was in there. And the moon took my heart out and washed it 
and she, I said, what the, Sean was saying, what is she doing? I said, she's washing it like this. Like, cause she has hands, right? Crazy, but the truth. She's washing it. And he said, I said, what should I do with it? You know, to the shaman. He said, have her put it in your left hand. I said, Mrs. Moon, would you put it in my left hand? And she put it in my left hand. And he goes, I said, what do you want me to do with it? He goes, put it in your chest. And I went to put it in my chest and it got here and it was black again. So it only stayed pink for like, I don't know, five seconds. And I said, I'm not putting this thing in me because it's shit. It's terrible. And, uh, he said, ask her for a new one. So I said, Mrs. Moon, could I please have a new heart? <laughs> you know, and she said, yeah. And then she gave me this new heart. And then I put it, I said, what do you want me to do with it? She said, put it in your left hand, put it in your chest. And uh, then the next day, I was a different guy. He hasn't touched drugs since, and he's able to have a drink socially without needing to get drunk. He's reunited with his family, and for the first time, He's in a real relationship. The first time I was invited to do plant medicine, I thought the person was crazy. I was like, you're going to take a drug to get spiritual? I don't think so. And I wanted nothing to do with it. And it freaked me out. You know, my mom's a meth addict and I was a meditator. And uh, finally, this woman who's like just a, a love in my life invites me to go and I couldn't say no. So I went and that night, um, she told me, set some intentions of, of what you want to see. And I said, okay, I want to see why I keep attracting the same psycho guy over and over and over with a different face, sucking the light out of me. And the second thing that I wanted to see was, um, what was I here to do? And so that night was just one of the most amazing nights of my life. Um, I was shown exactly who I am, what I'm here to do, and exactly why I kept attracting that same psycho guy over and over and over again. <laughs> it's just amazing because Jerry and I wake up every day and we're just like, wow, is this our life? Like, we just feel so blessed to be in love with our best friend and to be doing what we love. Immediately when I came back and my kids saw me, they knew I was a different guy and they knew something changed. As soon as you walk through the door, I can like visibly see a difference, let alone when I was actually talking with him. I was like shocked, you know. I was like, "Well, I got to give this thing a whirl. If they could, they could turn him around 180. What could it do to me?" The first time I saw Gerard after he did plant medicine, he didn't even have to speak or say one word to me. I could tell as I walked up to him about 15 feet away. I knew he was a changed person. The chances of someone coming out of that severe of a lifestyle case is very rare. I didn't want to drink anymore. I was smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. Went from that to nothing immediately. I can't even think about doing drugs. Like, I can't even. I wouldn't even have the thought to go do some drugs. He's like, Zappy, not only did I take plant medicine and break my addiction in one session, but I've actually opened up a center for people to come and expand their consciousness, heal themselves, break addiction, and it exists. And I was like, oh, my God, it manifested from that conversation with Deepak that day where he said, stir it up in the pot and drink it. (laughs) The moon told me, and this sounds so ridiculously crazy, but told me to go buy a center 
and to make it a uh, a plant-based center. Told me what building to buy. Told me what to pay for it. Uh, told me how to treat my girlfriend. Told me how to treat my children. Uh, told me that, that everything would be okay. His place is called Rhythmia. And where is it? Oh, yeah. Set up a place in like Costa Rica. I know about this place. This was the miracle I needed. Very this cool. place had manifested out of that single conversation and the desire to help people break the wiring. The first ever clinic where people can go to expand their consciousness and heal themselves. While you're at Rhythmia, you can receive counseling and spiritual development, including a program developed specifically for Rhythmia by Reverend Michael Beckwith called The Answer Is You. It's a Kepacha goes to this place, Rhythmia. Right. There was Consciousness expanding program that allows people to one take 100% responsibility for their own life, come out of the shame and blame game, blaming others. Two, it moves you through a period of, of forgiving yourself and forgiving all others so that you can be clean inside. Three, you, you begin to embrace the vibration of intentionality having an intention or direction of how you want your life to be. You have to choose this. If we don't choose it, then the undertow of the human society is choosing for you. Going to a place like, you know, it's being created at Rhythmia is a place where you can literally just come back to life's rhythm. You know, the miracle that you're going to get is that you're going to get the real truth. And the truth is that, that we are all, all of us connected from the same thing. Uh, and that love is the thing that holds us all together. And when you get to that truth, that's that's the whole thing that you've been running from your whole life is that one truth. And then you come and you you come to a place like this, and you get to see that that's the truth. Then there's the miracle. And then you can walk away and go, you know what? You know, I lost everything this weekend or this week, but I gained my life. And what more could you ask for in a in a vacation? <laughs> Everything I've gone through has truly been worth it. Because even before this movie's finished, it's already changed the world. Because this place exists. Helen Hansel was able to win any competition she took part in. She was known as the contest queen because she had won seven trips. from purpose is supported by nature and has the potential to change things in ways you could have never dreamed of. How do I channel all of this connection into being an efficient human being in society? Into giving back? Because for me, love is everything. But you have to almost have a way to re-enter the ayahuasca experience almost on a daily basis to stay tapped into it. And that has to be through meditation or through something that would deliver you back there, if only for a moment. All of us had life-changing experiences. So the question is, 
How could these incredible plant energies be illegal today to consume or even to study? It turns out that the answer to that question may be even more sinister than the reason they've been taken out of religion, money. The pharmaceutical companies are only interested in selling their patented petroleum-based medications that people need to take for the rest of their lives. These drugs do not cure, but only mask the symptoms and have significant negative side effects. Here I am, living my entire life sustained by plants. I'm eating vegetarian, and my day job is bringing out a plant-based formula to help people with addiction. I owe everything to these ancient tools. Plant medicine, meditation, breathing. These are some of the tools that were once part of the religious tradition. It's time to bring them back. We started the True Reality Society to create a peace army to counteract mass violence in the world and to bring together people who believe in the importance of going inside their minds. Jump into the next one. This next one is just as good. Just tell everybody what it is, Ron. Okay. Um, this is called the Mystery of the Maya with Freddy Silva. Yeah. And he's talking. Um, what's the name of that place? We both have been there. Tikal. It could be. It could in be in Guatemala. Yeah. It yeah, could I think be. so. That's what it looks like. Yeah. One of those places. <laughs> yeah, that was in Star Wars: The um, Empire Strikes Back and I remember. Return of the Jedi. <laughs> uh huh. Here we go. Hour and eleven minutes. Let's see how much we can get in here. Like many ancient civilizations, the Maya appeared in Yucatan seemingly out of nowhere when a star in the Pleiades by the same name 
was seen rising before the sun around 3100 BC. But a number of recent underwater discoveries tell a very different story. Around the coast, mile after mile of tunnels reveal the world submerged by rising seas at the end of the Ice Age. In these tunnels were found human remains and Maya artifacts, proving that a culture was already established here 6,000 years earlier. The name Maya means water people. Perhaps it is a clue to their true origin. According to the sacred book Chilambalam, the ancestors of the Maya arrived by boat in 9600 BC from a large island to the east called Atl or Atitlan, where it is said the waters swallowed the source of wisdom. A catastrophe destroyed their island home, forcing its divine survivors to sail west. The Chilambalam refers to these first inhabitants as Kanul, the people of the serpent. They were led by three godmen, Kukulkan, Quetzalcoatl, and Itzamna, each of whom led seven sages, all charged with the rebuilding of civilization. When they arrived in Yucatan, they called it Mayab, the land of the few, probably in honor of the survivors who found themselves here. It is said that Itzana and his crew brought the understanding of mathematics and the stars, of jade carving, agriculture, architecture, and sacred knowledge, thus explaining how the Maya appeared with a pre-packaged civilization and a fully developed cosmology. What's more astonishing is that hardly anyone has ever heard of Itzana and his sages, the Its, the water wizards people who came from the sea with knowledge of the laws of nature and how to bend them. This is their story, how their progeny became known as Maya, and how the temples of Yucatan and Guatemala today are the final expression of a project 9,000 years in the making. unambiguously described as a fair and ruddy complexioned man with a long beard, a white man with strong body, broad forehead, large eyes, who came from across the ocean in a boat that moved itself without paddles. The cult of Itzamna was based on non-violence, compassion and humility. It was such a cornerstone of Maya cosmology that the image of these gods riding a canoe was still used in ceremonial art up until the historic era. 
collectively known as the Patlodons, they were sometimes represented as zoomorphic figures riding a canoe that sailed along the Milky Way towards Orion, which itself was considered the origin of the gods, not to mention the half of creation itself. After arriving in Yucatan, Itzana and his water wizards established a town that still bears their name, Izamal. While visitors flock to more popular locations, few are aware that the largest pyramid in this corner of Central America is found here. Even though mostly destroyed and used as a quarry by incoming Spanish Catholic priests, the scale of the Sun Pyramid is still impressive. Walking up, it is possible to see the exposed megalithic core. Nine levels once spread over two acres, followed by a curved mound of a further nine levels. According to folklore, the head of its sunna is buried here. But there is a lot more to its amount. Among its gardens and plazas lie hints of its past grandeur. A vast temple city that once comprised seven pyramids and temples covering 20 square miles. Six raised sacred roads, or Sakbe, linked its amal to other Maya cult centers, making this a focal point of Yucatan. In the western section of what used to be the central plaza lies a second impressive pyramid, Itzamatul, claimed to be the resting place of Itzamatul's heart. When the explorer Arthur Catherwood came across a third pyramid in 1915, he noted how it was still covered with stucco masks and elaborate symbols, along with the seven-foot-tall head of Itzamatul himself. The southern section was once marked by another colossal structure, Paphol Chuck. Faced with the superhuman task of destroying the largest temple complex in Yucatan, the arriving Spaniards simply leveled the pyramid and used its masonry to build a Franciscan monastery and other buildings. Part of its original stonework can still be seen throughout the monastery. The fact that the Spanish made this the most important of Catholic bishoprics as well as the center of pilgrimage reveals the importance of Itzana's teachings, his temple city, and why both had to be convincingly subjugated. But in doing so, it left a major clue as to the origin of Itzamal. As a rule, Catholic churches must face east-west. Whenever they deviate, it is a sure sign they conceal an original structure. Here, the Franciscan church sits above a cenote, a Maya ceremonial cave, over which the original site was built. Since ancient temples memorialized their date of construction by facing the rising of a particular star, the church's unusual alignment gives away the date of the temple, the winter solstice in 9600 BC, the very date given in Maya texts for the arrival of Zamna and his magicians. In the west of the Yucatan Peninsula lies another major temple complex, Itzna, the House of Itza. 
today known as Edna. Enormous structures and staircases frame a central courtyard, marking the arrival of two sacbe. One links to the Gulf of Mexico and continues under the sea, demonstrating the truly ancient foundation of this empire. A huge elevated structure with broad central stairway forms a dramatic entrance to the Grand Plaza, a restricted section for those who observe the rules and customs of sacred space. The plaza served as a focal point for honoring the traditions established by the Itz and the Maya, with festivities held to coincide with specific stellar events, such as the solar return of Venus every 52 years. The divine bloodline of the Itz continued here until the 7th century with Lady Jude Shanek. Her title, Serpent Star, identifies her as a progenitor of the original Kanul, the people of the serpent. Towering over the plaza is a five-step pyramid. Its 40-degree elevation reflects the angle of the nonagon, the nine-sided geometric figure symbolizing utmost perfection. The building was designed to serve as an academy where teachings concerned with enlightenment were conducted, each chamber dedicated to individual topics. Maya glyphs set into the staircase remind initiates of their responsibilities. Among other buildings is the Temple of Musks. It features the sun god, Ahal whose face is illuminated by the sun in May and August, marking the festivals of fertility and harvest, known to the Celts as Beltane and Lamas. Ahau is an unusual Maya name because it is the nickname given to the flood gods of Egypt, the Shining Ones, followers of Horus, demonstrating how two distinct cultures once share the common point of origin. Despite the impressive temple culture of the Maya, their sacred rituals begins elsewhere. Yucatan is filled with cenotes, created from the impact of meteorites that took its rivers underground. Practically all pyramids were built over a cenote, illustrating how the womb of the feminine supports the phallic masculine temple above it. Every teaching, every ritual starts with ceremony inside the ritual cave. The Maya spatial model was organized horizontally by the cardinal directions representing the material world and vertically by three tiers, a creative underworld housing the forces of creation, a middle world represented by the temple and an upper world, the sky. At the core is the cosmic path the Orion constellation, so much so that the symbol of Orion is even painted on the roof of the ceremonial cave. The other world of the Maya is called Shibalba, and one of its most important places of access is the sacred cave Balantanche. Perhaps this cave system was chosen above a thousand others because its layout so resembles a uterus. 
one figuratively engages with the divine womb. At the bottom of the subterranean world lies a waterway representing the river of forgetfulness, the stream every initiate must cross to reach the other world. In the main chamber, a tall limestone column rises like the world tree connecting the lower, middle and upper worlds. The umbilical cord that takes the soul on its journey along the celestial river. This tree is Wakachan, meaning raised up sky. Scattered among its roots lie incense burners and containers for the narcotic used by initiates to elicit a near-death experience whereby the soul temporarily leaves the body. The traditional concoction is called Balche, a fermented honey drink brewed inside a canoe hollowed from a sacred tree, the vessel to take the soul to the heart of the sky. In Egyptian tradition, a similar celestial boat was used by its famous initiate, Osiris, the earthly representative of Orion. The ritual that took place inside Balamkanche is memorialized in the local legend of a boy who was forbidden to marry his beloved. So he ran away with his intended bride and hid her in the cave. Hence the nickname Shtakumbi, the hidden lady. But there's a hidden meaning to this story. Every initiate who undertook the journey to the other world did so to discover the source of wisdom, which was embodied in a divine woman. If the initiate returned successfully from this out-of-body journey, they married the cosmic bride. Even in a state of ruin, the temple cities originally constructed by the Itch and expanded by the Maya were beautiful. Every building was encoded with the vocabulary of sacred knowledge by people with an unerring understanding of universal laws, producing a logical and harmonious conceptualization of the universe. And Ushmal is a perfect example. Ushmal means built three times, and indeed the site as a whole follows three distinct axes, each defining a period of thousands of years before the stars moved and new temples realigned to mirror the sky. The original site is described as an invisible city, with the distinction of having been built in one night by the magic of a dwarf king. Sakbe's link Ushmal with Chichen Itza on the other side of Yucatan, and hundreds of miles further with Shunantunish in Belize and Tikal in Guatemala. One such road arrives at the main quadrangle of Ushmal, where it aligns with Venus through an entrance arch. The arch defines a type of activity taking place inside the courtyard. With a pitch of 52 degrees, the angle of the Great Pyramid of Giza, the buildings lining the courtyard are concerned with the transformation of the soul. This area once served as a cosmic university, where priestess Ishkukukan, she who teaches the path of wisdom, transmitted knowledge to astronomers, architects, artists and scribes, many of whom traveled across Central America to receive the knowledge of gods. 
there was a focus on the application of integrative medicine, so healers were also made their way here. At the center of the courtyard once stood the half of the temple complex, where stood three stones commemorating the bell stars of Orion in honor of the original teachers. X's marked the faces of the buildings, defining them as restricted spaces. There are exactly 584 X's, the cycle of Venus, the Maya symbol of rebirth. It seems one came here to be reborn. The lower building is called Itzamna, the shaman house. Its cardinal position in the south defines it as a place where the element of fire is lit within the initiate, so they come into their personal power. Along the upper molding are flowers called its, the magic substance, indicating a place where narcotics were studied and probably ingested as part of the initiatory process. Above each doorway, a stone window complete with a zoomorphic creature represents the transformational cycle of birth, death and rebirth. This can only be possible when the individual experiences the paradisial world while they live. Interestingly, this name of this window into another reality is Shanyulna, which is uncannily similar to Yana, the window into paradise in Persian mysticism. For the journey to be accomplished successfully, the initiate must enter in a balanced state. So eight chambers reflect the teachings of the four material and four spiritual forces, with the ninth, the entrance, defining the stage of completion. In this building, initiates began and finished their inner journey. Across the way is Nikterilna, the assembly house. Located in the north, the temple concerns itself with understanding the laws of magnetism and gravity that allow the soul passage through the field of reeds leading to Shibaba. Hence why a house of reeds appears above each room. These are Tanna, serpent houses, where one comes to work with the serpentine flow of energy. Eleven chambers plus two side chambers make eleven over thirteen the solar and lunar numbers, the mark of the masculine and feminine intertwined in harmony. Scrolls spreading across the face of the building indicate clouds, emphasizing the ascent to the sky. But the prominent feature is the mask of chalk. The ring eyes of a young person cover an old face. The old ego comes here to die, to be reborn with a new and younger way of looking at the world. Members of the Chalk Society walk in the footsteps of the divine lineage of the Kanul. We are reminded of this in the effigies of Itzamna, who is depicted with his breath extending from his mouth, from which came the knowledge taught here. In the direction of the rising sun, the East House is concerned with healing and rebirth. Epitomized by the pentagram, the building comes with five chambers. Its flowers identify the blessed substance, the application of plant medicine, which included narcotics for shamanic travel. The its magicians themselves are depicted with their tongues extended like the green man, from whose breath nature is periodically rejuvenated. 
When the sun descends, it marks the journey into the other world. So in the West House, one becomes fully aware of the laws of nature, which in sacred teachings are symbolized by the seven colors of light and the seven notes of the music scale. These laws were once taught in each of these seven chambers. Cloud and lattice motifs indicate a cloud house, a place from where one travels to another reality, and hopefully returns transformed, like the initiate emerging from the mouth of the snake. Not only has he been indoctrinated into the teachings of the people of the serpent, he no longer associates with the soil alone, but rises like a bird above the material world and sees the bigger picture. The individual has become a feathered serpent, the path once taken by Quetzalcoatl. Across the way, a massive artificial platform rises above Ushmal and supports a group of buildings. The main one forms a huge rectangle in the ratio 8 to 1, a triple octave in music. It is covered with no less than 20,000 sculptures. Images of the rain god Chuck suggest this may have been erected when the regional weather changed radically to a drier climate around 2500 BC. Each mask is assembled from exactly 19 limestone blocks, reflecting the 18.6 year cycle when the lunar and solar calendars synchronize. Doorways conform to the ratio of the octave and the golden ratio. Above the central chamber, a large emblem of a feathered itzamma is supported by a serpent edge in the form of serpents. Nothing in these buildings is by chance. Everything conveys a piece of information, like a book made of stone. Two spear arches link the building's three elements. The first is curiously angled at 19.5 degrees, the angle of energy upwelling, reflecting in the latitude where the most energetically active spot manifests on the planet. On Earth, it is Mauna Kea Volcano. The other spear door is angled at 33 degrees. It reflects the most secret teaching of the mysteries, the conscious manipulation of gravity, which on Earth brings materials to rest at the angle of 32.72 degrees, or 33 for convenience. Even sculptures are functional. In the adjacent courtyard, a dual jaguar is aligned to the central door to mark the sudden rising of Venus over hills three miles away. But there's more to it. Such sculptures were cut from magnetically charged stone and induced specific effects. Here, a person facing one jaguar is able to transmit a thought or image to a person facing the other. How life appeared on Earth and who taught it to humans was the focus of the House of Turtles, so-called because of a line of turtles crawling around its perimeter. In Maya cosmology, Orion is a cosmic turtle whose back was cracked by lightning, allowing the god of maize to rise through the crack and fertilize the Earth. From the House of Turtles, the pyramid of the magician rises above the canopy of trees. 
It's an elegant structure, concealing a long, long history. Like all temples, it has grown organically to reflect the ages and the movement of the sky across long periods of time. The present building incorporates four older temples. At the foot of its western face is a restricted courtyard that once saw its share of ceremonies. A phallic stone pillar marks the crossing of Telluric currents. It is the spot where offerings and prayers were made, and where one prepared mentally before approaching the pyramid. Effigies of Chuck line the steep staircase. They lead to a room into which the light of the descending equinox sun is swallowed by the massive mouth of the pyramid's protective monster. By contrast, the eastern side is covered by a wide staircase leading to the portal of an older structure. Like a womb, it receives the light of the rising equinox sun, now slightly offset due to the gradual movement of the sky. The correct alignment took place in 7000 BC. The equinox sun is a highly celebrated time of year since it marks the moment when light and dark are in perfect equilibrium. Thus, it reflects the ideal of a balanced society. This ideal was not only marked by pyramids and temples, it was also calculated to influence the entire Yucatan Peninsula. On the east coast, the Temple of Tulum marks the entry point of the rising equinox sun. Its setting on the west coast is marked on the island of Jaina. The island represents the descent into Shibalba, so not surprisingly, over 20,000 Maya came to be buried here, along with their totem figurines. Coincidentally, a Jain is a Persian term for a spirit, and it defines Jainism, one of the most ancient religious traditions of India, which teaches a path to spiritual purity and enlightenment through non-violence. Ethics that are oddly identical to those introduced in Yucatan by Zamna over 11,000 years ago. Were all these people borrowing from the same instruction manual? Zamna and Quetzalcoatl sought nothing less than spiritual transfiguration. This was achieved through mental tests and an ascetic lifestyle aimed at removing oneself from physical attachments, a flaying of their self, so to speak, so that this precious stone and rich feather, as the Maya referred to the soul, could access a finer level of being. The process required the initiative to undergo a symbolic death and rebirth, just as Quetzalcoatl and Kukulkan once did for four days inside a stone box, after which they rose and appeared as bright as the morning star Venus. The Maya associated spiritual teachings with three stellar objects, Sirius, Orion, and Pleiades. They refer to them as suns, which brings us to the temple complex of Oshintok, 
meaning where the three suns burn. Its most inconspicuous yet most important building is Zat Sun Tat. Writing about it, a visiting Spanish priest misunderstood its purpose. To quote, It is a place where they tossed those who committed great offenses, so there they may die. He believed this to be a jail, when in fact, it is a labyrinth. The entrance marks the equinox sunset, the entry into Shibalba. A low ceiling forces a person to bend in humility and into a dark maze. Turning left takes you to a dead end. Turning right also takes you to a wall, but with a difference. The ceiling slab pivots, allowing entry into a second level. The process is repeated into a third and progressively taller level. Walking the maze simulates the disoriented soul in the other world, which one can only navigate by using the intuitive or right side of the brain. Upon ascending the three levels, the initiate finally reappears to face Venus at the equinox sunrise. In the world of Maya, there is physical death and there's metaphoric death, a concept clearly lost on that priest. A sakbe from the temple city of Tikal takes you to Lavna, a journey of 200 miles. The visitor in 1840 would have been greeted by the ruined observatory on its artificial hill that featured a monolithic statue of Ibzamna's consort, Ishtel. There's an Asian feel to the architecture here, as though one is in a Cambodian temple. And indeed, there was much cultural exchange between Asian cultures and the Maya. The entrance arch marks the end of the second Sakbe and commemorates the original site, which aligns to the rising of Sirius on the winter solstice in 6000 BC. Inside the courtyard, two Shanil Na define this as another place of access into Shibalba. The beehive-shaped arch indicates one came here to collect the metaphoric honey, the very knowledge of the gods, which is why deities are always associated with this substance. A close look at the foundations of Labna's sacred buildings reveal images of Pawatuns, nature gods, whose purpose is to provide protection to sit the boat. Protruding from one temple, a sculpture of a risen Kukulkan emerges from the mouth of the serpent. An arch at the temple city of Kaaba marks the arrival of the royal road from the arch at Ushmal, 11.060606 miles away, the exact numerical value of the sunspot cycle in years. In one corner of the complex, the pyramid still awaits excavation. Kaaba is an odd word in Yucatan because it is the name of the Egyptian esoteric soul body teaching Kaaba, better known by its full title, Kaaba Allah. As a complex, Kaaba represents the strong hand of the creator, Ahal, the nickname of the Egyptian sages. Indeed, Egyptian and Maya languages share many words. The central feature is the temple Kotspup, 
whose walls calculate 2,000 years of conjunction cycles between Earth and Venus. Venus was central to Maya cosmology because it was a transitional marker from one age to the next. It also calculates a 260-day calendar, or nine cycles of the moon, a celestial body that regulates the human gestation cycle. Each day is represented by a mask of the rain god Shak. Nearby, two its magicians watch over the site like protective sentinels. Probably the best-known Maya text is the Popol Vuh. It tells how four prophets and their wives descended from the Pleiades to share the mysteries of hidden knowledge at the temple complex of Ekbalam. The name means Jaguar Star. Like so many temple complexes, Ekbalam has been rebuilt and expanded over a long period of time. A nucleus comprising twin temples, an observational tower, and a small ball court form a newer group dated to 1300 BC, while a huge platform featuring larger masonry sits on the site commemorating a far more distant era. An entrance arch on the platform, designed according to the golden ratio, marks the crossing of two sakbe along cardinal points. The remains of sweat lodges testify to shamanic work that took place here possibly in preparation to access the most prominent structure. 100 foot high, this series of rectangular platforms form a kind of step pyramid. One by one, its chambers are being excavated, revealing a litany of stucco figures and over 40 sacred texts in a good state of preservation. One of the rooms is still electromagnetically active and shuts down electrical devices whenever they pass beyond its threshold. The imposing staircase and exterior of the building are juxtaposed at different angles to the structure beneath, demonstrating how the sky changed by the time the new ruler remodeled the site, as he describes on a stella at the base of the building. The double serpent identifies his Kanul heritage. Pyramid-type buildings represent wits, the sacred mound upon which the knowledge of the gods was originally deposited. Here, the most elaborate chamber is the Jaguar Room. It is shaped like the mouth of a witch monster, the protective beast of the sacred mountain, whose 33 teeth serve to metaphorically deflesh the initiate so as to lighten the physical body before undertaking the journey into Shibaba. Seven its teachers hover around the entrance, some depicted with symbolic wings, the teachers of the sky. They are referred to as Anhel, a being of creation. One etz is shown with fingers in an Indian mudra position. One sits in a yoga pose, while another demonstrates the jaguar grip, the jaguar being the guide into Shibaba. The images around the entrance depict the sky world. The chamber is the middle world, and below the platform, the lower world, with its rivers and currents of creation, and its protective nature spirits. Adjacent to the chamber is the reading room. Above the entrance, a reed house in the shape of a T represents Tao, the breath of God.
from where the most profound knowledge emerges, leaving little doubt as to the kind of material that was read in this chamber. Such visual clues identify this area where the candidate was taught the deeper mysteries, after which they undertook an out-of-body journey to gain first-hand experience. Ekbalam was clearly a site where restricted knowledge about the forces of nature was conveyed. Information that in the wrong hands could be used and misused. No wonder the Maya carefully concealed the site with rubble until it resembled a natural hell, fooling the invading Spanish who simply walked past, oblivious to its importance. In its heyday, the ancient city of Mayapan was the place that united the wisdom teachings of other sites throughout the Yucatan. Its Zana's counterpart, Kukulkan, once lived here, teaching the structure of the cosmos and the art of uniting the three forces of creation. Like every other flood god, he too was supported by seven sages, one of whom was his wife and sister. It's often been debated how the Maya were able to maintain a population large enough to build and maintain the largest civilization in the Americas. The answer is, they designed their step pyramids in such a way as to allow electromagnetism to rise to the top platform, upon which seeds were placed. The build-up of electrical current fertilized the seeds, allowing for as many as five harvests during the growing season. One of these telluric currents is still active today. It flows along the row of stone pillars before impregnating the pyramid. There is also an obligatory observatory where complex Maya calendars were studied and implemented. There was a long count calendar spanning 26,000 years and a great cycle spanning 2,160 years. Others track the motions of Mercury, Mars and Jupiter along with eclipse cycles. There was a 266-day female gestation calendar, a general 365-day solar calendar, a supplemental 819-day count, and a 584-day Venus transit that calibrates with the Earth and Sun. Such calculations could only be the product of a culture that observed, calculated, and marked these transits over tens of thousands of years. In other words, the calendars were inherited from an earlier civilization and expanded upon by the Maya. At the entrance to the town of Chichen Itza, an old church sits on the site of a pyramid in which was found a 10-foot-tall human skeleton a good omen for the cultural roots of this enormous temple city. Over 2,000 temples and pyramids interpret the universe, acting as focal points for human interaction with the divine. It is a cosmic university to which candidates flocked from all over Central America to be educated to the highest levels of mathematics, astrology, astronomy, science, philosophy, and the mysteries. Each discipline shared in the individual
cathedral temples which embody the teachings by mere virtue of measures and decorations hardwired into the fabric of the buildings. Chichen Itza means mouth or well of the water wizard. As the name implies, it was founded by Itzabna and his crew, and ever since people have been coming here in search of enlightenment. Its supplemental title, Yuk Yibnal, the Seven Great House, honors the seven its, as well as the star cluster most associated with great teachers, the Pleiades. On the summit of the Temple of the Tables, there once stood a series of altars supported by 19 figures called Atlantes, a reminder from where the knowledge originated. One building features an elaborate mask representing Itzamna and his divine breath. Beehives mark this restricted abode as a place where symbolic honey was dispensed to adepts. The adjacent building is a mask in itself, covered with images of Itzamna, and of Chok, the old face overlaid with a young person's eyes indicating teachings that focused on personal renewal. Above the entrance, a man seated in meditation is clothed below the waist and naked above, because in the lower world things are hidden, whereas in the world above everything is laid bare. He is a resurrected hero originally painted blue, just like other rejuvenating heroes, Shiva and Osiris. At Chichen Itza, the understanding of the sky and a person's place in the cosmic scheme of things was paramount. A large observatory with a spiral staircase stands on a platform in the ratio 4 to 3, the orbital proportion between Earth and Venus. The round structure is oddly placed on the platform, suggesting a later adaptation to a constantly changing sky. The corners aligned to solstices, and carefully placed windows marked astronomical events. The cycles of the Moon, Venus, Sirius, Orion and Pleiades were calculated here. One of the main functions of Chichen Itza involves the rite of initiation, and it took place at three interconnected sites. The first is the Temple of the Jaguar, a small room by the main doll court. It is presided by an eroded image of Itzamna as a wizened old man with Caucasian features and a beard. Protected by a feather serpent on each column, the room is in the proportion of the golden ratio. A weathered panel depicts a ceremonial dance once enacted over five days around November the 1st, presided by an its magician who works the life force while a group of participants walks behind him. A panel depicts a kind of battle scene where the soul overcomes the physical world, while mountains and crevices emit the life force in the form of serpents who support the nature gods. The feathered serpent serves the entourage and protects a magician holding a mirror that enables him to see into the other world. The chamber is aligned to the winter solstice in 5500 BC.
Having been advised on the mysteries of life, the individual was then led to the second location, a small pyramid that few take much interest in. Built over a cenote, it is constructed with seven tiers, marking it as a place where one comes to interact the formative laws of nature. Stairways decorated with intertwined serpents, representing electrical and magnetic currents, feature eyes inside each coil, a reminder that harnessing these forces allows one to peer into other levels of reality. <coughs> Once prepared, the individual entered from the cave underneath, made their way into the pyramid by way of an umbilical shaft, and spent a few days inside the womb-like environment. Upon returning from their journey, they climbed up another shaft to reappear on the summit. To complete the initiation, the initiate would be taken to the third location, opposite the first temple of the jaguar, a large step mound called Temple of the Warriors. At the top of the grand staircase, they would gaze at the seated figure of Shark Mool. At the same moment, Venus rose before the equinox sunrise and appeared above the plate on his belly. Together, the three sides form a triptych in the form of a perfect right-angle triangle. Historians have led us to believe that a gruesome blood sport was conducted in Maya ball courts. Or was it? To begin with, the playing area is composed of two inverted T's, representing Tao, the breath of God. And access is via a staircase whose balustrades are carved with Wakichan, the world tree linking the three levels of reality, upon which is perched the bird Itsamye, representing the elevated soul. And if the arena was meant for a public sporting activity, there is a remarkable absence of seating for spectators. Clearly, a better explanation is in order. The steep walls of the court illustrate Maya cosmology of how life emerged from a crack in the mount of creation, hence why the ball court is referred to as Hong, a crevice. The court itself is acoustically tuned a vocal sound or a clap of hands echoes exactly seven times, an homage to sound as a causative element in creation. High up on the inner walls, stone rings are carved with intertwined feathered serpents. Eyes fill the gaps between the coils, so that when the ball penetrated the ring, it became the object with which to see into Shibalba. Hence the nickname by which the ball court was known, Shlashni, the looking place. So far it seems that the purpose of the game was one of instructive or spiritual value. But the most telling clues are the intricately carved panels running the length of the court, in which players are depicted in a most unusual game. The central player has no head, and seven wriggling snakes rise out of his severed neck. Each represents a law of creation, but to embody this knowledge, the player must first decapitate his ego, depicted at the player's feet as a large skull inside a halo. It is called Wei, the soul. Altogether, this portion of the panel depicts an initiate on his path to wisdom, 
supported either side by the seven sages. The entire scene depicts a cylindrical projection of the planes around the zodiac, tracing a path of planets above and below the celestial horizon. In other words, the game played here was a figurative ball game of the gods. The idea of the game was to amass enough points to reach the center of the field, Teokali. The aim was for players to learn and interact with the laws of nature and learn the greatest game of all, the game of life. The ball game was a metaphor of the regenerative cycle of creation, and the person who understood its mechanics overcame the repetitive cycle of fate. Thus, it was a game of symbolic warfare. All in all, the ball court enabled people to visualize the mechanics of a spiritual drama and how to embody them and it is encapsulated in the upper temple overlooking the court, where a large mural depicts a metaphoric scene, the battle between the laws of nature and the incarnate itself. Like all things, the loss of the original meaning over time led to misunderstanding, and the game degenerated into a literal game of life and death in northern Mexico, with the Aztec reenacted each year with gruesome barbarity. The dominant feature of Chichen Itza is undoubtedly the Pyramid of Kukulkan, a masterpiece of geodetic, numeric and astronomical information. The floor of the plaza from which it rises was once painted in red cinnabar and forms the top of several underground levels built by the original astronomer priest Nohosh Itzzab. There may be as many as nine underground levels to reflect the Maya underworld. All of this too was built above a cenote and originally accessed by canoe using a network of underground waterways. The pyramid's general slope of 52 degrees is the same as the Great Pyramid of Giza. Its terrace walls slant at 72 degrees the root number to calculate the Earth's precession and the houses of the zodiac. Each large step features 52 panels, the cycle of the Pleiades, which equals one Maya century. Stairways inclined at 45 degrees represent the square, the material world, and four staircases of 91 steps equal 364, with the top platform making 365 the solar year. The pyramid's shape tracks the equinoxes, solstices, and the zenith of the sun. At the equinox sunrise, the pyramid's shadow forms the head and wings of a quetzal bird on the ground, while the clap of hands imitates the bird's sound. At sunset, the light casts shadows in seven isosceles triangles against the western balustrade that evoke a wriggling serpent. By contrast, the winter solstice sunset projects a serpent descending into and fertilizing the earth. Strategically situated on the seventh course, the inner chamber of the pyramid is referred to as the Chamber of Alchemy. Painted in red cinnabar and decorated with 72 jade spots, the jaguar throne represents the bridge between the two worlds. In an induced catatonic state, 
the initiate would leave the body and enter the dwelling place of the gods. The ideal of the Maya was the overcoming of gravity and the ascent of the soul. The more an individual worked with the concepts embodied in this building, the more they became aligned to cosmic order, and the more likely they returned transformed and enlightened as an Aku, an illuminated one. The risen initiate was then draped with the leopard skin, just as in ancient Egypt, where Osiris himself was depicted as a crouching leopard, and the priest of Amenti, who served his ideals, wore leopard skin. According to the Maya, the temple tradition of Yucatan is a continuation of Atitlan, in what is described as the rebuilding of the former world of the gods. Just how old the lineage of the Ips might have been is revealed in the Maya serpent dynasty that covers 16,000 years, and most likely originated in Atitlan until a catastrophe at the end of the Ice Age forced them to resettle in Yucatan. Whatever happened to these sages, of whom the Maya wrote, were endowed with intelligence. They saw and instantly they could see far. They succeeded in knowing all that there is in the world. The things hidden in the distance that they saw without first having to move. Great was their wisdom. Their sight reached to the forests, the rocks, the lakes, the seas, the mountains and the valleys. In truth, they were admirable men. They were able to know all, and they examined the four corners, the four points of the arch of the sky, and the round face of the earth. Under various names, the Its migrated into the interior and the highlands of Guatemala, settling on an island in a lake named after their sunken island home, Atitlan. Here, they built a city called Utatlan, a replica of the one they'd lost. Ironically, the island also sank, leaving the Ets to rebuild Utatlan on the lake shore. Another of their island cities, Innosh Peten, on a lake that still bears their name, Peten Itza. Here, the Ets erected no less than 21 temples and a nine-step pyramid. There's no trace of the buildings today, all destroyed by the Spanish who used the temples as a quarry for their own homes, then renamed the island Flores. But the main church, Mr. Light to the southeast, marks the spot where the pyramid once stood, aligned to the winter solstice in 7600 BC, 2000 years after the Ets first landed on the coast of Yucatan to establish one of the greatest civilizations ever seen. Much of it yet to be reclaimed from the jungle. Beside the crocodile-infested river, Yashilan is the city of the first prophets. My tradition speaks of rituals conducted here that allowed initiates to travel through time and space and returned with specialized information. They were referred to as architects of the sky. Versed in the mysteries, teachers such as Itzama Balam II and Lady Sakabiyayan, J. 
journey to parallel universes and the knowledge they gained there was recorded on lintels throughout the site. got about 11 more minutes so we'll just stop there and we'll get the final notes <laughs> a little later this 
these are awesome pieces. And I'm grateful for those who brought it to us. And we'll take a little break now, everyone. And we'll be back in 10 or so minutes uh, with our brother Richard and a look at the stars and our Kay Pacha and Tanya Gabrielle and all there is more of it. <laughs> Namaste for now, everybody. See you in a little while. Namaste. That's the talking stick to you, Richard. Hey. Hi, hello. Richard. Hey, hello, and good evening, everybody. <laughs> we made it to June 11th. <laughs> yeah. What a week it was. Oh. Well, looking at tonight's chart here, the sun has gotten up to 22 Gemini. So by the time it rises in the morning, all the other planets are in the sky already. Already in the sky. As a matter of fact, here on the East Coast, Pluto, which is at the other end of the freight train, is at 29 Capricorn, and it's, it's going to rise in about two hours. It'll be in the eastern sky. And after that comes Saturn, still hanging at 26 Aquarius. Then in Pisces, Neptune at 26 and Jupiter at 6 Aries. Now they're only uh, 10 degrees apart, so they're still operating uh, together. And they're square the sun. Sextile Mercury, Neptune, Sextile Mercury. Uh, Pluto is trying Mercury. Saturn is trying the sun. Pluto still sextile Neptune. So there's a lot, there's a lot of action right there going on together now. As foretold in the history, Mars conjunct Neptune is effective. It won't be exact for a couple of days, but Mars is at 14, Chiron's at 16, in Aries. Alright, now that's probably at the personality level of the individual human being, one of the driving factors. around the entire field of of health and and well-being. That that, that is 
the microcosm and the macrocosm both, so individually and planetarily. Uh, and the humans have got a lot of problems to deal with right now. Then we get up to Taurus. Moon is opposite Venus tonight. That Venus is square Saturn, and that Saturn is square the moon. And the moon is at 16 Scorpio. So you got Uranus conjunct Venus at 17. See here. Yep, 17. Venus. Yep, at 17. North node at 23, and Mercury is at 28. Not into Gemini yet. You know, we just had that Mercury retrograde. And I've got a couple important communications to make, and I'm just going to wait a few more days until that Mercury gets into Gemini, just to get that uh, composers, writers, writers composing help of Gemini before I write, write this long overdue letter to my niece. And that is it. So in the opposite order, you got Sun, Mercury, North Node, Venus, Uranus, Chiron, Mars, Jupiter, Neptune, Saturn, and Pluto. And they rise in the opposite order. Pluto, Saturn, which will be the first, first one you can see in the morning sky. And... Jupiter will be closer to the horizon, and then Mars. And those three should be easily seen in the pre-dawn sky. And it's probably be too bright to see Venus, but it might. I mean, Venus is the 21 and 14. Yeah, it's 35. Venus is 35 degrees behind the sun. So you might be able to see all of those. Mercury, I doubt it. Too close to the sun to see it. And that's our layout currently. And I'm ready to listen to Kaipacha and see what he thinks of this mess. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. with the weekly Paley Report. I hope you're all doing all right out there. It's uh, Wednesday, June 8th, and we're going to be looking at a little bit of uh, the astrology for the soul today. The moon has just moved into Libra with a little help from my friends. She's been in Virgo there for a little while. We had that first quarter square, and uh, by Friday, she will be dropping down into Scorpio, ruler of the underworld, only to emerge the phoenix rising from the ashes 
on Sunday into Sagittarius, where she's going to rise, rise, get fuller and fuller and fuller until what? The full moon. 23 degrees, 25 minutes of Sagittarius. The sun is going to be over there in Gemini for that full moon. It's going to be totally awesome. And what else is going on? I mean, the big things I want to be talking about today is uh, Venus is coming up through Taurus, and she will be joining Uranus and the North Node of the Moon. Venus, Uranus, North Node of the Moon coming up, coming up, coming up. She's exactly conjunct Uranus and opposite the Moon on Saturday. Saturday. In the park. I hope you're in the park because it's going to be wild. Let's, let me go down here a little bit. The other thing I want to be talking about then is Mercury is uh, moving through the final degrees of Taurus, coming into a nice trine with Pluto in late degrees of Capricorn, in the Earth, in the Earth. And then, boop, up Mercury goes into Gemini next Monday, so we will be feeling a little bit of a shift there. And then, last but not least, uh, Mars. Uh, Mars is moving, uh, you know, right on up through Aries and is going to be joining with Chiron. Not uh, The exact conjunction is not till next Wednesday, but it's building, 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 building. You know, it's uh, uh, you got to give an orb to these aspects. So we will be feeling Mars uh, conjunct Chiron. Um, if you're not already, you will be. And really, kind of the, the interesting thing here is just that um, if you look at that chart at the beginning of the report, you will notice that really um, almost all the planets uh, you know, especially the personal planets are in Aries, Taurus, Gemini, the first three signs of the zodiac. I want to be talking about that a little bit because um, I think it's very important for us to keep in mind uh, with everything that's going on. So let me look at the camera and talk about it. All right, let's get right down to business here. <laughs> What I love about astrology is it doesn't only say what's going on, but what to do about it. <laughs> yes. And that's what I really want to look at today a little bit, because looking at what's going on uh, is not so pleasant. So it's nice to kind of brainstorm and get some uh, cosmic info on what to do about it. And when we look at it's the evolutionary intention. We are each evolving individually. We're evolving collectively. Our planet is evolving. Our solar system, our galaxy, it's all about evolution, evolution. And, and evolution is just like, you know, God seeing, you know, herself in, in a multiplicity of different ways. So it's just expanding. It's the, it's the expanding universe, okay? It is spirit expanding and witnessing itself through each one of us in our own unique dimensional way. And, and this is what is 
really emphasized so much by, you know, we've got, uh, you know, Jupiter, Mars, and Chiron in Aries, the first sign of the zodiac, having to do with initiation, with impulse, kind of just an unconscious, spontaneous, uh, top gun maverick, uh, you know, don't think about it, just do it. <laughs> you know? Yeah? Act now, think later. Trust that we are natural, instinctive creatures and that our instincts are honed and sharpened. And the more that we trust them, like the deer in the forest, we will find water, we will find the berries, like the bear in my backyard. <laughs> I should put a picture of that on there. Big bear. And this, and this, and I'm, I'm out there, I actually got it on video, but it climbed up a tree. Had to weigh like 400 pounds. Okay, that's a couple hundred kilos. And it just went boom, 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 up, up this tree. Nature is so phenomenal. It is such our great teacher. Natural law and the natural beings and, and other inhabitants of our planet have so much to share with us, so much wisdom. So this Aries energy, and, and of course, Chiron's in there for seven years, 2018 to 2025, 26, uh, healing, healing. It's our inability to trust and believe in ourselves as creatures. And that's what this mantra is today. We are in a physical body. We are in the third dimension. We are on planet Earth. And it's beautiful. It's not to be shamed. It's not to be hidden. It's not to be repressed or suppressed. It is to be enjoyed. So Aries is desire. Aries is want. Aries is I deserve. And, and, and we're, we're all in process of healing that. So this is the, you know, and, and we need to overcome our fear that there, that I'm not enough, that there's not enough, that some future doom is going to end it all, that da, 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 the, the fears, 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 fears. You know, Mars and Aries just wants to break through. Not dissolve or rid ourselves, but have courage in the face of, stay in the ring, <laughs> you know, go for it. And then we've got, you know, Venus and Mercury and Uranus and the North Node of the Moon all moving here through Taurus, the bull ruled by Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty, this earth sign that wants to live in simple comfort Comfort, harmony. I mean, look at look at this. <laughs> I mean, I'm very fortunate. I'm very lucky to have such great friends with great places <laughs> to come and visit. I can't wait to jump in that sucker as soon as I'm done. But anyway, this is like receiving, soothing ourselves, pleasuring ourselves, calming ourselves down, enjoying our five physical senses and all that the physical world has to offer us in a very simple way, like a bull, like a cow. Just think of yeah, this bull cow. They just, you know, they're just, you know, in the field, chewing, chewing, chewing with their four stomachs, just digesting, digesting, digesting. You know, Rudolf Steiner talks about, you know, the preparations for biodynamic gardening. 
and and they are buried in a, a, a bull's horn, right? You know, uh, in sync with the moon, and doing a hundred and eight lamnascates. You stir, you know, you stir the preparations, and then you mix them together, and then you put this, you know, you put this in the earth for a period of time, and it and it comes out transformed, and then you spray it all over your garden, and it's just like wow. You biodynamic farmers know what I'm talking about. <laughs> what comes out of those gardens is mwah, full of spirit, full of life, full of juice. We want to, and that again is what the mantra today is about, is taking care of our bodies. Our bodies are our temples. Yeah, this Venus, you know, in Taurus, and, and Uranus is like find new ways. Find new ways of cleansing, of cleaning, of enjoying, of pleasuring, of comforting, of simplifying simple pleasures, you know, really moving out of the intensity and the drama and the crisis and the blah, 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 blah. You know, it's just like focus, 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 you know, come in, come down, come into your body, come to earth. What's that saying? Uh, you know, uh, give me the strength to change what I can change and let go of what I got to let go of and the wisdom to know the difference. Something like that. I mean, <laughs> and, it, and it's like you start just like a rock in a pond. We take care of ourselves, our bodies. We survive. We, we, you know, we we find our inner gold, our inner resources, our inner capacities, uh, our our ability to become valuable, to generate income, to receive all the wondrous things that Earth and other people have to offer us, and then we branch out, right, to our friends. Uh, you know, to our family, to the parents, to the kids, to the brothers and sisters, to the nephews and the nieces, to the, you know, and, and, and then and then it comes into our community and, and we branch it out, you know, into our, you know, community of our, of our neighbors. And hopefully, you know, you are in community with your neighbors in a physical environment. And then, of course, now with technology, it's expanded out to our tribe that can be global Okay, and we just want to expand this out, and then it comes into you know politics and corporations and the great big big wide broad picture. That's way out there. You know, we're we're not changing okay so much what the World uh, Economic Forum is uh, instigating. I mean, we can have our own certain impact on it. I want to. I'm I'm you know about being a warrior for the new paradigm, okay? But we have to draw this line. We have to have these kinds of boundaries, and that's where Saturn is coming in, and it's squaring Uranus. Uranus wants to break into the future, innovate, and change things, and Saturn is putting the brakes on, saying, whoa, now let's do this right. Let's do this, you know, raise the bar, slow but sure. Then we've got the sun. We've got Mercury moving into moving into Gemini. The sun, you know, uh, already in Gemini. 
Black moon Lilith moving in and out of Gemini. It's the third sign. It's the first time humans come in. We've got two animal signs, and then Gemini's like, okay, whoa, I've got some consciousness. <laughs> and, you know, it is about, it's not just my body, it's my mind. When we think about the temple of our body, there is the temple of our mind. We want to cleanse our mind. We want to clean out the cobwebs. We want to come into the now. And we want to just like, you know, let go of old thought patterns, of old attitudes, you know, that is just like no longer helping us. Do Taurus, do the North Node of the Moon, come into a place of comfortable relaxation that strengthens and that rejuvenates and that builds us up and helps us have healthy, vibrant relationships with other people. This is the other situation. Gemini is about networking, communicating, Really, you know, coming together and finding new friends, breaking out, breaking free. And now we got the, you know, we're coming into this full moon. Oh, yeah. That moon is going into Sagittarius, okay, you know, and that, and it's going to be super powerful because that is the sign of natural law. Natural laws. Truth. We want to tap into a truth. I want to uh, read the Sabian symbol for the full moon because it's like just super awesome. And <laughs> I think it's going to be a good time, man, in spite of uh, the madness that's happening. Yeah. It's a blue bird perched on the gate of a cottage. The reward, which meets every effort at integration into a social environment. For those who remain true to their own selves. North Node in Taurus, we got to be true to our own self. Saturn in Aquarius, we need to have healthy boundaries in our relationships with our groups, with society, with our governments, with people at large online. And just not get too sucked in. And not hide out or back away or back off or isolate. It's just finding that, finding that place. The bluebird is a well-known symbol of happiness. But also it refers to what one might call a spiritually oriented mind. To which the color blue relates. Especially when a bird is mentioned. A cottage is normally part of a community. And the implication is that its inhabitants are well adapted either to the life of the community or to their more or less isolated togetherness. So this symbol suggests that the essential technique, this is great, the essential technique for successful living, drum roll please, <laughs> <laughs> Do you want, I mean, maybe I should, you know, <laughs> pause and see now. Do you want a successful te technique for successful living? Is the development of a consciousness 
in which peace and happiness dwell. There is also a hint that good fortune is going to bless your life. We have to be the calm in the storm. We have to be the eye of the hurricane. We have to be the oasis in the desert. It all starts at home. It all starts within. This is the Pluto polarity point in Cancer. With evolutionary astrology, the soul is moving through Capricorn. Okay, you know, and the the path forward is to balance out these power games, these control games, you know, all these external authority, you know, manipulation, domination, all this kind of, you know, oh, what, you know, the my reputation and my business and my financial security and blah, 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 blah. And it is to come home to my feelings, my inner child, whoever and whatever I define as family, and nurture myself emotionally, stepping into the watery realms of intuition and emotion and the feminine. We get this, you know, so this, this coming home, this is a time of us building a nest. And that nest, or that hut on the other side of the river, okay, you know, is about kind of this expansion of consciousness in Sagittarius, okay? And and it's just like, you know, we're going through a phase. It's an evolutionary phase, part of a bigger evolutionary cycle for planet Earth and for humanity. And I'm going to serve myself and my family and my loved ones and all of humanity best by being all that I can be. And for this, I want to do a colon cleanse, a liver cleanse, a kidney cleanse, a mental cleanse, a head cleanse. (laughs) Clean, 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 clean. Sweeping out the cobwebs, sweeping out the temple. Get it all out. And I want to move it, and I want to shake it, and I want to enjoy it, and I want to believe in it, and I want to trust it, and I want to love it. And I want to nurture it in every possible way I can. And, you know, I don't know that I want to really get into this too much, but we also have to understand with the south node in Scorpio and this north node in Taurus conjuncting Uranus, we need to look at our sexuality. We need to look at how our spirit is, you know, really sinking through seven chakras, six, five, four, Get it down, get it down, get it down. (laughs) We have to incarnate. We have to find new ways to express our sexuality, to be sensuous physical beings. (laughs) And we know that the old ways of the patriarchy or the monogamy or the, you know, uh, you know, the till death do us part or the family, the nuclear family. We've got the whole transgender movement happening now. We've got, you know, people going non-binary, stepping a lot into confusion mm-hmm. around sexual identity. Yeah. 
and and not and of course Scorpio is the taboo. Shh, don't talk about it. Don't talk about it, or you're some kind of you know like <laughs> you know nasty bad pervert or you know a dirty person. Or there's still tons, tons of issues and dynamics and unhealthy practices and attitudes, you know, with regard to sharing ourselves physically. So, yeah, this is, uh, I'm, I'm going to be doing a little more on this. I don't know that I'm going to be doing it on YouTube. I'm going to be working with it in my school. I'm doing a workshop on the astrology of sexuality in Lake Tahoe, California, uh, coming up a couple weeks from now. I'm doing a relationship workshop in Greece. I really want to, you know, while this north node is conjunct Uranus, Mars is coming around to heal this masculine energy, Mars, Chiron, and Aries. Mm-hmm. And then Mars is going to be moving through Aries into Taurus. And the first week of August, we will have a Mars-Uranus north node conjunction. Talk about breakthroughs. There will also be a ha-ha-aha moments of breakouts. I mean, we will be seeing things breaking down all around us, but that is just, you know, opening up the soil so that we as plants can emerge into the light of the sun. We got this. You got this. You can do this. And part of it is by being discriminating around what you are listening to, what you are exposing your eyes, your head, your ears, your mind. What are, what are you feeding your mind? We don't just feed our bodies, okay, with food and sex and love and chocolate. <laughs> but we also feed our minds with the conversations that we have, okay, with the videos that we're watching, with the books that we're reading, with the, you know, whatever we are exposing ourselves to. So it is like really, you know, this Gemini is, you know, bring attention to the here and now and cleanse it, clean it. So the mantra for today and for all this week, and maybe even beyond this week. Oh, uh, 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 the song for this week is A Place in the Sun. A Place in the Sun is one of them. I just heard it on the way up driving up here. It's, it's, it's a great one. I'm, I'm going to see if I can find it. And the other one is Simple Man. Simple Man. Mama told me. It's a great one. Yeah. Just be a simple kind of man. This is Aries. Taurus, Gemini starts to get a little more complicated. <laughs> I'll say that. But Aries and Taurus is pretty like, you know, there. <laughs> Simple man, baby. I am loving my physical body. It's my temple while living on earth. I clean it and cleanse it and move it and shake it. And enjoy it for all it's worth. Ah. (laughs) Come on home. Come on home to your temple. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Shake it, move it, love it, put it in the sun, cook it, fry it a little bit, dip it in the water, <laughs> cover it with sauce, <laughs> barbecue it, whatever, baby. Mm. And give thanks for it, yeah? Gratitude, Venus, Taurus, second house. This is, you know, I receive and I am grateful. I am grateful to be alive. I am grateful to have this beautiful body. I am grateful to live on this beautiful planet and watch these beautiful sunsets, you know, with these trees and flowers. And ah, oh my goodness, goddess. Loving it, loving it, loving it. And that's just like, that builds your magnetic field. Yeah. I'm loving this physical body. It's my temple while living on Earth. I clean it and cleanse it and move it and shake it and enjoy it for all it's worth. Namaste. Aloha. So much.
Pluto setting in the western sky along with uh, Saturn and then blah blah blah. You know the you know the route. But the sun will be the um, sun will be about twenty three degrees above the horizon. Yeah, fifteen. The horizon for the for the full moon will be fifteen degrees of Cancer. And the sun will be about 23 degrees above the horizon. So, and everything else will be uh, Mercury and Venus and Uranus, all in that morning sky. And Jupiter and Mars and Neptune will be like overhead bearing down on us. Mars. Mars, Jupiter, and Neptune. Mm. When that's going on, it'd be a, be an interesting time to run the run the double double circle chart with your own chart in the middle and and this chart on the outer rim and take a look at how the how this chart's going to look at look at your chart because it's it's all. It's all overhead. It's all direct influence. Every one of those planets that emits or radiates energy come right down on us. And that's that's your uh, that's your Tuesday morning to look forward to. I don't know. There's. It's easy to make reasons not to act based <laughs> on the astrology. Uh-huh. There's also reasons to act mm-hmm. based on the astrology. You know, once once the moon sets, you don't have to deal with those uh, complicated reflected energies of uh, you know bouncing off the sun and bouncing off Jupiter and bouncing off Saturn. Uh, those those are the three biggies. You know, bouncing off Venus. So. Uh, bouncing off Mars. So that's your, that's your full moon, Tuesday morning, all day Tuesday. You know, you may start to feel it Monday, but you'll definitely feel it Tuesday and Wednesday. And let's guess, is, is uh, Tanya going to talk about the full moon? Yeah, it's only 10 minutes, and Venus can... Conjunct Uranus, exploring new ground. Yeah. Well, let's see now. How would I? How would I interpret that for the individual? Um. Actually, it would it would indicate some unexpected. Blessings. Venus is, you know, the, the lesser beneficiary. Jupiter is, they call that the major beneficiary. But then again, too much Jupiter will mess you up, you know. But, yeah. Uh, but Venus, uh, Venus, the lesser beneficiary. So um, I haven't seen it yet. No, actually, I have seen it. I've got my eye on a. Uh, on a 
my chiropractor's office. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna go take care of my temple. <clears throat> All right, over to you, and then I'll see. Then I gotta figure out what we wanna talk about when she's done. Okay, let's go do that, and I'll, I'll, I think I'll pick a couple of Sabian symbols to look at. How about that? Great, great. Okay. All right. Here we go. All right, take it away. Hello there, it's Tanya Gabriella, Wealth Astrologist. Welcome to Star Codes. This is a special edition outdoors, as you can see, and if you're listening to this podcast, you may hear some wind blowing. It's not as quiet as it is in my studio, so I apologize for that. But there is a reason I am outdoors today. It's because the forecast we're going to look at in the astronomy is Venus sextile Uranus happening on June 11th. And, of course, the number 11 is a portal. It's a portal of double new beginnings, and this particular connection between Venus and Uranus really shows us that we need to just let go and restart in a beautiful way, but also in a very open way, in a way that embraces excitement and embraces the adventure that we're on now, clearly on now. So I wanted to be outdoors to show you there's a lot of uh, wind right now. I think there's a thunderstorm possibly coming here later, and which is always exciting. So that represents literally going with the flow and being one with nature, with the natural cycles of life. So, and I'll make this a little shorter just because it might not be so easy to listen to when the wind is blowing so hard. So let's go to the date first, June 11th. Now, 11 is a double one and The single one stands for the single person, so hence the word I in English looks like the number one. It stands for being single-minded, moving forward in a very individualistic way, and having a sense of self, uh, being sovereign, being independent, and it's a very imaginative number as well. So when we put it together, when we double up the one, we have all those qualities, but obviously enhanced, expanded, and the double one creates a gateway. So it is like opening a door to a new chapter in your life, going into a new room you've never been to because it's double new beginnings. One is the first number. It represents new beginnings. So there is a an invitation on any 11 day, whether it is, an 11th of the month, or whether the universal date adds up to 11, to let go of the past completely and trust that the universe has your back and that all you have to do is listen. And listening is really the key theme here because you're going to be guided through all the change very easily and effortlessly when you tune in to the psychic master, the intuitive master, the 11th. They're like two antennas, right, that 
that are just constantly on listening mode, and they are your internal guidance system and always lead you exactly where you need to be. And that goes for not just action, but also words, what it is you say. So we have the 11, and then we have Venus sextile Uranus and the 14 universal date, because 6, 11, 20, 22 adds up to 14. So let's look at that 14 first, because it ties into Uranus. Very similar message here. 14 is what I call the media number, but it is really about connection and communication. And it reduces to five, and five is the number of freedom and change. Five faces two directions, left and right. It has a rocker, so it has like a half circle, and it has straight lines, so it has really the whole geometry code within the number physically. And if you look at the fact that the universe is made up of straight lines and circles, it literally embodies that pivot point, and it does in the numbers itself. It is the middle number between one and nine, so it represents that pivot point. Hence, the change, the decision-making, the openness to receive from all directions and the ability to just go with the flow. Just like the wind behind me. <laughs> right? It's really picking up. So we have these squalls, right? And these squalls happen in our life. And sometimes there is a thunderstorm going through our life and we just have to adjust, you know? And then later on, we clean up, we pick up the pieces and and clear whatever rubbish has been blown around and um, and also see that it impacts the clearing process because that's really the reason for the storminess in our life. It clears out something that is no longer necessary. So this 14.5 and Uranus really represent that theme. So then we come to Venus sextile Uranus. Now Venus is the planet that rules Taurus and Libra. Mercury just was retrograde and still is in Taurus. It pivoted, it changed direction in Taurus and still is moving through that sign. So we have a Taurus emphasis right now. And with Venus activated through Uranus and Uranus actually being in Taurus, I know I'm bringing up a lot of stuff here, but Uranus has moved into Taurus in 2018 and is currently there until around 2025. Venus sextile Uranus, while Uranus is in Venus sign, is a greater activation of the planet Venus. And fortunately, Venus is one of the planets we love to activate. Venus and Jupiter are the two benefics in astrology. Venus, because it represents everything that is pleasurable, loving, abundant, joyful, beautiful, kind, social, and this shows that with the 11 code and the Uranus activation and the 14.5, there's a change afoot in all those areas. We may change or adjust our values, Taurus rules values as well, about what it is we actually feel pleasure from. Is it the simple things or is it the complex things? Is it actually going outside and being in nature and feeling the wind and getting in touch with earth again and socializing one-on-one, eye-to-eye with others, right? That brings pleasure because Venus is very connected to that. Taurus rules the throat, by the way. 
So the speaking in a pleasurable way and the ability to verbalize your feelings is also connected to this transit. So how do we do that? Do we do it in a way that brings us pleasure and brings those pleasure that we are connecting with? And what are we surrounding ourselves with in terms of our our home, our studio, our office, our car? Is our car messy? Is it clean? Do we have it? Do we have our environment in place so that it brings us pleasure? Do we have beauty and colors and flowers and whatever it is that you love readily available? And not only that, consciously appreciated in our life so that when we see it, we give thanks, we engage. So these are really some of the themes that are coming up. And because change is afoot, as you know, 2026 has continued and deepened the shift that is ongoing on Earth right now. And with all of us, within all of us, there is a great need to go within. And one reason this Star Code podcast is late this week is because I was immersed in creating a new training program that I got inspired to do a couple weeks ago. It's called Your Inner Star, and it literally addresses your inner life in terms of your own personal astrology and numerology. And if you want to get a discount on that course, just sign up to the newsletter, my free newsletter on my website, tanyagabrielle.com. It'll pop up on your right. You just leave your name and email address. And until Friday, you will receive emails about this course, including the 40% off link, if that interests you. But nevertheless, your inner star, your, your heart, is where this change will be weathered and nurtured and birthed and awakened. So always be aware of how you feel and the messages that are coming through from spirit at all hours of the day, every moment of the day, to help you adjust to the major events that are going on. Now, it is starting to rain a little bit here, speaking of which, I guess I came out at exactly the right moment. So I just wanted to say, have a gorgeous week. Enjoy June 11th. I believe it's a Saturday and the whole week as it builds up. It's actually a pretty quiet week in terms of the astro-numerology, but it is a lovely time to just get inspired by beauty and by what really matters, the simple things in life. So lots of love from me, and don't forget you have a star code as well, and you can discover your own personal blueprint at starcodeclass.com. It's a free masterclass all about your birthday and birth certificate name, your destiny, your purpose, looks like your astrology as well. It's really fun. You get a handout. So go enjoy that when you have a moment or when you have 90 minutes, that is, at starcodeclass.com. So have a beautiful week. Thank you for joining me, and I'll see you next week. Talking dick back to you, Richard. I hope you know that we can't hear you, Richard, if you're talking. <laughs> All right, then. Hello. Oh, there we go. Hello. 
Hello, hello. All right, here's here's what I want to do first here. Uh, look at the full moon chart. The first the first thing that came to mind was let's let's look at this Mars conjunct Chiron at at sixteen Aries. And sixteen Aries. Now this is the second half of the first sign, and in his book, An Astrological Mandala, scene two is potency, and covers the section from 16 Aries to 30 Aries. Now, the picture here is nature spirits seen at work. In the light of sunset, and this is this is the uh, ability of the advanced human to become attuned to the potency of invisible forces of nature. And he says here, in the light of personal fulfillment symbol of sunset and wisdom, man may be able to establish a life-giving contact with natural forces. These are any time growth processes take place, but man's individualized mind is usually too focused on working for consciously set goals to be able to realize concretely the presence of invisible forces in operation. These forces constitute a specific realm of any planetary life. This is the called this is the diva evolution. And the divas are primarily um, uh, builders and assemblers of, of energy formations. They are inherent in all biospheres on whatever planet. They are non-individualized and unfree energies forming in the substratum of all life processes, thus of the process of integration at the level of the planet as a whole. This would be the body of the planet, the etheric body of the whole planet, the planet as an organism with its automatic systems of growth, maintenance, and organic multiplication. In this planetary organism, those nature forces act as guiding and balancing hyphen harmonizing factors <clears throat> somewhat as and somewhat as the endocrine system does in a human body and behind this system the more hidden web of chakra energies related to prana which is solar energy it is when this energy becomes less dominant thus symbolically at sunset, 
when or when the body energy is weakened by illness, fasting, or sensory deprivation, that it becomes easier to perceive these nature spirits and to give them forms that symbolize the character of their activities. These forms differ with the cultural imagery of each human collectivity, retaining nevertheless some basically similar characteristics. When the Sabian symbol reaches into the consciousness of a human seeking meaning, it it should be seen as an invitation to open his mind to the possibility of approaching life in a holistic and non-rational, intuitive manner. This implies a call to repotentialization. What this means also is the process of becoming like a little child, in quotes. So that's your Mars Chiron. All right, now right next to that, (coughs) the Jupiter in six degrees. This is the influence for the full moon. Yes. Uh, A square with one of its sides brightly illuminated. The emotional desire for concrete and stabilized existence as a person. And this, I mean, this is just the the sixth degree, the sixth the sixth item of the entire cycle, right? This desire for individualization operates at first as a one-pointed or one-sided drive focusing itself upon an exclusive... Wait a minute. Yeah. This, this, This desire for individualization operates at first as a one-pointed or one-sided drive, focusing itself upon an exclusive goal. All emotions are at first possessive, and all cultural manifestations operate on the principle of exclusion. Cultural manifestations operate on the principle of exclusion. It's like self and not self, and it's, you know, not not all that good at the cultural level. All that does not belong to the tribal sphere, one blood, one land, one folk, is the potential enemy. This is a necessary phase for the first attempt at building an inner realization of integrated being may be defeated at any time by the regressive pull toward 
undifferentiation and the prenatal state of non-individualization within the vast womb of nature or within unformed cosmic space. This is a. Uh, this presents the theme which will be dialectically developed a five phase dialectical process, a one sided urge for inner stability. So that's a, that's a highly emotional thing. Now, as adults, we, we've all been through this phase, you know, a, as a child, you know, we ran our parents ragged when we were, you know, doing this thing and becoming an individual, you know, from a, you know, from a helpless infant. But we got that going for us. All right, we got time for one more. And what do I like? I think I'm going to go with, let's go with uh, Taurus, 18, 19, and 20 degrees. That's Venus conjunct Uranus. All right. Taurus, 18, 19, and 20 degrees here. Uh, 18 degrees. Keynote, the cleansing of the ego consciousness. A woman airing an old bag through the open window of her room. The traditional teachings concerning man's nature are somehow reconciled with the youthful enthusiasm that season every problem of growth an issue between the good and the bad. In quotes, the symbol suggests that the real enemy is within the mind, it is the ego and its attachment to possessions that is the real enemy in the mind. The mind is shown in the likeness of the bag now empty and needing to be aired in the sunlight. But the window must first be opened and the bag emptied. All right, so we've got a theme here of mental baggage and the necessity to clean it out from time to time. 19 degrees. A new continent rising out of the ocean. And the keynote is the surge of new potentiality after the crisis. Well, pick your crisis, pick your timeline, right? The symbol need hardly be commented upon. When the mind has been emptied and light has been called upon to purify the consciousness, freed from its attachment to contaminations, a new release of life can emerge out of the infinite ocean of potentiality. 
the Virgin of Space, what will it be used for? That's all he says about that one. Uh, 20 Taurus. 20 Taurus. Wisp of wing-like clouds streaming across the sky. Here we here we go back to that that uh, that uh, Aries one. The awareness of spiritual forces at work. Any emergence of life potentialities from the depth of the vast unconscious is answered by the spiritual activity of superconscious forces in a cosmic kind of antiphony. The individual who has taken a new step in his evolution should look for the signature, in quotes, of divine powers confirming his process. It may reveal the meaning of what is to come next. The wing-like clouds may also symbolize the presence of celestial beings blessing and subtly revealing the direction to take, the direction of the wind of destiny. Thus ends the reading for tonight, my friends. Everybody have a good week. I hope you enjoyed that. That was very fun, Richard. It was fun, and it's... it's, What book did you read that from? This is from an astrological mandala by Dane Rudyard. Oh, that's my favorite. Yeah, that's everybody. I I understand you can go to Karpacha's website, and under resources, you can find it uh, on the web. Somebody took the time to put it on the internet. Okay, an astrological, say the name of the book again. Mandala. Mandala, right, right, right. Okay, thank you. Colon, The Cycle of Transformations, and it's 360-degree symbolic phases. So, yeah. 360-degree what? Symbolic phases. Okay, thank you. I'm getting there with bright and faster. <laughs> well, man the, see, man the symbol user, right? It all, start, it all starts with Gemini, right, in the, in the development of uh, language. Right? <laughs> so we came up with this word tree, <laughs> and the word deer and the word fire. Oh yeah, I had another thought here. We got. I know we're over, but I know we got another minute. Here's another thought for you to meditate on this week. Take the word fire, rearrange the letters to spell out F I E R. No, F E 
false evidence appearing real. Yeah. Now, this false evidence, I had another one. I had a. I was gonna you don't it. have an A in fire. Yeah. But it can't. See here, here. Here's the here's the problem. We got we got two real serious challenges as humans. We have we have false evidence appearing from the astral plane of magnetic images, which was built by humans over millions of years. Okay, this is often the stuff you'll 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 get when you're asleep uh-huh. and then the other problem is illusions and for illusions I'm currently using those narratives coming from the matrix that are false false you heard the term false narratives and fake news uh-huh. Mental, All the time. mental constructs that may or may not be true. And the dark side uses false narratives for their purposes of selfishness and separation and division. So that we don't unify them, don't unify ourselves, and put them in their place. Anyway, keep yes. fighting against the dark side, over and out. <laughs> over and out, Richard. It's time to do the new now and let them all go. They have made their bed. Okay. Yep. Thank you, Richard. And until next week, have a great week. No, I've got little green tomatoes. Oh dear. <laughs> maybe oh. by the fourth. Maybe by. Yeah, I'm not going to get them by the fourth of July, but maybe by the first of August. They went in a little late this year. Anyway, bye bye. Bye bye. Okay, Rama. What's the phone number? We got to um, go to our conference call. Seven two zero seven one six seven three zero one, and the pin code is three five three eight six three pound. Okay, everyone, I'll read it one more time. Seven two zero seven one six seven three zero one, and the pin code is three five three. 863 pounds. See you there, and then we'll be right back here at BBS Radio. Best radio there is at the top of the next radio hour (laughs) coming up here. Uh, In the meantime, see you on the conference. Namaste, everyone. Aloha. (laughs) So, Rama, we should finish. It's about 11 minutes. Okay. You have it still at the right spot, right? Yeah. Oh, no, I was just going to say that um, uh-huh. uh, you have another Freddie Silva, right? Mm-hmm. What's that about? Um, I'm not sure. Oh, well, let's finish this. Okay.
Spaniard, go back a little bit. Okay, yeah, back up. Just a short, not too much. Lays a rest inside. That Bacal was a high initiate of the esoteric arts is revealed in the iconography of the sarcophagus lid, in which he is depicted in fetal position on the trunk of the world tree. Below him are the roots and creative forces of nature. Above, the fruit of the tree and the branches holding up the Milky Way. The keepers of the sacred books are portrayed along the edges, along with astronomical data. From beyond the grave, Akal whispers to us how he led the life of the true adept and became a mediator between the two worlds. Akal's son, Chambalan, followed his father's tradition by erecting a set of three graceful temples east of the river, replicating the establishment of celestial order by the creator god Ahab. Each building features elaborately carved reliefs depicting father and son standing east and west of the axis of heaven and earth, represented by a cross, the tree of life. Real and mythical history is recorded, along with instructional paths into Shibalba used by the king to bring back gifts of life and prosperity to his people. At the Temple of the Cross, a god guides Chambalam out of Shibalba and back to the physical world. The king has become a physical manifestation of the axis of heaven, emphasizing his role as the source of magical power. He was not just a practitioner of ritual connecting the two worlds, he represented the path itself, what the Maya called the way. In the third temple, Pakal hands his son the scepter of power while the Tree of Life rises from Orion, the place of creation. The scene demonstrates how the rituals continued by the sun provide for the rebirth of the father. Just as in Egypt, Horus represents a reborn Osiris, who is himself the earthly representation of Orion. Both father and son wear the ritual white apron worn by Egyptian pharaohs and later adopted in Freemasonry. Deeper into Guatemala lies Mutul, known to the Maya as the place of prognostication, a university reflecting the architecture of the cosmos, a ceremonial center where ancient teachers captured sounds from other realities. Today, it is known as Tikal. Tikal is home to the tallest Maya pyramid. Seven steep levels take you to a summit enclosure with walls 40 feet thick. Standing outside it and facing the jungle, the voice is amplified from behind and projected over the canopy of trees, in total violation of the known laws of sound. And no wonder, here the architects of the sky built one of the finest examples of sacred architecture. They are said to have come from the stars and spoke Hesuya Thao, the language of light. Teachers such as Kinish Muwaj, Shak Tok Ishak, and Ish Kalante made Tikal a temple city that united science, art, 
philosophy and religion as one, giving rise to its other title, The Place with the Sacred Voices. The Maya word for pyramid is Naku, House of the God, which also happens to be the name of the Egyptian gods, the Aku, the Shining Ones. Coincidentally, the angle of slope of Pyramid 4 is the same angle used in the interior passage of the Great Pyramid in Giza. The pyramid shape acts like a needle, collecting Earth's telluric currents, acupuncturing the ground and the human body, then linking with currents flowing beyond the atmosphere and into space. Along with the understanding of sacred geometry and mathematics, such buildings transmitted myths explaining how the universe works. The symbolism confirmed a divine order juxtaposed on social structure. Plazas and pyramids replicated in symbolic form the sacred language originally designed by the gods. Thus there were also places where communication between people and the gods took place. The design of courtyards, entrances and stairways spoke to the individual of where they were allowed to go and where they were not, and this was taught from childhood. The most restricted ritual temples and residences are reflected in their names. Pibna, the underground house. Consul, the conjuring place. And Kun, the sacred seat. While the historical buildings of Tikal date from around 1300 BC, they stand upon layers of previous structures thousands of years older. The Temple of the Jaguar Priest, for example, faces Orion in 3100 BC. The central court of Tikal is the main gathering place. It's a raised platform representing the mound of creation, while the pyramid at each end represents the division of elements and the elevation of life. One represents the feminine moon, the other the masculine sun. The two different heights reflect the difference between the solar and lunar calendars. The two are connected by up to nine underground levels beneath the courtyard. There, initiates would learn the mystery's teachings before appearing, like magic, at the top of either pyramid. One underground chamber features the bust of Itzamna, along with a frieze telling the story of the Its and how they escaped their sinking homeland in the Atlantic Ocean and their arrival in Central America. As for the rest of their story, it remains protected beneath a sea of jungle.
Okay, what do you want to do next, Drama? Mm. Uh, Regina Meredith of Vatican Exile on Reincarnation and Cosmology. Oh. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, I was... How can a priest barred from the Vatican help us explore reincarnation? I thought reincarnation was over on planet Earth. Mm-hmm. Just asking. Licensed clinician, psychologist, theologian, <clears throat> and priest Sean O. Lowry joins Open Minds to share his studies into the divine nature of the universe. After being dismissed by the Vatican, mm-hmm. O'Lowry embraced his existence as an evolved Catholic priest, exploring reincarnation and cosmology forbidden to traditional Roman Catholics. Laari's book, Setting God Free, explores how our mystical experiences can be part of our everyday lives, whether we consider ourselves spiritual or religious. Discussing the theories of Stan Groff, oh, Stanislaus Groff, Mm -hmm. and reincarnation as a universal experience, Laari explores the nature of epistemology, how we know what we know. Sharing how we can find the commonalities in our spiritual stories. Leauri says, regardless of where we come from, everyone can experience source or God energy. Want to go there? Okay. Okay, then let's do it. This is 40. 48 minutes. 48 minutes. Do you have a printout of what Freddie Silva's other one is? Reincarnation is probably the most important element in the trajectory of a soul in its learning to grow. You can't be prejudiced if you subscribe to reincarnation and you realize that whatever position I'm in now as a white Irish male, I've been in all of the other configurations in past lifetimes. So to be prejudiced against anybody in any configuration is absolutely meaningless. And Moses is probably the most important liberator that never existed. He has influenced more people to strive for their freedom than any character in history. So, and that's the purpose of the story. It's not about a fact, factual history. It's about creating a, a hero who could help them in present difficulty to survive what they're going through. Life is a game you know, that, that God is playing. I sometimes say that, you know, uh, life is a, is a dream that the ego is having. And the ego is a dream that the soul is having. And the soul is a dream that spirit is having. And spirit is a dream that source is having. So we live within nested dreams. And it's God dreaming of this. This is going to be a wonderfully wild ride. The back cover of Father Sean O'Lar's book, Setting God mm-hmm. Free, begins with a priest, a scientist, and a psychologist walk into a bar. The upshot is that he is a Catholic priest, a psychologist, and a scientist. 
And the place he's come to resonates very deeply for me. For one, the God of the Old Testament may not be the jealous and angry entity the Old Testament depicts, rather the shadow side of ourselves, the people who wrote the Bible. Sean, welcome so much. I've I've been with you before. I've had you on my other show. And I'm just so, um, I, I think, enchanted with not only the depth of your knowledge, um, because, it, and we're going to explain why you have such depth of knowledge in a moment, <laughs> um, but also your ability to tell stories. And that's because you're a natural storyteller. And I call you the Druid. Whenever and anyone hears me talk about you, I say, oh, yeah, the Druid's coming. Uh-huh. So first of all, Sean, welcome. Thanks a million. And you. let's talk about your own background growing up in Ireland okay. and being the eldest son of an eldest son of an eldest son Thanks. and how how... Uh, grandfather Jim came into your life. So um, I'm the firstborn of my parents, and both parents are the firstborns in their own families. Uh, so uh, I was actually raised by my grandparents for the first six years because my father was the eldest of his family, and his youngest brother, Noel, who is my uncle, is two months younger than me. So I was born in October 1946, and he was born in December 1946. So my grandmother wanted a companion for her youngest child. So she persuaded my mother to give me up temporarily. The temporary lasted for six years. And so I lived with my grandparents, my father's parents, and my great-grandmother, whom I called Muddy, for the first six years of my life. And then subsequently, I lived with the other grandparents where I met Daddy Jim. So Muddy, my great-grandmother, was like a Christian mystic. For her, Mother Mary was more real than you are to me right now, Regina. So she would talk out loud to Mother Mary and I'd be privy to these conversations. And then for age six until uh, uh, for the next four or five years, I lived with my grandfather, Daddy Jim, who was a druid, a great um, uh, fiddler, uh, a great boat organist, played the concert flute, the tin whistle, the clarinet, the squeeze box, and he was a great storyteller. So he filled me up with all the old Irish mythology. So between the two of them, I got this great cross-fertilization of kind of mystical Christianity, you know, and druidical mythology from ancient Ireland. So that was kind of the the background for the first 10 years. And so you're a natural-born storyteller. I love telling stories. <laughs> and you Absolutely. do. You tell them so well. Yeah. Okay, so you decided at some point to become a Catholic priest. Okay, let's talk about that journey all the way to Africa. So at age 18, uh, I entered the seminary, and I was actually really embarrassed about it because I was a real, in school, uh, I was good in school, but I was really good at the athletics. And I was really embarrassed about going to the seminary. And I was like, you know, what's the thing to do? But I knew I needed to do It's like what you do if you can't do sports, you exactly. go to the seminary. Exactly. <laughs> so I didn't even tell my parents that I was joining the priesthood. So uh, I come from a fairly poor family. So I needed to do a full physical in order to qualify to be accepted in the seminary. And so I go to my mother one day and I say, I need 10 shillings. 10 shillings is like, well, maybe $6. And she said, what do you need 10 shillings for? I said, I need to go to the doctor. What's wrong with you? It's not wrong with me. Why are you going to the doctor? There's nothing wrong with you. I need to do a full physical. Why are you doing a full physical? Because I'm going to go to the seminary in three months' time. So that was the first I brought it. <laughs> so I went to the seminary then at age 18. And a part of the seminary training was to attend the National University of Ireland. So I did a bachelor of science degree, a double major in pure mathematics and mathematical physics. And then in the seminary, I studied philosophy, theology, scripture, and community development. Spent eight years there. And then at age 26, uh, I was released on Africa. <laughs> you were released on Africa. Uh, now, why did you uh, decide to go on a mission? 
I knew Rather I didn't, than yeah, in Ireland. Exactly. I knew I didn't want to be a priest in Ireland for some reason. I was fascinated with the sense of uh, adventure. Uh, I wanted to live in kind of uh, exciting places in very, very primitive conditions, which, you know, Africa was at that stage. We were talking about uh, uh, 1964 when I joined the seminary. Uh, so I wanted to be in a kind of, uh, I wanted to live in the jungle or in the desert or place where there was wildlife and where, you know, people hadn't heard of Christ and I was going to kind of save these lost souls and bring them to heaven with me. Yeah. <laughs> how naive. Okay, very naive. So how long did that last? So here you are, 26. Okay. <laughs> you end up in Africa. Yeah. Okay, you were in Kenya? In Kenya. You were in Kenya. Yeah. And you're there to convert the native people, right? Right. How'd that go? Well, it's very interesting because I'm almost fascinated by folklore, mythology, and proverbs. And in actual fact, uh, the second last year in high school, between my junior and high and senior years, I spent the three months vacation in a place in Ireland, a little village called Cooley, which in which Ireland, Irish is the native language there. And I was collecting proverbs from the old people there. And I collected 432 proverbs. And one of the things an old man said to me, he said, you know, if Christianity had never come to Ireland, we could live according to the proverbs. And he was absolutely right. The native proverbs. The native proverbs. Yes. Because the, uh, the, the archive wisdom of a culture is their stories, proverbs, and mythology. And so if you really want to know the wisdom of any group of people, look at their proverbs. The proverbs are like the distillation of the stories. Mm-hmm. So the stories can be epics, you know, taking days even to tell. But the proverbs are the distillation. And so as soon as I hit Kenya and I began to learn, I had the privilege of learning four different Kenyan languages and delving into the mythology of people I worked with, I began to realize as I connected the proverbs of, uh, of uh, Kenya that I could say the same thing about Kenya, that uh, if Christianity had never come to Kenya, they could live according to the proverbs. So that was a real kind of a volte facie for me, a 180, a realization that my job was not to convert, you know, um, Africa to Christianity, it was the cross-fertilized different wisdom traditions. And so I became what Carol Jung would subsequently call a Gnostic intermediary, mm-hmm. somebody who was well-versed in two very different systems and cross-fertilized them to their mm-hmm. mutual benefit. So that I saw was my, was my job, to learn the mythology, the language, the folklore, the proverbs, and to share my, the wisdom of my uh, Catholic upbringing with them mm-hmm. and so that we could develop a kind of a hybrid in which people could uh, create a cosmology drawing on very many different wisdom traditions instead of being just narrowly focused on the right. single tradition. So just yeah. to distill it down, what do you feel you brought that best served the public there and what did they bring to you that best served you in the expansion of knowledge? Well, it's interesting in fairness to the kind of the missionary endeavor in general. It wasn't just about, you know, kind of converting people to Christianity. Mm-hmm. Catholic missionaries particularly were very, very involved in agriculture, in medicine, in education, mm-hmm. in family relief, in water production. So I was involved in all those areas in really trying to ameliorate the kind of the, the living conditions under which most people live there. Right. And so Christianity uh, was part of the package in a sense, but it wasn't the main thrust mm-hmm. in any sense of the word. So... What I was bringing was... It was really uh, humanitarian. Uh, very much so. Mm-hmm. So I was bringing a possibility of, you know, improving life, um, improving longevity, saving little children from dying very, very early, as well as, you know, uh, the uh, wisdom tradition that I was brought up in. What they taught me was Africa has this extraordinary ability to laugh at life. Yeah, and they have this extraordinary self-confidence. I've never in my life met an African with, with a poor self-image unless they were trained 
by Europeans, unless they went through a European education system in which they were taught to kind of self-doubt. But I've never met an African who wasn't, you know, and say, you could ask him anything, can you do X? Absolutely. Can you fill in this? Absolutely. Can you kind of fix the car? Absolutely. They'll never say no. They're willing to give it a shot. So there's this supreme self-confidence, you know, That's there's beautiful. no self-esteem. So I learned that. Also, they're literally their family values. That family is really, really important in Africa. And the ability to survive in all kinds of circumstances. For a long time, I was uh, running a hostel for physically disabled children, mainly polio kids, mm-hmm. you know, and I never heard any one of these kids ever complain about their circumstances. In fact, we had a soccer team, and these kids were using crutches, running around the field, you know, trying to kick a soccer ball, mm-hmm. and one little kid was on his hands and knees, walking on his hands and knees, and you know, trying to head the ball in the ground, mm-hmm. and so they would never complain. So the ability, the extraordinary ability to survive whatever vicissitude life threw at them, and to laugh through it. Yeah, so I learned all those things. Wow, we up far from that plumb line. That's been educated right out of us. Absolutely. Another yeah. thing you learn, and I've learned from previous conversations with you, is uh, about the whole notion of reincarnation, which was not something at the time that you necessarily gave weight to as a Catholic priest. And this is real. This comes up in your life as turning out to be rather important. <laughs> because you turn into essentially a renegade or a rebel. Yes, so let's talk about how that happened before we start going into your book, which is just amazing. So how did you learn about reincarnation through the Africans? So the peoples I lived with, I lived with three different Kalenjin tribes, the Kitsugis, the Tugan, and the Nandi. Uh, and all of them had this uh, fascinating system where a child was given three different names at birth. The first name had to do with the circumstances of the birth, so if I asked a child, for instance, Kigorena, uh, you know, what is your name? And she says to me, Kigorena uh, Jerubet, I knew immediately she was born during a famine, just by the name. If I asked a little boy, Kigorena, what is your name? And he said to me, Kigorena Kipchirchir, I knew immediately that there was a lot of problems around the birth and that people were fussy about that it was a dangerous time. So the circumstances of the birth was the first name that was given. So I knew immediately the circumstances. The second name was... Uh, it was called the porridge name, Gainatat Musarek. And it was the name that only the mother could use of the child. And if the child was being obstreperous in some way, the mother would use a special name and the child would immediately quieten down. I saw warriors come back from cattle raids, you know, fired up at the battle of a cattle, cattle safari. And the mother would use the porridge name and the boy would quieten down immediately. That was the second name. And the third name, they would start, they would bring in an elder from the, uh, the tribe and to name out all of the ancestors of this particular baby. And when the baby sneezed, they said, ah, that's the ancestor who's coming back. So they're recycling, they're coming back. And so I thought this was just a really interesting grain custom. Yes, but it ended up taking on more meaning than that. Much deeper meaning. I came to the States in 1987 to pursue a PhD in psychology. And uh, early on, I did a seminar with a woman called Barbara Finn Dyson on what's called perinatal uh, issues. And it's based on Stan Groff's work. On, uh, Stanley Groff. Yes, yes and yeah. I, I interviewed him many, many years Brilliant. ago and went through the workshop that I think exactly. you talking about. Well, I went through this workshop, and the, the idea was that he talked about this idea of basic perinatal matrices, which was a belief system that there are four critical stages to the birth process. If I think it, the first may have been the contractions as they begin. The second is the baby turning to engage the head in the birth canal. The, second, the third is squeezing through the birth canal. And the fourth is coming out in the umbilical cord caught in all these bright lights. And he claimed that uh, adult neurotic behavior 
you know, correlates very closely to the particular period at which the child experienced the most difficulty during mm-hmm. the birthing process. So I'm expecting I'm going to experience this. And everybody in the group, there were 23 of us doing this workshop, everybody in the group had the experience of experiencing a difficulty during their own birth process. And I'm expecting the same thing when it comes to my turn. Instead, I had this experience of being a young Tibetan woman giving birth to our firstborn child. And it was so real, I literally had pains in my thighs for four or five days afterwards. And this totally rocked me because it was an experience. And I know from epistemology that there are three ways we know stuff. The first one is an authority figure tells us and we believe them. The second one is we experience stuff for ourselves. And the third one is, you know, we figure stuff out on our own. And so here was an experience I could not doubt. It was absolutely real. And subsequently through self-hypnosis and through visionary experiences, I've recovered memories from about 11 other lifetimes. And so I had no doubt whatsoever that for a whole bunch of reasons, psychological reasons, theological reasons, sociological reasons, uh, in- reincarnation is probably the most important element in the trajectory of a soul in its learning to grow. Because you can't be prejudiced if you subscribe to reincarnation and you realize that whatever position I'm in now as a white Irish male, I've been in all of the other configurations in past lifetimes. So to be prejudiced against anybody in any configuration is absolutely meaningless. And the best way I know to let go of prejudice is to come to the realization I don't just I don't just kind of think what is it like to be that person, to be female or to be a slave in Africa in the thirteen hundreds, you know, or to be a shaman, you know, in North America in the ninth uh, century. But to have been in those places and experienced life in those places, uh, I can't be prejudiced at this stage from being Catholic or being Irish or being male. Doesn't make any sense. So I don't know of any other way that it solves so many theological problems, so many sociological problems, so many psychological problems, and it does work completely with prejudices of all kinds. I think that's why I resonated so deeply when I first heard some of your homilies online when another interviewee turned me on to you a while back, and he said, you've got to meet this guy. I think he would make a great interview. And then after we did our first interview on my side, I started hearing from other people, and they remembered you. One lady said, I met him in Lourdes. And in, in the 70s, I never forgot him. And everybody kept having this impression of you as this kind of exquisite thinker, you know, as a philosopher and as an inspiration. So I've since been lucky enough to have conversations with you and find out more about your thinking on this. But this very part of you that is that open to ultimate truths, um, this reincarnation thing we'll talk about a little later because it did get you in trouble with the church. Um, and they, you know, we've always heard it bandied about that reincarnation was part of the original documents but was removed uh, ostensibly for reasons of maintaining power over the people. And when we go back to epistemology, we're talking about from God on high and learning from authority figures. And this takes us right into your book. So let's start going into setting God free. What made you decide to write that? And then I'll just set it up. You write it as a trial. Yahweh's on trial. The God of the Old Testament's on trial. And you have some very snappy figures in this. And and a couple of them kind of represent you uh, in the court case. Um, mugging it up for the jury, trying to get laughs out of the jury (laughs) and doing their analysis. It's very funny, but it's very scholarly at the same time. So why did you decide to write Setting God Free? Okay. So I began to say, you know, that 
this as people read through the Hebrew scriptures particularly, and indeed some parts of the New Testament even, there there are these what are euphemistically called the difficult passages. Yeah. Difficult as in genocidal, maniac, pathological, liar, covenant breaker, you know. Uh, and you kind of skip over those. And typically on a Sunday, the readings that are presented to the community are a select group of readings from those scriptures and they ignore or leave out the other pieces. And I began to see, you know, uh, how can you just skip over these pieces and not acknowledge that this book, both the Hebrew scriptures and the, and the Christian scriptures, have been used to ju- justify all kinds of inquisitions, all kinds of conquistadores, all kinds of kind of crusades, all kinds of pogroms against particularly the Jewish the Jewish nation. And I began to realize, you know, uh, I'm going to have to go right through this and find out if there are a third explanation. The first explanation is this guy is a total maniac, you know, and there's no point in believing in, in, in him. And the second point is, you know, there is no God whatsoever. So we're faced between a choice between the devil and the deep blue sea. You either subscribe to this God and you develop a fear-based dogmatic religion, or you cast this God away and you create a world of atheism, meaninglessness, that it came from nothing and is going nowhere. The soul is a mirage. Consciousness is simply an epiphenomenon of biochemical activities in the brain, you know, and it's going nowhere really quickly. And so we're caught between these two pieces. And it reminded me of this, um, the Stockholm Syndrome. It was an event that happened in 1973 in Sweden where bank robbers took four hostages and they're held hostage for several days. And finally, the police break in and set them free. But when they're freed, the hostages refuse to give evidence against the captors because they have somehow a kind of, for to relieve some form of cognitive dissonance, that to align with the belief systems of the captors. But much more importantly, I just found out, the police were so brutal in, in freeing these people, the police seemed to have little interest in the captives and all the interest in capturing the criminals. Mm-hmm. And so the captors have felt so badly done by, by the police that they refused to give evidence against their, their, their captors. Now, I see that we're caught in the same bind. We're either caught with a kind of a fundamentalist, fear-based theology that's afraid to upset this God, and so we cling on to him, and the alternative is to abandon this God, and there's nothing to replace it. Right. You know, there's this atheism of meaninglessness in our times. And I, I began to feel there must be a third, you know, way through this. It can't be just these two alternatives. So I decided I was going to through this, I was going to harvest this book, and I was calling, calling in experts, Bible scholars, archaeologists, psychologists, contract lawyers, mythologists, to try to find out, is there a third way of kind of harvesting this extraordinary cache of material to find out what it really represents and that it could be inspirational when it's done in this case? So that was the reason for, for the book. So... You first of all, you have you just have a little bit of it. When we did our other interview, I said people think you're saying guide when you're saying God. This is your Irish accent. So you've been saying God the whole time, okay? And so source. I think you're just yeah source. That works source because that's the other term that you use. So what is your so first of all, start with what is your definition of God? So and when I think about it. I see this extraordinary transition since Homo sapiens sapiens evolved, which is about seventy thousand years ago. So we had hominids for millions of years, and then we had Homo sapiens beginning about 300,000 years ago, but Homo sapiens didn't have language. Mm-hmm. Only 70,000 years ago, Homo sapiens sapiens developed language, and language is the ability to manipulate symbols intracranially and give rise to a, a spoken word that represents the ideology of the mind. So once we developed that, the first use to which we put it was storytelling. And so I see there were four eras uh, in this 
we began to ask the questions, who put us here? Who's responsible for all this? Where did we come from? And where do we go when we die, when we shuffle off this mortal coin? So the first era is, I call the era of the theologians. These were people who began to try to figure out who are the gods, and it was always plural at that stage. Who are they? Where do they reside? What's their shtick? So I would call that the era of the theologians. The second was the era of the priests. They now have figured out some kind of a theology. Now they want a relationship with these gods. So they create prayer and ritual of various kinds. And that's the era of the priests. The third era is the era of the prophets. There are now individual people who purport to represent the viewpoint of these gods and to speak on behalf of these gods to the nation. They're prophets, so they speak on behalf of the gods. And the fourth one are the mystics, who they don't speak about the gods, and they're not speaking to the gods, and they're not speaking on behalf of the gods, they're speaking as God. Because they realize that ultimately there is only a source. I've said famously before that everything that exists is simply God and drag. We are holographic fractals of source. Mm-hmm. And so source is the isness, yeah. you know, uh, mm-hmm. it is the part that the mystics realize, you know, you can't even speak about it because it's an, an ineffable reality. Yes. You can experience it. totally incomprehensible and inarticulatable. Mm-hmm. You can experience it, but you cannot articulate it. And so the ultimate position is not even the mystic. There's a fifth group, and that's the non-dual mystic who won't open her mouth at all and just experience what it is and radiate the isness of God you know, through the way in which she lives her life. Yeah. So uh, apart from that, any description of God is going to have to be parabolic, in other words, story form. Yes. Myth or parable, you know, or storytelling. Mm-hmm. That's the only way we could engage with this experience of the divine. Thank you for yeah. that. So we have your understanding and we can go from there as a platform. So when you talk, when you get into the trial, is McDermott the name of the chief <laughs> witness for the prosecution? Okay. He's, he's kind of like you okay. and he's hemming it up for the jury, not understanding. Right. The court's not impressed that he's trying right. to get laughter and, right. you know, consensus from the jurors. But basically some of the stories in the Old Testament are so absurd. There is no other track you could take in handling this. So you applied psychology, yeah. uh, mathematics, and such to the scriptures. So we're only going to be able to grab a couple pieces out because of time constraints. But let's just look at Exodus, the story of Exodus, for example. So you take the story of Exodus, for instance, and purportedly, according to the scriptures, uh, 603,550 military Israelites escaped from Egypt. Now, if you think that there are men between the age of 20 and 60, perhaps. So there are boys before that, and there are older men after that, and then there are all the females in the room. So you're talking about a group of at least 2 million people allegedly escaped from the greatest empire of the day who controlled Egypt, who controlled the entire Sinai Peninsula. And they wandered in the desert for 40 years, unbeknownst to these Egyptians. And God kills the firstborn of all the Egyptians to set the Israelites free. Now, I've calculated the mathematician in me. If they were socially distancing, so there's 2 million people escaped from Egypt. It's 263 miles from Cairo to Jerusalem. So if they're walking ten abreast and they're socially distancing six feet apart, mm-hmm. the first group is going to be in Jerusalem before, before the last, last group stays <laughs> at home. So that's the kind Quite of procession. Right. It wouldn't go unnoticed. It wouldn't go unnoticed. The Egyptian army and that period of Egyptian history, allegedly this event took place in the year 1250 BCE and lasted for 40 years before they entered the Promised Land in 1210 BCE. Egypt controlled all the territory up to Turkey in the north and Mesopotamia in the east. Mm-hmm. And somehow the uh, two million people wandering around the desert with their flocks escaped their notice. 
Now, in the meantime, God is so upset with the, these people that they're con- constantly catching and complaining about them that he decides that of all those who leave Egypt, only two people are going to make it into the land of Canaan, Caleb and Joshua. So you've got two million bodies scattered all over the Sinai Peninsula. Now, in 1967, when the uh, Israelis, when the four Arab nations attacked Israel, and in six days, Israel defeated it, and they recaptured the Sinai Peninsula. And there were uh, a deluge of Israeli archaeologists descended on the Sinai to find evidence of the Exodus. Mm-hmm. And they went through a fine tooth comb. They didn't find a single animal bone or a single human bone. And particularly around Mount Sinai, where they had encamped allegedly for two years, and where Moses is given the covenant, you know, they camped there for oh about two God. years. There wasn't a single bone of a, a donkey, a cow, a human being anywhere to be found. And it wasn't that there, it was so long ago, they couldn't find the evidence. They found evidence of previous civilization, previous nomadic pastors who had passed through the area because their equipment is so sensitive at this stage. And many of the towns which allegedly the uh, escapees demolished in the process, they didn't even exist at that stage mm-hmm. for hundreds of years afterwards. So what yeah. is the implication for both Christian and Jewish doctrine and, and the belief systems? And that is where I brought in the mythologist. This is the important piece of here. When I, uh, I looked at the defense, how do you defend Yahweh in this instance? The realization was that uh, you can't understand the Bible until you understand storytelling. And the objective of storytelling is threefold. Stories allow you to survive uh, in the present moment, no matter what the vicissitude that you experience. It allows you to survive the present circumstances. It gives you an explanation for the past. So you either recall past events or you make up past events. And it gives you the kind of the, the hope that you'll survive it in the future. So all the great storytellers, they create uh, origin myths. We have it in Ireland, the Tuatadanan of Ireland. Yes. Go back thousands of years before the Celts, you know, our creation myth. So we create a creation myth. The Big Bang is a creation myth that science has created. Right. I don't believe for a moment in the Big Bang. No, I don't the, big, the Big Bang was a song God made clapping. It should give birth to the cosmos. Yeah. That's what the Big Bang is. And we'll find that out at some stage. So we have to create stories that give us a sense of where we came from. And we have to create, you know, great heroes and heroines that to give us inspiration that we can survive present difficulties. So the myth of the Exodus is actually fashioned during a real period in uh, uh, Hebrew history from 589 BCE to 539 BCE, when the last two tribes of Israel are in exile in Babylon. Babylon has overcome the great Assyrian Empire, which had demolished the 10 northern tribes of Israel in the year 721 BCE. There were only two tribes left, Benjamin and Judah, and now it looks like they're going to be demolished as well. So at this stage, they they pull together all the stories they've had from the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, in which God has given different names. In the south, he's called Yahweh, you would hear Vuvheh, in the north, he's called Elohim, and Elohim is a plural. It means mm-hmm. the powerful ones. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not even a singular mm-hmm. noun. They bring together all these stories and they combine them into what will then be called the Pentateuch, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they will invent a character called Moses. They need a liberator. And Moses is probably the most important liberator that never existed. He has influenced more people to strive for their freedom than any character in history. So, and that's the purpose of the story. It's not about a fact, factual history. It's about creating a, a hero who could help them in prison difficulty to survive what they're going through. And they create this myth of an exodus from Egypt that allegedly happened between 1250 BCE and 1210 BCE. And then they're creating it in 539 BCE. 
And at this stage, Cyrus the Great, who is the emperor of Persia, has overthrown the Babylonians and is setting the Israelites free to go back into the land of Israel. Yeah. Now, in actual fact, only 50,000 went back. Most of them opted to stay in Babylon. But now they're facing a real exodus. And they're going to have to go back and they're going to have to build the temple, rebuild the temple, which was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 589 BC. Yeah. And so they're going to have to start from scratch. So they're going to need a real exodus. So they invent this exodus story from Moses and it gives them the courage and the inspiration to do what they did. And now 2,500 years later, well, that people are still uh, flourishing. That makes sense. It's yeah. like songs of war to be able to bond together and find your purpose and move forward into a challenging circumstance. So it makes perfect sense. The other part of this too is the Egyptians were known to be meticulous record keepers. So all of these events, all having their firstborn sons slain, all of this would have shown up somewhere in Egyptian records because they did keep record and those, a lot of those still exist. There is no mention of any of this. So the Exodus is a fabrication to help people much later, 700 years or so down the line, contend with an actual movement back toward their yeah. land. Right? Wow. Very important. Okay, right. That's good. Okay, sure. thank you. And along these journeys in, in these books, massive amount of sacrifice, bloodshed, hardship, horrible, horrible acts of a mean and angry God. So let's talk yeah. about that because as you get further into the book, and I encourage everyone to read this book, um, it, 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 it lays it lays waste to taking on in a dogmatic fashion any of these texts any longer because it's you, what you're doing is pointing away towards something much more gracious and kind and compelling in the end, which is starting a new way of seeing spirit beyond religion. So that's where it's headed. Meanwhile, as you're deconstructing all of this, talk a little bit about this the bloodshed, the bloodthirst of the gods, and what you feel that was depicting of the human shadow. Okay. And so uh, in the book itself, I divided this kind of uh, pathological genocidal divinity. You know, I looked at individual murders for which he was responsible, and then mass murders of his own people, mm-hmm. and then mass murders of other people's, and then even genocidal efforts. And so again and again and again, he's killing individuals, you know, among his chosen people for uh, some kind of a, you know, a, a failure to keep his law. So, for instance, he's asked Moses to go back into Egypt to set his people free. And on the way back, Moses is married uh, to a non-Jewish woman at the time, and he has uh, uh, two sons. And God attempts to kill Moses on the way back to Egypt because he hasn't circumcised his sons. Now, yeah. the fact is, circumcision didn't arrive for hundreds of years after Moses' putative existence. And so his wife, a woman called Zipporah, has to take a knife and circumcise the two boys on the spot to oh. save God from killing Moses. Okay, yeah. don't get a Circumcision, what yeah. was that about? Okay. And why was that carried over into the Christian world? Okay. And why does this persist to this day? I, I, I joke sometimes that, you know, it's a, an amazing thing that people were prepared to trade, that God was prepared to trade you know, a covenant for foreskins. Yeah. What kind of a fetish you had? I have no idea. Oh, the, the, it's just, I mean, what was the point? I, yeah. I just don't get this still. I never have. Uh, obviously, uh, circumcision came out at a much later stage in human development and was practiced actually by the peoples among whom I lived as well. So for whatever reasons, it came out of... You mean, in, in Kenya? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what was the purpose there? It was an initiation rite. So it happened for boys, you know, at the beginning of puberty. And it was a trial that they could endure that kind of kind of uh, physical assault oh. without crying crying out. Oh. And so it was basically many, many different peoples throughout human history 
have put young boys particularly in situations of being in danger of dying to prove their kind of their virility and their strength that they, they wouldn't cry. So this was one such custom. Now that's kind of retroactively put put back. To do it to yeah. a two-day-old baby, yeah, two-year-old baby. Yes. And to pretend that it doesn't hurt the child. Oh. That's what it was. But initially it was a, a rise of initiation and it's still practiced in, in Kenya as such. Young boys at age 12 or 13 are taken off for a few months and they're inducted into warriorhood and they undergo this trial, you know, to see if they're fit for being warriors. Yeah. But that was just one instance of, oh. you know, uh, God kills 3,000 people for dancing naked around a golden calf after Moses has lost some mountains for 40 days uh, to get the covenant. At one stage, you know, um, God kills the two sons of uh, Aaron uh, because they're newly ordained priests and on their first day uh, as being priests, they mess up a ritual and God kills the two of them. Oh. And the father is the, uh, Aaron is the father and God says to him, don't cry and don't touch their dead bodies, I'll kill you as well. He's and people are still trying to get in his good favor. <laughs> exactly. So he kills, there's one, uh, there's one passage in the book, in the second book of Chronicles in chapter 14, ridiculous story, that God allegedly killed one million Ethiopians. I don't know what misdemeanor. He killed one million Ethiopians. It's, it is yeah. laughable. Yeah, totally. And so the way that the prosecution reduces it right. through their star witness right. is hysterical. Absolutely. I just have to say it's hysterical as he counts us all up, right? And that's based on your personality yeah. and your storytelling. Yeah. But so now as we get on in the book, I, I don't want to, we can't go into too many of these because there's a lot of, there are a lot of examples, scholarship, units of measurement. Noah's Ark is very interesting. You said it gives a whole new meaning to poop deck. <laughs> Noah's Ark itself, although we know there was a deluge. And so let's go on now to what you were trying to, what you're trying to move past and move toward in the latter part of the book. And I want to read a couple of things you said. So now we get into um, not even the New Testament. We're getting into Yeshua or Jesus. You say, personally, I don't believe that Jesus was a Christian, nor did he come to found a new religion. Rather, he came to fan into flames the mystical embers that lie at the heart of each one of us. And that's really what you're doing Absolutely. in your lifetime Absolutely. as well. So you say in a very well-articulated way that religion as we know it really now, it, you as a Catholic priest say, yeah. we need to get rid of it. Absolutely. Yeah. And let's start talking about what you're building toward. And then mm-hmm. oh, let me read one more of your statements. Sure. Okay, this is what you said. To avoid the ages-old cycle, and this is the ages-old cycle. Someone has a spiritual yeah. experience. Charismatic prophet then shows up. Then has then we develop community. Then there's the death of the prophet. Then organizations and oligarchy. Then theology, dogma, crusades against any outsiders, inquisitions against insiders, and voila. A new prophet. Yes. And that's how the cycle has gone yes. historically. Right. Just talk about that for a moment why we've got right. to let this go. So I've seen this. This is true not just of religions and certainly not just of the, the Christian religion. I've seen it of all organizations. Yes. That what starts off as an extraordinary insight as a way of reaching out to help suffering humanity very, very quickly. You know, it's built around some kind of a charismatic individual who attracts, you know, followers of some kind. Uh, almost inevitably, uh, he's killed, a Martin Luther King figure or a Mahatma Gandhi figure or a Jesus figure, they're killed. Then there's an organization that grows up around the memory of this individual. The organization is taken over by some kind of a self-appointed oligarchy who now put themselves in charge. They now begin very, very uh, uh, slowly to change the teaching. It's just like, you know, the original uh, prophet said, we need to move, you know, a march towards the east. The next guy says, well, he didn't actually mean the, the east. He 
he meant um, north, northeast. So let's shift a little bit. That's what he actually meant. The next guy comes along and says, he didn't actually mean north, northeast. He meant north. So we shift to north. Next guy says, well, actually, he was talking actually about going northwest. That's really what he was talking about. And the guy next guy said, actually, there was a miscalculation. He meant west. Yeah. And there were 180 yeah. degrees out from it. And that's what happens in organizations. And you have, have to, it happens in every organization of human beings that goes through these stages. And some new prophet arises to call us back, like a Francis of Assisi in the 1200s, who's calling, you know, the Christian church back into the message and the vision of Jesus Christ. And within 200 years, the group that he founds, the Franciscans, are in charge of the Inquisition. They're pulling people apart, literally, on, yes. the, on the rack. And so again and again, and I see this tendency of human beings to have uh, great movements um, shredded, you know, by organizations. So if you want to send... For, for the moment, I can, I can say something else about that if you wish. Please go ahead. Okay. We have a few minutes left, and I want to get Please. to you about the subject of, of temptation and perfection. Sure. One of the things I did in Kenya was um, uh, I lived in, a, in an area where there was a constant famine, a semi-desert area, and so water production was a huge issue for me. I spent a lot of time uh, creating water projects to bring water to villages, and mostly very successfully. But on two occasions, I remember... One occasion, we piped water over a interior project from a source to a village. And we turn on the water in the, in the village square in the morning, two years into the work, and nothing comes out. And we go back along the pipe, it's just PVC piping, plastic piping. And a warrior from a different you know, tribe who didn't get a water project had just traversed the pipe with a spear, sticking holes in it, all the way, and the water just spouting out. And so uh, in the second project, we had piped water successfully, and we turned on the water, it flowed copiously, everybody drank from it, and two days later, everybody is down with dysentery because the source from which we were taking the water was polluted. Yeah. And that became a great image for me that the pipes represent the systems we create and the water represents the people who staff the systems. If you've got good systems with corrupt people, you're going to poison the consumer. Mm-hmm. If you've got bad systems with good people, the consumer, the product doesn't even reach the consumer. Right. So it has to be both good... Uh, a good structure and good people. So there has to be a commitment on behalf of the people uh, to transform themselves as individuals and to create systems that reflect that transformation. But you can't have one and not the other. Yes. Otherwise, they'll just corrupt each other. Right. And so whether we're talking about uh, uh, revamping, you know, or medical models or educational systems or religious systems, it needs to be both a commitment on the part of the individuals to self-transformation and a commitment to transform the systems that deliver the, the commodity to the consumer. And I think it's fair to say globally, we're in desperate need of both sides to transform um, in all of the ways you just spoke of. You wrote something, and I wanted to talk to you about this, and it's a kind of a non sequitur, but we only have a few minutes left, and you and I are going to have more conversations, including a series of conversations about the nature of good and evil in the very truest sense of the word, which I can't wait for that. Meanwhile, you have here... Um, we're going to talk about temptation. Okay. Without temptation, we would be robots pre-programmed to be good. One who is unconsciously good is simply lucky. One who is unconsciously evil is simply asleep. Mm. One who is consciously evil is pathological. And one who is consciously good is enlightened, which is an entirely new definition of enlightenment, thinking we're going to somehow transcend into another dimension and we'll just be gossamer in appearance. That's not what it's about. So let's talk about this and our 
especially in new age communities, this seeking perfection isn't, I don't think it's even the right journey to seek perfection. I would like you to talk about right. it. So the word perfection, this our Jesus says in the Hebrew, in the New, New Testament, he says, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And I thought, what does that mean? And the New Testament is written in Greek. And the word that's used is, for perfection is the word telos, from which we get the English word teleology. And teleology means to be attracted toward a goal. That's what it means. So perfection consists in being committed to the purpose for which I incarnated. It has nothing got to do with a stainless steel sinlessness. Nada to do with that. So it's very related then to the word of um, sin, for instance. In, again, in the New Testament, the word sin is a metaphor that's taken from archery. It means literally just to miss the mark. Mm. Now, missing the mark is hugely important because the essence of learning is repetition and feedback. The yes. two aspects, repetition and feedback. Yes. You learn things by hearing it again and again and again. You learn to ride a bicycle by doing it again and again and again. And you improve your performance by the feedback from your previous efforts. So if you're playing darts, for instance, if you go to an English pub and they're throwing darts at a dartboard and I were to hang a sheet across the middle of the room and say, you have to throw the darts over the sheet and you can't actually see the dartboard. I know you're throwing darts and you have no idea where they land. There is no way you can improve your, your aim because when you throw a dart, you say, oh, I'm throwing too far to the left or too high. I can adjust my aim. So sin is the system whereby we are given feedback from our previous efforts to improve our aim. So perfection is being committed to improving my aim by doing better each time I see where my dart lands. So both sin and perfection are misunderstood completely in the Christian scriptures. It's a feedback mechanism in which the soul is committed to picking itself up again and again and again. We're like an acorn. An acorn is committed to becoming an oak tree capable of dropping acorns itself. And that process takes an acorn 50 years. It is 50 years before an, an acorn can become an oak tree capable of dropping other acorns. But it's committed to that process. And no matter where you put an acorn, it will try its best you know, to send on a root and create a tree that will produce acorns. That's what perfection means, to be an acorn. I love that. And yeah. that makes perfect sense to me, right. is continuing. Don't let anything get in your way of continuing on the path that you've chosen for yourself in this lifetime. The lessons you've chosen, the love you've chosen, the people and the character, cast of characters you've chosen. Just keep trying. And like you say in this previous one, that new definition of enlightenment, the one who is consciously good, meaning you're working at it, is enlightened. That is enlightenment. I love that. It's very human. It's very us. And it's very achievable. And finally, I want to read this one other you wrote as a teaser. This whole subject that we're going to be talking about, the nature of good and evil, we get the subject of free will as humans. So let me read this and have you respond to it, okay? You wrote, this is page 276, free will is the sticky part. It necessitates there being choices among which to decide. But the choice originally was not between good and pre-existing evil. Rather, where to land on the spectrum of service to self at one end and service to other on the other. That is the most perfect definition I've seen about the implications of free will. Thanks, Chris. So there you go. And when we look in our, we look at all of these various conflicts and these stories in the Bible and so forth, a lot of it, it's really spalls down to, was this done for service to self or was this done for service for, to other? Absolutely. So any final thoughts now on the book and where you want, what you're trying to do with it? I know people have started yeah. trying to get in touch with you from around the world yes. about how do we set up 
truly conscious groups of people to move forward together? That's a great question, Regina. Because that's where the future lies. The future is not going to be mega churches. The future is not going to be you know, handouts from the government. The future is not going to be kind of uh, jabs that you know protect us from all kinds of COVID in the future. The future is small communities working together, sharing their skills and their resources, uh, and then networking internationally with each other. Uh, the, the time of the, the mega groupings, the time of the kind of the WHO making health decisions, our ah. uh, international monetary fund making financial decisions, or the Vatican making you know religious decisions, that's long since gone. It's, it's no longer serving its purposes. We're on the verge of a breakthrough in which we realize um, that we have to disidentify with what I call the role self, which is just the, 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 the place I'm playing in this incarnation. And we identify with the soul self, which is the eternal part of me, which was never born and which will never die, until finally I merge with the source self. Because ultimately, you know, life is a game, you know, that, that God is playing. I sometimes say that, you know, uh, life is a, is a dream that the ego is having. And the ego is a dream that the soul is having. And the soul is a dream that spirit is having. And spirit is a dream that source is having. So we live within nested dreams. And it's God dreaming this. Yes, that's beautiful. Well, you said one thing that got my attention, but we don't have time to talk about it. And that is, well, many things. But you were talking about where we come together as individuals, offering our unique talents and skills. One of the things I'm concerned about is that right now we've become so technological that the young people coming up are plenty bright, but they're not having to be forced away into developing skill sets. So there's it seems to be a lack of skills that are developing in the youngest generation, the Zoomers right now, mm-hmm. where, you know, you might have been, you might have known how to do many things by the age of 10 once upon a time. So somehow I think the technology is also yes. part of this block to our being able to develop these kinds of communities you're talking about, mm-hmm. even though it also assists us. You're absolutely right. Absolutely we'll talk right. about that in the next conversation. Yes. How's that? Sean, thank you so thank much. Thank you so much, Regina. I could just listen to you all day. I love your innate and It's a good karma because I'm Irish. I can talk all day. Oh, you can. I love it. <laughs> Until next time. You can connect with Sean and his work, including his live stream masses on Sundays, which you've heard a little bit about what these are like, not your usual mass, and his books on spiritsandspacesuits.com. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Spirits and Space. <laughs> We're one of those groups that our brother was describing here. Um, Okay, we're going to do another Freddie Silva. This one kind of picks up from where we left off with our brother here. Path to Paradise. What is paradise really about? Why did philosophers see it as the only place to find true wisdom? Can it be experienced? While one is alive. There's a word, the, in front of that, Rama, the path to paradise. If paradise is more than an imaginary realm, how and where can it be reached? Welcome to a 10,000-year journey of self-improvement. While Eastern traditions equate paradise with a higher ideal, in the West it is seen as a land tainted by evil, and accessible only to the dead. (laughs) Distorted by translation, errors in religious propaganda, such a view bears little resemblance to the original teachings. 
Mm. Persian mystics, Egyptian pharaohs, Greek philosophers, even Knights Templar, made accessing paradise their life ambition while alive. So what is it really about? Why did philosophers see it as the only place to find true true wisdom? Can it really be experienced while a person is living? How were ancient temples and pyramids designed to take initiates into a paradisical state? And if paradise is more than an imaginary realm, how and where can it be reached? Welcome to a 10,000-year journey of self-improvement starting in Japan and ending incredibly in America's capital, Freddie Silva. Okay, this is 51 minutes. Let's do it. <laughs> mm. While Eastern traditions equate paradise with a higher ideal, Western traditions view it as a pure land tainted by evil, reserved for the virtuous, and accessible only to the dead. But this view is based on errors in translation from older sources, further distorted through religious motives, and then through unquestioned repetition, accepted over time as dogma despite it bearing little resemblance with the original teaching. So what is paradise really about? Antiquarians such as John Michel summed up paradise as a kind of life mission whose aim is the attainment of philosophical as well as biological perfection. And to quote Michel, just as the forms of nature, such as the rose, the crystal, and so on, reflect an ideal symmetry which no individual among them ever achieves, so it is with humanity. In deriving all the forms of nature from ideal, unmanifest prototypes, traditional philosophy reverses the evolutionist's notion of human ascent from low creatures and inculcates the opposite myth that we are descendants from a divine creation and may properly aspire to re-enter a primeval paradise. If so, how do perfection and paradise overlap? Is it really a state that can be experienced when one is still in this world? And if paradise is more than an imaginary realm, how and where can it be reached?
our quest begins with the most unlikeliest of topics, the Knights Templar. Um, back in the 12th century, recruits wishing to join the Templar order made a vow to discover the joys of paradise. It seems odd that military men and mercenaries with big swords, people who engage in war for a living, should make such a preposterous statement. Or was there something more to the Templars that meets the eye? A spiritual angle, perhaps. It is known that the inner brotherhood of the Templars behaved more like an ecumenical college than an elite fighting outfit. And they also conducted a secret ritual that culminated in a mystical revelation. And a hint of what this entailed came to light in the 14th century. After the Templars escaped persecution, they moved to Portugal and Scotland, and following a secret ritual on the summit of a sacred mountain on the spring equinox, they changed their name to Scottish Rite Freemasonry. So in a matter of speaking, the Templars were one of the first organizations to successfully employ brand marketing and public relations. But it enabled the practices to remain untouched. So in the Masonic third degree, for example, the candidate is lifted from a figurative grave. They're pronounced risen from the dead, and then his or her blindfold is removed. Why? Because having been exposed to restricted knowledge, they became enlightened. And the third degree itself was symbolic of an actual ritual that was performed in a restricted underground chamber in which the candidate undertook an induced out-of-body experience. Now, the initiates who successfully completed the ritual claimed that they had experienced paradise and were therefore free from fear of physical death. And it gave them a completely different view of how the universe really is rather than how it appears. Well, to add to this, there's the Masonic 17th degree, and it's said to be the most spiritual of all teachings because it paves the way to understanding the laws of nature and establishing a relationship with it non-physical reality. Uh, now clearly such concepts didn't just appear overnight, they are the sum of hundreds if not thousands of years of acquiring specialist information and of course personal experience. So the question is, just how old is the knowledge the Templars and the Scottish Rite Masons were professing? Around 8000 BC, a group of sages of gods introduced a sacred book to Japan. The collective teachings are known as the Wave of Ise, an odd title because it appears to be the Japanese name for the Egyptian divine bride, Isis. Consisting of 17 Taiyi, or ways, they embody the rules for proper conduct as well as for raising the latent spirituality within the practitioner, the effects of which resulted in spiritual perfection. The reward was a state of inner peace. 
It is the earliest known text that teaches a person how to embody a paradisial state of mind. Prehistoric Japan wasn't the only place where these teachings were promoted. On the other side of the world, at Abydos, for example, uh, similar knowledge was transmitted in a restricted chamber called the Osirian. And it was originally a freestanding temple beside the Nile. This Osirian was designed to mirror the presence of creation itself. There's a deep moat that represents the primordial waters of the cosmos, and it surrounds a large stone platform, the island of creation, upon which stands the sum of all knowledge. Well, the candidates would alight from a small boat, they would walk up a short staircase, and they would take instruction on universal concepts, beginning with the fundamental principle of how energy evolves into matter. And it's represented here by a rectangle in the proportion of the golden ratio, the mathematical form behind all organic life. And beside it, another box in the shape of a square symbolizes the balance of the four elements that make up the physical world. Around this platform, uh, there are 17 chambers and each transmitted a secret teaching or way. And their combined knowledge supports the ceiling of the Assyrian, which in turn represents the cosmos. Around 4000 BC, the language of the temple was taken north to islands where a group of mystics built the massive double passage mound at Nauf. And amid this ritual environment, the knowledge was necessary for the candidates to achieve spiritual perfection, and it was conveyed in each of the 17 mounds. And once mastered, they completed training by entering the central mound's passageway via the west at the spring equinox sunset, and then they spent an unspecified time inside the inner chamber to access a paradisial land before emerging reborn in the east. It appears the same teachings were practiced throughout the world by many interlinked groups of wisdom keepers. In Peru, for example, the ancient city of Cusco stands uh, a limestone butte carved inside and out with unusual alcoves and symbols and staircases and all these things lead nowhere but inside there's a chamber resembling a womb prior to entering this hand-carved chamber the initiate arrived in a preparatory courtyard surrounded by 17 niches and each one sent to contain a restricted teaching and then they entered the restricted chamber to undertake an out-of-body experience that took them to a land beyond our world, from which they returned, perfected, three days later. Such examples build a picture of people involved in search of a paradisial environment from which they returned very different from when they departed. And that's the difference. They experienced paradise while alive, 
and return to this world to carry on with their daily affairs. To get into a sense of what was going on, let's add another layer to the story. The original story of two people who lived in one of Paradise's original earthly counterparts. Uh, this was Adama and Heva, uh, otherwise known in the Western tradition as Adam and Eve. And in the Hebrew version of the story, these two hapless Antediluvian people are booted out of paradise and its blissful state. However, in the once banned Gnostic tradition, which is far closer to the original Sumerian account, which itself was copied from an even more ancient text, things turned out very different when Eve was plucking the apple from the tree. The serpent in this version is a benevolent hero, while the god portrayed in the story is not a pleasant individual at all. He's, he's very jealous. He's a shadow god. And we see this when the serpent asks Eve, what did God say to you? Was it to not eat from the tree of knowledge? And Eve replies, he said, not only do not eat from it, but do not touch it lest you die. And the serpent reassures Eve, and she says to her, do not be afraid, with death you shall not die, for it was out of jealousy that he said this to you. Rather, your eyes shall open and you shall come to be like gods, recognizing evil and good. And sure enough, once she and her Adam ate from the tree of knowledge, they experienced enlightenment because the knowledge empowered them to reach spiritual transfiguration. And all of this while living in paradise. And since the original meaning of paradise is a fertile plain surrounded by water, clearly this was a real location. However, the name carries a double meaning. The fertile plain referred to is a metaphor of the island of wisdom that rises above the waters of chaos like a belly, pregnant with the sum of all information placed there by the gods. So in metaphysical terms, this paradise illustrates an environment or dimension where one is able to access knowledge at its purest level. A talking serpent should raise anybody's suspicion. And indeed, it is the key to understanding the story of paradise. Uh, the serpent was in fact a woman and her name was Tabayet. She was the wife of a godman called Enki. And they belonged to a group of sages, uh, keepers of knowledge. And since they understood and controlled the laws of nature, they became associated with the rhythm and flow of earth energy, which flows like an invisible serpent. And hence their given title, People of the Serpent. Ultimately, the story of Adama and Heva in Paradise describes the self-empowerment of the individual through the understanding of the laws of nature, much more so than a tale of chastisement and sin. So far, it appears that interacting with a state or place called paradise enables access to specialized information, spiritual truths, even the understanding of celestial mechanics. 
perhaps more, because thousands of years after this Sumerian account, stories and rituals associated with accessing a state of bliss finally reached the ancient Greeks. After their personal involvement in the mystery schools, uh, scholars such as Pythagoras and Plato provided insights into what was taking place, uh, how direct contact with this other world involved and induced near-death experience inside a secret chamber or a box or a cave, uh, followed by an uncomfortable return back into the physical world. And they described returning empowered, convinced of the soul's immortality, even facing the prospect of physical death without any fear because, they said, we already experienced paradise and are therefore free. However, they weren't free to talk about the actual experience because every candidate undertook a vow of silence. And in Greece, it was forbidden by law to discuss the experience in public but they unanimously alluded to how the experience opened their eyes to the mechanics of the universe and to the true nature of the soul. One rare account comes from Plato himself, who describes his experience via a fictional character in his book, Phaedro, in order not to betray his vow. He says... Those who are initiated into the great mysteries perceive a wondrous light. Purer regions are reached and divine visions inspire a holy awe. Then the man, perfected and initiated, free and able to move superphysically without constraint, celebrates the mysterious. He sees on earth the many who have not been initiated and purified, buried in the darkness and through fear of death, clinging to their ills for want of belief in the happiness of the beyond. We beheld the beautiful visions and were initiated into the mystery, which may be truly called blessed. Beyond the world of gods lies a reality with which true knowledge is concerned, a reality without color or shape, intangible but utterly real. Plato spent 13 years in Egypt, uh, long enough to be acquainted with the mystical practices of its temples. And he points out that the aim of the seeker is to become conscious of the wisdom found only in this out-of-body reality while still living. And to quote Plato again, True philosophers make dying their profession. They are glad to set out for the place where there is the prospect of attaining the object of their lifelong desire, which is wisdom. One will never find wisdom in all its purity in any other place. That's quite a claim. Not surprisingly, Plato regarded metaphysics as one of the highest stages of personal enlightenment, uh, to which he added, the true occupation of the philosopher is to allow the soul to be released from the body and run free, uh, which apparently he did. 
uh, Plato even admitted how his participation in the initiation and experience of a paradisal state helped shape his philosophical doctrine. Another writer offering a candid description of his experience in a paradisal dimension is the second century writer Lucius Apuleius. He wrote, The high priest ordered all uninitiated persons to depart, invested in me a new linen garment, and led me by the hand into the inner recesses of the sanctuary itself. I approached the very gates of death and set one foot on Persephone's threshold. I journeyed through all of the elements, and yet was permitted to return. At midnight, I saw the sun shining as if it were noon. I entered the presence of the gods of the other world, stood near, and worshipped them. Oh, Lucius sums up his experience into the paradisal landscape as reborn and brought back on the road of a new blessing. And people have engaged in all kinds of strange things to experience paradise, and particularly in Egypt. Uh, the Valley of the Kings may be the world's most famous cemetery, but one of its earliest chambers is out of place. In 1470 BC, Tutmosis III allegedly had this beautiful underground chamber made for his burial. But there are problems with the story. Uh, first, the tomb contains a well. Now, a dead pharaoh would hardly have stepped out of his sarcophagus and walked upstairs to take a sip of water. Secondly, his chamber faces the northeast, which is traditionally the direction associated with the acquisition of ancient wisdom. Again, redundant, because if you are dead, you already have access to all the knowledge you want. And finally, and most suspicious of all, Tutmosis was buried on the other side of the mountain, in the temple of Hatshepsut, where he had already built himself a mortuary temple. So, we have to ask ourselves, why does one man need two places in which to bury himself? None of this makes any sense, and we need a better explanation. Look carefully, and the answer is all around you. Uh, the so-called tomb is wrapped with a text called the Book of the Hidden Chamber, which describes in intimate detail the Egyptian otherworld, the Avduat, how to get there, and more importantly, the techniques to help your soul concentrate and then return to your living body. And it's exemplified in the following passage. It is good for the dead to have this knowledge, but also for the person on earth. Whoever understands these mysterious images is a well-provided light being. Always this person can enter and leave the Anduat, proven to be true a million times. Such an experience of paradise wasn't only reserved for the privileged. Uh, a servant in the household of Pharaoh Teti wrote about his experience on his spirit door after he was favored to join the Pharaoh's inner circle via a secret ritual. 
And the servant describes his surprise upon being admitted to master secret things of the Pharaoh. And this humble man writes, Today, in the presence of Teti, son of Ra, more honored by the Pharaoh than any servant, as master of secret things of every work which his majesty does. When his majesty favored me, he caused that I enter the chamber of restricted access. And of course, this man stays silent about the actual event. But at the end, the grateful servant joyfully proclaims, I found the way. So here we have a lowly Egyptian servant in 2400 BC revealing he has been privy to the same teaching found 6,000 years earlier in prehistoric Japan. It's odd how people who embark on a journey to a paradisal world, uh, people such as Odysseus or Osiris, are always chopped up or they're seriously inconvenienced or dismembered. And such tales are intended as allegories. The deflashing of the self is essential for the transition from physical to ethereal. Because by shedding the old self, the body becomes lighter, allowing the soul to escape its physical vessel with greater ease. And free from material entrapment, it wanders at will in paradise, acquiring the knowledge of the gods before returning into a new and improved vessel. This concept is embodied at the temple of Ekbalam in Yucatan. The entrance to the restricted chamber is guarded by the mouth of a monster whose 33 teeth greet the approaching candidates and metaphorically devours them. If you look very carefully around the mouth, and you'll see seven sages, each bearing wings. And these are the teachers, these are the spirit guides, and they are called Anhel, which may be a precursor to the word angel. And the surrounding panels and their spirals offer a very vivid picture of the realm of clouds into which the candidate is about to step into. In Persia, the celestial paradise was imitated on the landscape by paradise gardens. The essential plan of these green enclosures consists of a rectilinear area based on the golden ratio, the spiral of life. Sixteen green spaces surround the central seventeenth, the fountain or pond representing the source of creation in full flow, while the water channels that form the principal axes of the garden feed all points of manifested creation. These luscious gardens were planted with fruit-bearing trees, symbolizing the cosmically inspired wisdom that any earthly person is able to pluck. So these retreats were allegorical mirrors. They were created to feed the thirst of the individual and assist their emergence from ignorance, which was represented by the sterile desert beyond the perimeter of the garden. 
the Persians also provided an understanding of what paradise really means, and it lies in the root of the word itself. Now, in the Middle East, altering your resonance was the preferred method by which consciousness accessed a place called Peridiza, which means a walled enclosure. Well, if paradise is a walled enclosure, how does one get in? In Eastern tradition, an initiate who raises their state of godliness and master's discipline over the material world is called a jinnah, and the root of which means hidden. Now, jinnah is also the root of yana, the Islamic concept of paradise, and it means a hidden place beyond the physical. And its derivative, janella, originally meant an opening into another country. Let's see what happens when we connect these dots. If Paradisa is a walled enclosure, a demarcated place beyond the normal world, and Yama is paradise, a hidden place beyond the physical, then it can be reached through a window into another country. Where do we find such windows? This is where ancient temples enter the equation. Sacred texts from Teotihuacan to southern India describe sacred places as navels of the earth. And when you traverse such navels, you bring back knowledge from a paradisal world. So a place or person who bridges this meeting between spirit and matter in turn becomes a repository of that knowledge. We have help on this topic from the Gnostic Gospels who go a step further. They describe how an organization built temples as a representation of spiritual places in the landscape and in doing so created an antidote against forces of darkness that steered people who followed them into great trouble, leading them astray with many deceptions. And they died not having found the truth and thus they became enslaved forever from the foundations of the world. Now, that's some benefit, and hardly surprising, considering the ancients knew they inhabited a universe where everything is alive, even the rocks. So consequently, the temples that they built consist of the numbers, the proportions, that form the very fabric of the cosmos. So the number and proportion in every stone, pillar, entrance, staircase, or room are designed to reflect celestial mechanics. And the point was to open a gap in the fabric of space and time and allow a person to engage with the heart of the universe. A practical example of this is Stonehenge. The megaliths not only define the boundary between profane and sacred space, but the gaps in between act as windows into paradise. How? Because they mark the flow into the temple of water below the ground that is by nature already electrically charged, in addition to telluric currents that are attracted to the center of the site. Crossing these windows, the human body's electromagnetic field 
is stimulated and its state of awareness altered. In a manner of speaking, they are entering paradise. This relationship between strategically guided energy and temples as passageways into a parallel reality is described in the temples themselves. One temple in Edfu describes how a protective zone was established around the perimeter of the mansions of the gods. So what were the architects referring to? Uh, were they employing bouncers to keep the undeserving away? Well, it turns out that the recent study shows how it is known that the Earth is encircled with an electromagnetic net called the Hardman Grid. And readings taken at sacred sites from Europe all the way to Tibet found this net to be stretched into bands of 18 geomagnetic lines around the temples, in effect behaving like a protective membrane. And places like Saqqara, Karnak, Luxor, even the stupas of Tibet enjoy an immense neutral zone that allows energy inside the perimeter of these domains of the gods to facilitate a higher state of awareness. In another study, uh, a magnetometer survey of the Rollwright Stone Circle in England shows how one telluric current is drawn like a spiral into the circle of stones. And the intensity of the geomagnetic field within the circle was also found to be significantly lower than the outside. So the stones behave like a shield. In fact, it has been discovered that the ditches around the stone circles conduct telluric ground currents. They're concentrated and then release it via the entrance and often at double the rate of the surrounding land. Inside the world's largest stone circle at Avebury, magnetic readings drop at night to a far greater level than can be accounted for under normal circumstances. And at sunrise, they charge back with the ground current from the surrounding land attracted to the ditch, just as magnetic fluctuations inside the stone circle begin to reach their maximum. The Sioux of North America refer to this energy as scan, and where it concentrates, it leads to spiritual attuning, so that contact with many places of power builds up a numinous state of mind. Such anomalies in the local electromagnetic grid reveal why temples were seen as living beings that sleep at night and awaken at dawn. Another example of a temple forming a boundary into paradise is Saqqara. Inside one of its adjacent pyramids, there exists a set of explicit instructions for accessing the other world and includes the following passage. Seven degrees of perfection enable passage from earth to heaven. It's as though the phrase alludes to a threshold that needs to be crossed from the physical into the non-physical, which of course is an apt description of the purpose of the temple. But why should this require seven degrees of perfection 
does the visitor undergo a kind of purification before entering the site? Well, in Egyptian mythology, the passage into paradise is made through Seket Yano, the field of reeds. And to reach as much desired land, one must first pass through a series of gates. And at Saqqara, one has to do just that before entering the mansion of the gods. It is a unique passageway, a colonnade of reeds, each bundle separated by narrow alcoves. And each alcove discharges an alternating field of positive and negatively charged energy that serves as an invisible gate while at the same time influencing the electromagnetic circuits of a person walking into the main compound. So in other words, it is a preparatory hallway, but to what end? Well, since the temple is a perfect mirror of creation, anyone who enters the site with negative thoughts or emotions is considered a liability to this perfect environment. So to protect the temple, one must be mindful before entering the sacred domain. And the pyramid texts refer to this as mastering the self before crossing the threshold of each gate. It seems that each alternating charge along the passageway is helping you dispel negative emotions. And the fact that there exist seven positive charges appears to explain those seven degrees of perfection mentioned in the text. The idea of seven protective gates is not unique to Saqqara. In Ireland, the upright stones forming the passageway of Newgrange are arranged so that their magnetic poles generate exactly seven positive charges either side of the passage. This practice of protecting the energetic core of a sacred space continued into the 12th century when the Cistercian monks and the Templars built the present cathedral of Chantre. Well, the town of Chantre itself had already been the site of mystery schools dating back to at least the time of the Druids, who used to hold their ecumenical council around a Neolithic stone circle or a mound. And this has since been incorporated into the foundation of successive churches. So the present cathedral actually betrays the true age of the site because the summer solstice now rises several degrees off axis. But back in 4000 BC, the shaft of sunlight would have shone through. The cathedral's location, its dimensions, its architectural features also reference underground watercourses which generate a natural energetical current as they percolate through the limestone. And then of course there's the main fluoric current flowing down the nave. And all these forces congregate above the original mound. But to access the area protecting the present altar, one must first cross seven bands of energy those seven gates that allow passage from the physical into a state of bliss. So it's not by accident that this spot is called the altar. No doubt ancient people discern places on the land that are energetically different. Aboriginal people refer to them as increased centers. And correct use of ritual enables an interaction with a life force that propels the soul 
towards a state of ecstasy. It allows a person to be free of limitations imposed by the material world, and constant interaction with sacred places provides insights. So the more apples you pick, the easier one reaches paradise. People often travel great distances to ex uh, expecting to see exceptional buildings at such locations, but often there are none, because in remote times, people sensed the invisible much more readily, and so man-made structures were unnecessary. The energy was what it was all about. So in a matter of speaking, the people who sought these hotspots were following the advice given in ancient texts such as the Vedas, which referred to a specialized knowledge being accessible at carefully chosen locations throughout the planet, each one protected by a deity to whom was entrusted a specific aspect of nature. But as we began to forget how to see or feel these hotspots, these invisible libraries were marked, sometimes by a humble standing stone, and around the Mediterranean, this was called a betil, which means a house of God. Now, clearly, one upright stone does not resemble a residence, so the term must be referring to the monolith as a repository of a creative life force, which, of course, is the original meaning behind a god. Despite its simple appearance, a humble standing stone can be deceptively powerful. Hundreds of documented cases tell of people, doubters in particular, receiving an electrical shock after touching a monolith whose energy has not been grounded in some time. Because of the amount of quartz and other conductive minerals in the stone, the piezoelectric properties of these monoliths enables them to accumulate ground current, which is then stored like a giant battery. Which brings us to a larger inquiry. Are these access points into paradise haphazard, or were they planned? Uh, were they part of a bigger picture? because surviving Tamil texts also pointed temples as, and other sacred sites being deliberately built as a kind of insurance policy. Or as one Egyptian text puts it, and I quote, whosoever shall make a copy of a natural temple and make it so upon the earth, it shall act as a magical protector for them in heaven and in earth, unfailingly and regularly and eternally. Ancient architects recognized how easily ordinary people are seduced by self-defeating impulses and lose direction in their earthly life. These sages understood the relationship between subtle energy, the temple, and the balanced outlook of the individual. An ongoing project to study sites of remote antiquity has discovered how an interconnected group of gods once established a global network of sacred sites where anyone can access paradise while still on earth. If lines of longitude are drawn on the world map based on numbers unique to the pentagram, which are the geometry of living things and technically includes the earth, then plot the location of some of the oldest sacred places, a grid of power places becomes quite apparent. 
And certainly this plan was known among esoteric schools right up to the medieval era. Uh, it was even referred to as the great work. It's an ongoing project that has been maintained and promulgated by successive groups of initiates, and it's still a play to this very day. To demonstrate this theory, let's start in a suburb of Cairo called Heliopolis. There are a few reminders of this location having once been the oldest academy in Egypt in 10,400 BC. And it was originally called Yunu. Uh, this sacred mound on the Nile represented the original primordial mound into which was deposited the sum of all the knowledge for the elevation of humanity. So if we take the pentagonal angle 108 degrees and travel west from Yunu, we arrive at the capital of a new republic, founded by a group of Scottish Rite Freemasons. And their aim was to further the principles of enlightenment and liberty of the individual, as practiced by their predecessors, the Knights Templar. And 12,000 years before them, at Yunu, a group of divine people called the Shining Ones, followers of Horus. The exact spot of this modern correspondence is marked by the dome of the Capitol in Washington, D.C. This may be the last place one would expect to experience paradise, and yet this was, according to Thomas Jefferson, one of its founders, to be the first temple dedicated to the sovereignty of the people. And certainly it was a noble ideal, but stripped down to its basics, these architects of this new republic were working with nothing more than energy. And energy doesn't care about right or wrong, it is simply energy. But it's the intent that defines whether this energy is directed to right action or not. And just like the ancient temples, the capital building is not a lone entity, it is part of a larger mechanism that strategically links various locations to create an influential energetic environment. But in essence, the blueprint behind Washington, D.C. enabled the site to function as a landscape temple, just like Paris before it, which itself is based on the blueprint of Thebes in Egypt. And by way of demonstration, the obelisk that is the Washington Monument forms a right-angle triangle with the White House and the dome of the Capitol. An ancient teaching referred to this relationship as a triple step of Vishnu, a technique used thousands of years ago to link like-sighted minds across the land by the power inherent in the geometry of the triangle, the geometry that binds together every atom and molecule. And then there's the relationship between True North, the Lincoln Memorial, and the White House, which generates the Great Pyramid Angle of 51.49 degrees. In metaphysics, this is the creative process behind the conscious universe. But to top it all, the center of the Pentagon, relative to the White House and the Capitol, forms the angle 32.72 known to structural engineers as the angle of repose, and in esoterica as the angle of gravity. And this highest of teachings involves the understanding and control of gravity so as to allow the soul to leave the body consciously 
and access paradise at will. It was the ultimate teaching during initiation and its practitioners were prepared to protect this information with their lives rather than reveal it to the unsavory. Something that the Knights Templar demonstrated quite well when they were burnt alive. So 32.72 became enshrined in that well-known Masonic ritual, the 33rd degree. Whether you were a Templar Knight vowing to discover the joys of paradise, or an Essene following the way, or an initiate at Chichen Itza, picking the fruit from the tree of knowledge so elegantly carved at the entrance to its bowl court, the journey into paradise was marked by a marriage to a divine bride. Why? Because the sum of all universal wisdom and the expansive qualities it develops in the self was embodied in the regenerative and fertilizing qualities inherent in a divine woman. Such qualities were portrayed in Seshat, the goddess of sacred buildings, the woman with a seven-petal flower rising from her soul, its geometry synonymous with the Great Pyramid and the fundamental forces of creation. So when Freemasons in the 19th century Paris gifted an emerging republic across the Atlantic with another divine woman with seven rays beaming from the soul, it was a reminder to follow the path of wisdom, which, as Plato reminds us, can only be found in all its purity in paradise. Only then can we hope to attain liberty from ignorance. Freddie Silva. All right, well, now we're going to go from paradise to the Philosopher's Stone. The Philosopher's Stone. I'm actually going to play this. What's that? That's the dragon. Oh, well, then. 
Okay. I uh, don't wait a minute. Where where is that? Oh. I thought we already did that one. No, this is a new one. Uh, Matthias. Okay. Well, then, would you please read that to everybody, sir? Um, you have it there. Um, experience dangerous adventures and mystical meetings with spirits of the beyond as we continue the journey of remembering with Matthias. Oh, yeah. Embarking on the path of the dragon from the South Pole to the North. Matthias shares how this path transformed through a near-death experience while on a treacherous trek in Tibet. Where he encountered the Order of Merlin. Oh, Merlin, do you remember this one? I do not. Exposing the dark side of ego death and the beauty of soul rebirth. Matthias highlights the importance of moving beyond fear and into love as he explores his missions at stone circles across the UK from Cornwall, England to the Highlands of Scotland. Well, Penny, maybe you know about these things. And maybe a few more of us. All right, you ready, Mm Grandma? This one is 26 minutes, The Path of the Dragon. that happened in the pyramid was that they said there are two things that you have to do the path of the dragon and the path of the I am the path of the dragon would be the connection between south and north north south through the mountain chains where the energy of Kundalini flows through the planet so in 2016 I was preparing the people to understand what is the path of the dragon what is the project of the I am understanding the whole network of consciousness but I kind of lose it the goal of everything and I was creating team to to do everything like I don't want to be the one doing this I want to have a group of people that we go together that people could see that it's not about me it's about many others and we can all do it together and so on we decided to start this dragon path in Antarctica 
And I took 72 people to Antarctica. We rent an airplane to go to Antarctica Peninsula to do an activation, which would be to put all the energy from the purest continent into crystal spheres that we brought there, 72 crystal spheres. And within them, by singing, we put all the energy of the pure continent, the consciousness of the planet, so then we could bring that information along the planet in the entire reach of the world. The first week that the Path of the Dragon started, my grandmother dies and I was doing the path. So I kept with this thought in my, in my mind, am I doing a good thing doing this path or I was supposed to be aside her? to help her transcend. I started to feel a bit guilty of what I was doing. I had no clue what I was doing uh, eventually in one, in one moment. And I decided to do an ayahuasca ceremony in Peru during the path to ask to, to other dimensions because I was not listening properly. And I had no clue what was happening. So immediately when I took the ayahuasca it was a voice saying, let's start with this from the very beginning. And one of the questions that the wise one in, in that space said was, can you remind me the name of your project? And I said, I am. And, and he said, so why have you started a path saying we are? And I said, uh, I don't know, because I don't want to be that person that everyone looks to and and said, oh, that's a mistake. He said, because uh, you were designed to be looked at. So you are hiding yourself from something, from your own responsibility. And you are grabbing people along the path just to hide yourself. And it was like, well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, that was a tough one. And <laughs> that's why people around you are suffering because you're using them to hide yourself behind that we are when we are not. <laughs> and it was like, okay, so he said, you have to represent I am. So you can only do it alone. And um, I enter in this crisis, a very deep crisis, like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I want to do this. It's too much responsibility to be in front of, of this alone. Like, um, a lot of people staring at me, like, not knowing what to do. And I start to feel that I abandoned my family just because of weird stuff. So I said my grandmother died. I was not there in that moment. So it was just because of my mission. I arrived to Mexico. When I arrived to Mexico, I said, I can't do this anymore. I can't fake that I am doing something for humanity if I couldn't do something for my family. But I was feeling something that way before someone told me that in order to do this, you have to die. And so I let myself die. And basically, I, I just turn off all the lights of my magnetical field and let all the demons come and kill me. That was basically what I just said. 
here I am. I'm switching off all the shields and kill me. I said, I leave everything in hands of whoever. Suddenly I enter a process of autistic reality that I couldn't speak with anyone. I got in a very deep depression. I was for a month lost in Mexico. Someone had to buy me a ticket to send me back home, but I was, I was a bag. I, I was nothing, just flesh. And, um, I came back home and they put me on bed and I was there for, for weeks. Until I start to hear my inner voice. He told me, you know what you're doing? And I said, no. And he said, you are leaving your personality in control of everything. The reason why everything is failing is because you think Matthias is in charge of this. And Matthias is just a tool. And you have to treat Matthias as a tool. You are not you. Who is you? Who, who are you, really? And I said, I am Gan. Gan is my higher self. So he said, so let Gan be in control of the tool, which is Matthias. So suddenly I understood, yes, the personality is something that the spirit creates in order to be able to live and to do what it is supposed to do. And I was trying to control everything through my ego, through my personality. And everything was about I am, not me. <laughs> so I let away the me and I said, I accept Matthias, the personality, as a tool. So here I am for anything you are supposed to do with me. And he said, well, what we have to do, first of all, is to position yourself again in the center. So I woke up and I said, I'm here for whatever is needed. And that same day, people started to call me to film, to do stuff with me, to tell my story. And that's how Gaia contacted me. And here I am. All that happened that year was teaching me something important about the path of the dragon. I recognized that all that time between the message of the I am and the the end of 2017, which was the preparation for the dragon, was my path to try to clean up all what I had within, to clean up many friends' relationships that I had, many thoughts that I had connected to all ideas. When I did that, I saw my own initiative path. Like, you have to do this and that, and you have to face at least three deaths in order to be really in the I am. You have to die physically, emotionally, and spiritually. They showed me a mountain that I was supposed to go to die. And I had no clue which mountain was that, but the shape was familiar. It was Mount Kailash in Tibet. I did my first, I guess my first initiative path in Egypt with people, guiding people. And when I finished the path, everyone said, now where you go? And I said, well, now it's my turn to to do my own initiative path. So uh, I'm, I'm going to Tibet to die. And everyone was like, what? 
how is that? How is that? And I said, I have no no idea. <laughs> so I will go. They told me to go to die, but I don't think I will die. But anyway, I will go anyway. So I went to Tibet right after Egypt, and it was very difficult to get there. Airplanes cancel, going on a track, and well, all this to reach Kailash. And also, there is something important that I had no clue about Mount Kailash that is sacred for at least three religions. And there is something that they call the Kora path, which is you have to go clockwise around the mountain to honor the heavens and and Shiva who is the god living in the, in the mountain. But I had specific instructions that I had to do the path anti-clockwise, like going down. And that's forbidden in in that land. Nobody does it because it's like going to hell. Uh, but I said, no, my instructions are this. And till the very last day, I had to do everything to convince someone to accompany me to do the path anti-clockwise because I was trying to connect with the core of the planet not heaven and they said no 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 there there's only a few people that do that and I said who and, and they are the original people from the territory that had the tradition to do it in that direction because they are not from the main religions that believe in Shiva they are believing in nature So I said, I want to do that. So this guy said, okay, I will risk my soul, but I will bring you. So I was, okay, okay, <laughs> I, I will talk good about you when I die. <laughs> so he accompanied me very worried during this whole path. And it's really high altitude. It's like 6,000 meters. And I've never been so high walking. And during this path, When I started to do my first steps, suddenly I felt a guide, let's say a Merlin, uh, aside me. I say a Merlin because everyone knows Merlin the magician, but Merlin was like a kind of, a, of an order of Celtic people, and they were the high priests of the Celtic culture. So there were many Merlins, not only one. And this Merlin comes aside me and I had no clue why someone from the Celtic culture would be, or Druid culture would be there in Tibet. But he would walk aside me, making me go to my deepest darkness in emotions and everything. He would say to me that all that I had to do in this path was to, to die. And I had to practice that. So he was, he was accompanying me in the path as if I was in a hospital waiting for death. And every step that I gave was like, what are you leaving behind? What would you say to your mother? What would you say to your grandmother? What would you say to everyone if you die today? He made me write letters to each one of them in the path and Make me cry and understanding how, um, uh, how every person is like a rock in this path and so, so many teachings that, that he was telling me as we spoke. It was like being with a psychiatrist, almost so psychologist going through the mountain. 
Bueno, estoy ya en el lago sagrado y a pocos pasos de hacer el último paso de Dolmala, que es más difícil, supuestamente. Así que creo que vencí la muerte con nada de oxígeno a 5.600 metros. Vengo de una charla constante con Merlín, que me viene siendo de psicólogo, así que voy bastante bien. En ese paso, you reach almost 7.000 metros above sea level, and I was just dressed up for, I don't know, winter in New York or, no, even in Georgia, I don't know, I was, I was like, okay, some tiny clothes, and, and that's it, uh, not much, but people were really dressed because you could die, the guy was always asking me, are you headache, are you headache, because you can't have a stroke, and um, I said, no, I'm not headache, but I was, and, but, I had to die, so I don't care. So, so, uh, so maybe it was a signal. And and that night I got to sleep, and in the morning when I woke up with headache, I saw Merlin here in front of me saying, "Are you ready to die?" And because it's today, <laughs> I was like, "Oh my gosh, I I I don't know." And And suddenly the guide enters the, the tent where we were sleeping and says, are you headache? And I said, no. And I said, because a Russian guy was crossing and just died because he couldn't make it. He had a stroke and they are taking him down. And I was like, oh my God, that, that's a sign. I don't know how to take it. Um, so I said, no, I will do it. I can do it. I, I, I will. So I started to that day with the snow on my face I suddenly reached a point I, I sat down and I had my hands blue and my feet blue everything I had water that was freezing inside my shoes and uh, I said okay I cannot walk anymore I, I this is it I was headache and so I sat down to take a breath and And when I looked up, just a tiny circle of clouds open and you could see the highest point of the mountain. It was the first time that I saw it. And when I saw it, the sun was shining right there and you could see the light shining towards us from the top of the mountain. And I saw like this tunnel of light coming to me and I, and I felt like I was dying and suddenly I felt like the top of the mountain was a triangle, but it was someone meditating, like coming to me that divided in so many fractals like a mandala. And all around this path of light was like different tetrahedrons all around, but actually they were all masters meditating. But I could see the tetrahedrons and the masters all at the same time. And I could hear them meditating with the sounds and singing and spinning around, and I was, like, just in the same position, like, going there and dying. And suddenly, everyone was saying, I am, I am, I am, I am, I am. And there was someone in the mountain saying, I am, and and telling me to say that, I am. And, and he said, there is no many masters. There is only one 
which is the I am, and we all remember it. So just say it, and and you will be able to die. So I start to say, I am, I am every master, I am, I am. So when I did that, the master in front of me said, you did it, you died, and I felt I was I was dead, and 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 I said and I heard the voice, you did it, you did it. And suddenly the voice of the master became the guide, the the sherpa that was with me, saying, you did it, you survived. <laughs> and, and it was his voice telling me, hey, you did it. And I was like, <laughs> like dead in the meditation position. <laughs> and and, and uh, you did it. You crossed the Dolmala Pass and uh, you could see the mountain on the other side of the clouds. And after that point, it was going down. So I had no clue. <laughs> I thought I, I died there. And I really felt uh, my body uh, not working anymore. Everything uh, shutting off. Then Merlin appears again when I came back and said, perfect, you died. So you actually in British accent uh, is like, uh, perfect, you have died. And you are ready to keep going. And I said, oh, keep going, what? And, and, he said, and he said, I wait for you in seven days in England. <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> so I flew to England from Tibet and I arrived there and said, I will wait for you in, in the end of all lands. And I said, end of all lands. So I looked for it and there's a place called Land's End. So I said, okay, I will go there in Cornwall. So I went there and when I reached that spot, I, that spirit, the spirit was waiting for me there in that hill and I said, Look in front of this place. He said, you have to finish your soul here. So you have, your soul has to die <laughs> in this place. And I was like, okay. And he said, so, um, I wait for you in the other side of the island. <laughs> I wait for you in the other side of the island in Scotland. Go to every stone circle in the path and show me what you're capable of. And just disappear and left me alone. And the only instruction that he said was the first circle, you have to be naked. <laughs> so, uh, okay. So I went to the stone circle and I looked around if there was anybody and I got naked in the center of the circle. And I saw how every one of the stones were like someone judging me. Like every person that judged me in my life, like the stones. And I had to be naked there, like saying, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. It's not important. So it's just flesh. It's like, so, um, so I had to face all my emotional fears also, uh, uh regarding my ego. And, um, so I did. And then I start all this path through every stone circle in England and Scotland going through each one of them, and in every one of them, I knew that I had to do some task, some preparation. Merlin, he said, cross to the island, Orkney Islands in the north, and there, there you'll see the crown, and uh, the crown of this land. So when you are there, prepare to die again with your soul. So I took a boat, Crossed the island, and I had no clue what 
I would find there, and suddenly there was this last stone circle. This beautiful stone circle. Nobody goes there, it's so special. It was all green around, but inside was red. It looked like a crown, it looked so beautiful. And I went to the stones and I put just a side of one of the stones, like if each one of the stones were a person and I felt part of that circle. And um, I heard a voice in between the stones saying, we are here to, to watch you. And I said, so where do I belong? And they said, in the center. So um, that moment maybe was uh, something easy for some people, but for me it was really tough because that was the moment of the decision that I had to take saying my place is to be in the center seen by others, not aside the others. And at least for now, um, my mission is to be seen and to be in the center. And so I started to walk to the center of the stones and I got to the middle of it. And suddenly I kind of accepted that I had to be in the center. So I am the center. And suddenly the stones started to say, Every circle has a center. Without a center, there's no circle. Without a circle, there's no center. So you are never alone, and your work is with the team, but the team is to surround you. The team is to hold everything to be a sphere, and you mark the center. Where do we go? I am. When I said this, something in me started to see Every one of my lives and every one of the stones became each one of me, of myself, staring at me. Not other people. It was just my my soul watching at me. And every stone was one of my lives. And I saw all of them. And um, and they start to come to me and becoming me and saying, we are the circle that holds who you are. So don't expect for others to be in that circle. We are that circle that puts you in the center. So it was very healing that moment in which my soul kind of let itself die from all the weight that it was waiting for being in the center for other people, like the responsibility of being seen by others. But they said the only ones from which you have to feel that you are being seen is ourselves, which is yourself in different timelines. In that moment was like Merlin saying, uh, you can go home. <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> that's it. So this two path took me to the understanding of so many things that I had to to face for myself in order to be who I am today. And that's what allowed me after that to be in front of a camera, to tell any story, to tell anything, and not being afraid of being seen by many and being the image of more people or guiding 
uh, any path because I now know that it's not my responsibility that others see me. It's my responsibility to see myself. And suddenly I just turned back to them and I did like this and two birds, ibis, the, the top birds, flew from me from behind. And it was like, what is happening? Something weird was happening. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to read something real short first. So this is called... Um, well, I'm just going to read the first paragraph here, and Rama's going to find this next one while I do that. It's called mm. The Philosopher's Stone and Ring Set Crystals. And mm. before that, it's going to, it just says here, let go of the past, let go of the future. There is only this moment. And you are alive in it. You are breathing right now. Matthias was discussing breathing and not breathing. <laughs> you are loved right now. There is nothing left but peace and joy and blissfulness in every moment of existence. Existence. This moment now. Mm. I thought that was quite informative. Mm. And, uh, so this one is called, Rama's getting there, mm -hmm. the Philosopher's Stone and Ring Cell Crystals. Do you know what those are, Rama? No. Oh. Well, we're going to find mm -hmm. out. Are ring cell crystals found in the ashes of Buddhist masters, evidence mm -hmm. of the Philosopher's Stone? Polymath Robert Edward Grant explores centuries of myths and elusive legends of the Chintamani sought by ancient alchemists for its supposed limitless magical powers. According to Grant, the Philosopher's Stone is more achievable than we imagine and by connecting our hearts and our minds. You know, it's still 90 degrees something here. It's crazy. Mm. We can transmute polarity into unity consciousness. <laughs> okay. Let's call it uh, mm. cooling us off time. <laughs> okay. What's this? Ready, Rum? Mm -hmm. Okay. We got 25 minutes here. Let's do this. I'm Robert Grant, and this is the Codex. Philosopher's Stone of Alchemy. For centuries, 
The Philosopher's Stone, which according to legend and myth can work wonders, was sought after by ancient alchemists. Hundreds of works have been written, but it still remains unclear to so many. What exactly is the Philosopher's Stone? In their writings, the alchemists used a multitude of allegories, metaphors, and symbols that only the initiated could correctly decode. Using its power, people can become creators, such as Jesus Christ, the legendary Count of Saint-Germain, and the world-famous Helena Blavatsky, who could literally materialize objects out of thin air, or transform one thing into another. The secret of all of these abilities lies within our hearts, where there is a crystal that represents the crystallized fiery energy accumulated through the ages and through our lifetimes. In Tibet, these stones are called the ring cell. When a high lama dies, he is cremated, and then his closest disciples begin to look for the ring cell stones, which is the only thing that remains of his pile of ashes after his cremation. In Bhutan, Buddhists believe that the presence of ring cell stones proves the teacher achieved spiritual purity, and that those who view the ring cell can actually themselves be spiritually transformed. Ring cell often come from past Buddhas and Bodhisattvas of the 10th level. If one has strong faith and devotion, thousands of relics often manifest from just one. It is essential to keep it in a very pure and a clean place and cared for very well. Prayers and offerings are very often done in their presence. These relics could be considered being a precipitation of bliss arising from the central nervous system of highly realized masters and the activity of bodhisattvas. Is there anywhere else that we can find a reference to this ring cell, stone, and crystal phenomenon of a crystal that grows within the heart of an initiated, pure teacher who's actually learned to combine the heart-brain consciousness successfully? Well, it turns out that there is. Let's go back for a moment to the Salvatore Mundi by Leonardo da Vinci. If we look closely at the Salvatore Mundi, there is an aspect of it that we have not yet touched upon that is quite enigmatic in and of itself. What is that large amber-colored stone immediately at the center of the letter X? We already know was telling us the exact eris angle edge of the Great Pyramid. The center of the X, or as it's pronounced in Greek, the chi, as in alpha chi omega, at its center sits a large stone. The amber color is very telling. Is this representative of a large amber ring cell? I believe that it is. If we also look at the X, we'll notice that the numbers 888 show up in multiple locations in the embroidery. And what is the meaning of 888? 8 
times 3, or 8 plus 8 plus 8, equals 24. Bringing back divinity onto this earth. The notion of Christ consciousness relating back to the number 24 as separated as an equilateral triangle is exactly what we are being told here by Leonardo da Vinci. Eight is also a reference to light. The number eight in particle physics is represented by the photon. Light, light, light. When we achieve this stage of Christ consciousness, our entire life experience will be transformed. And in the process, we ourselves will start to grow our own ring cell stone in the center of our hearts. This is where the old terminology is from of weighing the heart. The heart is something that is above and beyond the logos. The pathos is able to bring us closer to our own divinity and realization of who we are and who we always have been, but allowed ourselves to forget as we have gotten into the world of day in and day out duality. As we finally learn to transcend this stage of our existence, a new world awaits us. This is what Leonardo is trying to tell us as the Salvatore Mundi is motioning the Alpha Chi Omega, the Chi being the cross that connects heaven to earth. The triangle, circle, and square. In these three very simple geometric forms, we can find the answers to all things. The square representing the masculine. The circle representing the feminine. And the triangle representing the divine. As we understand that life is not what we had thought it always was, Hmm. but rather could be so much more. That we ourselves through this process become as a result philosophers. Lovers of wisdom, perceiving our world around us very differently than we ever have in the past and waking up to our own destiny that was always there and by our own choosing. We have learned that the philosopher's stone is not simply this notion of changing lead into gold, but rather changing the lead of a lower form of our own consciousness into the gold of the pure heart that is achieved and culminated in the formation of the crystal that grows within that heart. This is a rare invitation for each of us at this very early stage to embrace the notion and concept of the magnum opus by integrating a heart brain philosophy into our lives. While Robert Grant believes the alchemical path to be a vital path which accelerates the spiritual evolution of humanity, Robert also sees the act of physically creating geometric forms as another vital tool for expanding your consciousness. 
If you go through history and notice that one of the great aspects of Hermeticism is the notion of the simplicity relational to the compass and the square. Somehow, drawing geometry seems to open our minds in new ways that we didn't consider prior to us commencing that effort. It's as if we ourselves are sitting in the role of the architect, architecting and consciously delivering on the ideas and concepts to create the reality around us that we now experience. Somehow when we tap into that space, it's not dissimilar from meditation. One of the things that has also come out of this is that in drawing Metatron's cube, I was able to discover more than 30 new, entirely new geometric forms that I now call collectively the Granthahedron family of solids. These solids are very interesting because they've not been seen before, will not find them inside of mathematical sort of different forms of geometry that are either called Catalan solids or Platonic solids or Archimedean solids or duals of any of those solid structures. These are entirely new geometric forms that have a unique simplicity in that in particular, I saw them amidst a complex structure of lines. As I work through these lines, every time I do it, somehow my perspective shifts on the world around me. It almost forces me as I'm drawing geometry in a more and more three-dimensional form or in a fashion that would look as if it's actually in motion. This is a very specific form of geometric drawing. During the Renaissance, this accompanied the actual Renaissance itself. As Leonardo da Vinci in particular and several others during the time started to use depth of perception and perspective drawing in ways that had never been used before, moving their artistic world away from a flat Euclidean plane to three-dimensional and seemingly four-dimensional in motion geometric forms. Some of the more famous examples of this you can see by Leonardo, but also you can see some of them in the famous paintings that have been performed and done where we'll see both Plato and Pythagoras walking down large vistas and hallways that seem to go on as far as the eye can see, lending perspective and depth to a painting that otherwise would be absolutely flat and motionless. Is it possible that as we expand our minds and start to create new synaptic junctions and connect different parts of our brain, that somehow it will have an even more profound effect on how we perceive reality itself? Some believe that as we move through higher dimensions, that everything that is possible in higher dimensions is actually around us today. It's simply that we are unable to perceive it. I believe that drawing by hand geometry changes dramatically your ability to perceive higher dimension. It is precisely the training that our brain radio requires to be able to unlock the power of the pineal gland and the pituitary glands to enlighten and awaken fully the third eye 
and the crown chakras. This is what fundamentally changes how you perceive the world and your ability to answer very complex problems with simplistic, relatable, and consistent, and most importantly, very, very understandable answers. In the process of drawing geometry, I took on one of the great challenges that, of course, Leonardo da Vinci also took on in leaving us the illustration of the Vitruvian Man. The Vitruvian Man, as an illustration, puts forward this notion that had already been around for several thousand years of the importance of squaring the circle. The challenge from ancient times until now has always been, how do you square a circle to be able to draw what is referred to as unconstructible numbers because of their transcendent irrationality? And without measurement, it's simply an impossibility. It is possible to be able to square a circle and match the areas of the square and the circle using computer technology. That's obvious. But doing so without the aid of any measurement whatsoever and to do so in drawing it by hand, now that is a different challenge altogether. And the subject of the challenge that has been put forward since the time of ancient Greek mathematicians and philosophers took it on. It was believed from that time until now that somehow if we'd be able to tackle this task, that we would be able to achieve a higher level of understanding and awareness and enlightenment to finally bring into balance the energies of the masculine and the feminine together into one. In cracking the code that was left to us by Leonardo da Vinci, it also gave us a blueprint for how to square the circle correctly three different ways simply following a cipher key that Leonardo left us in his square having an area value compared to the circle that had an area value of pi that relationship was simply Euler over pi the form of squaring the circle that he left us may not have been the correct form that mathematicians in the day or for thousands of years would say is actually the correct form. I believe it is undoubtedly one of the correct forms. As we measure scalar waves that are compression, longitudinal waves of sound versus the measurement of transverse waves of light, which are spiraling all around us every single day of our lives. When we understand the nature and relationship of scalar versus transverse, we note that the commanding and governing bodies and mathematical constants that create these associations in the first place require adjustment. That adjustment is found within the ratio of Euler divided by pi. This irrevocably comes back to a number that we all associate very closely with that relates to light. For Euler divided by pi divided by two gives us the square root of the speed of light, bringing us back again to approximately 432. 432 is a very interesting number that we find originally in the form of the Tetractus left to us 
by Pythagoras himself. Four different lines of a pyramid that starts with four positional points, goes to three, then goes to two, then goes to one. Four, three, two, one. I mentioned that eight, eight, eight is representative of light, light, light. And Christ consciousness in particular. Eight plus eight plus eight equals 24. Very interestingly, four times three times two times one also equals 24. And now we find ourselves irrevocably back looking at and observing the 24-hour clock that is the prime number pattern and the repetition of all Fibonacci numbers infinitely. 24 brings with it a certain degree of access to the divine. 24 and its reciprocal value, 42, are very special numbers indeed. One over 24 rounds to 42. And also, we also note that it is not only its reciprocal, but it's also its palindrome. Palindrome is kind of a fancy name in mathematics for describing a number that when we invert or reverse the number has the same digits. And so we know that there's some form of a relationship there. 24 backwards would be 42. So there must be some universal form that's important when constructing the world and constructing the universe that says that a number whose inverse value, reciprocal inverse value, is equivalent to its palindrome has very unique mirroring characteristics. This is one of the reasons why 24 is so special. Another reason we know 24 is so special is because the square root of 10, which is 3.16227766, divided by 10. Now, taking that number to 0.316227766, and then adding 1 to that value. Now, 1.316227766, raised to the exponential power, of 1 over 0.24 is a very, very close approximation, much closer than even 22 over 7 for the value of pi. But how can we take this knowledge and apply it to art? How can we take the golden number and golden ratio and golden angle and apply it to artistic expression? All of my work over the past many years now has been a direct result of this convergence of science and art into one form. No longer separated between these different disparate disciplines, but rather convergent and beautiful because of its convergence, not despite its convergence. As we look at squaring the circle, and how to actually do this and draw it out by hand. We must look at the Euler area value of the da Vinci square. Now you'll notice that the da Vinci square barely crests the lines of the circle that intersect the square. 
This is a unique characteristic and one that has been the subject of some ridicule from the mathematics community for several hundred years now. Because what da Vinci did was nowhere close to a true squaring of the circle without the knowledge that the scalar value is the equivalent value to compare against a transverse value of light. Effectively, we're looking at darkness versus light. Another aspect of this that we can look at, though, is that maybe we can use the da Vinci square in order to solve this age-old riddle of how to draw by hand without any measurement whatsoever a perfect squaring of the circle. And not only do so to perfectly square the circle in area, but has da Vinci given us the ability now through his cipher key and 500-year-old-plus drawing, the ability also to square the perimeter so that it is equivalent to the circumference of the same circle? Three ways to square the circle. The da Vinci method, the area squaring method, and the perimeter circumference squaring method. Could it be that they're all hidden within the simplistic and elegant form of da Vinci square, the Euler value versus the pi value of the circle? Leonardo was famous for saying that simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. I believe he has 100% embodied that core principle in his masterpiece work, The Truth of Man. I encourage you to try drawing it for yourself. There's something, again, that is very powerful that relates to consciousness and our own meditation and conscious awareness when we take the effort to draw using only a compass and a square. Art is something that emerges from the heart, the heart center. Science is something that connects the dots for us in our logical mind. As we draw geometry, we learn and we teach our mind how to contextualize and bring perspective, new ways of seeing the world to our consciousness. I believe that fundamentally changes our ability to perceive higher dimensions. And pattern recognition becomes a fundamental way for us to be able to look at our own level of conscious progression. This is not learning nameless, faceless mathematics. I'm talking about making an expression from the heart. As you make that expression from the heart, that effort starts to meld with the mind. Again, bringing together logos and pathos into one. This will change how you perceive the world. And by taking the effort even to hand draw out the geometry of squaring the circle given to us as a gift from Leonardo da Vinci himself over 500 years ago, I fundamentally believe we will start to embody what it means to be the change that we would like to see in the world. I'm Robert Grant, 
and this is the Codex. That was really good. <laughs> well, what are we going to do with these moments together, last mm. moments together? There's a little thing here that I read the first paragraph of. Mm. I think I'll share it in the moment. We're in this place. I got this feeling from our conversation at the con at the conference call. Um, Penny was like, "Is this ever going to change in a certain way?" And it feels like it's at the end of the end of the end of the end, and then somebody comes up with some other shenanigan. And uh, you know, we put on this silent TV thing and it's like we're watching all kinds of animals and how they get through every single moment and thinking of all these philosophers and teachers and <clears throat> just uh, wise people that we listen to here I mean the Da Vinci Code huh Mm. Yeah, the power of our minds, and that gentleman that was with Mer Regina Meredith too. He was just saying, "I'm looking forward to hearing more conversations for these people." Uh, mm. That there would be smaller groups of us, and we would connect. Switch delivery mutual and save six hundred and fifty-two dollars. Excuse me. Gosh, where'd you probably find that one? I don't know. <laughs> well, I, my my point is that we're doing it. We've been doing it for years, and um, there's more link-ups now, and there's something enormous. And Mama keeps telling me every time he comes home from talking to those white knights, <laughs> faction three, and something big is going to pop here. But uh, chopping wood, carrying water is part of the deal, and we're going to have some change here, especially in the economics of all of this. There's something climbing the mountain with the mm -hmm. small group of elites with uh, not our best interest in mind, you might say, at the highest level. But when we get to this concept of family and who we are to each other, uh, there's the rest of this as the qualities of an ascended person. This is here. What, the, what does an ascended person look like? The first thing is that they don't look like anything. They're not a special type of person. They're just an ordinary person. 
<clears throat> the second thing is that they are very simple. They are not showing off. They're not show-offs. They don't go around show, showing off their enlightenment or their spirituality. They're not trying to impress others with their knowledge, their experiences, or anything else. They simply enjoy life as it unfolds moment by moment. Their minds are totally relaxed because there is no tension left in them anymore. No anxiety, no fear, no anger, no frustration, or any kind of negativity whatsoever. They are not serious about anything. They are just playing. They enjoy the whole life, the whole play of life, this beautiful world in which we live. They are not uptight. They are calm and quiet inside, inside themselves. This inner silence gives you the capacity to clear your inner voice, to hear your inner voice. And then also it gives you the capacity to listen to other people's voices without getting influenced by them in any way whatsoever. Because you have learned how to be silent within yourself. So there is no interference from outside anymore. Nothing can interfere with your inner silence at all anymore. Because it has become indestructible now. It has become invulnerable now. It has become impregnable now. It cannot be touched by anything anymore because there is no need for anything anymore. There is no need to react or respond because there is nothing left that could disturb your peace or disturb your silence. An ascended person has many beautiful qualities. They are very playful. They can have fun anywhere, in the middle of a crowd or in their home, wherever it may be. They can have fun. They are not serious. Life is not serious for them. They know that whatever happens is just a part of the play, that we are all playing, and therefore there is no need to be serious about anything. They are not tense at all because they know there's nothing to worry about. The whole universe is at play. Everything's going on according to plan. And nothing can go wrong because everything has been predestined. Everything that has been planned out, everything has been planned out. And nothing can go wrong because it will happen anyway. There is nothing left but peace and joy and blissfulness in every moment of existence, this moment now. There is no need to wait until some future time when everything will be perfect and wonderful. It's already perfect now. It's already wonderful now. Let go of the past let go of the future. There's only this moment. And you are alive in it. You are breathing right now. You are here right now. You are loved right now. There are no mistakes. 
only lessons learned, which can be used to make what comes next even better than what came before. You deserve everything that is coming your way, all good things, all blessings, because you are enough right now. You are worthy of love, acceptance, abundance, all the things that make life worth living. So, you have to have this quality of being playful. This is one of the important qualities of an ascended person. Otherwise, you cannot ascend. An ascended person really enjoys life and knows how to enjoy it fully and completely without any kind of worries, anxieties, or tensions because he, she knows that whatever happens there is just a part of, here is just a part of the game. And there is no need to get tense over anything. An ascended person is very creative, productive, inventive, and innovative. They are also very patient. Patient with everything around them. Whether it is good or bad, whether it brings benefits or losses, whether it brings success or failure, he, she always remains calm and collected no matter what happens around him or her because he or she knows that everything happens according to God, God is all that is, that God's will, and nothing happens outside of this will, his, her, all that is will. So there is no need to worry about anything. This is the truth. This is reality. This is what you are experiencing right now. It's not just a concept or an idea. It's your life. And there is nothing that needs to change in your life because it is already perfect. We only have to wake up to the fact that this is true. We only need to realize that every single moment is filled with all of these things. And then we can live our lives from that place of understanding, understanding, overstanding. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. Aho. Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Galactic Federation. And I'm going to pass this ambassadorship with Mm. that emerald serpent feathered one and all the angels and fairies and feathers and crystals and rainbows to Rainbird. Pass the All right. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Yes, thank you for today. Oh, my. Yeah, another good one, and another good week, so to speak. <laughs> we see what this thing, this next week brings, as we are in it now on my neck of the woods. It's Sunday morning, so yeah, happy Flag Day on Tuesday, and <laughs> and um, know that's a good day to be here. <laughs> As we witness and midwife what's happening next. So, lots of gratitude for all that you brought to us tonight. Thank you. And I'm passing this talking stick over to you, Robin. Here it comes. 
And Rainbird, now next week it's Caroline, right? Yeah, next week is Caroline. So that'll be and fun. You're off to see the wizard where? In Seymour, Tennessee, at the Peace Chamber. Is that your segment place? I've never been there before. Oh. It, it's a new adventure for me, and um, so uh, I, I, I know some of the people, some of them I don't, and it'll be, we'll be uh, dancing for healing of the earth, so it'll be a ceremony for four days, so I'm excited about it. And then I'm going to be house-sitting after that and unavailable except with a landline, and I'll be in touch with DBS about that. Okay. Uh, well, yeah. you haven't gone to a, a singing and a dancing kind of ceremonial for a while, have you? Well, no, I did one in April, and that was my first one. And they said, well, you should come to Seymour, Tennessee. And I go, well, that's not that far away. It's near, It's not too far from Knoxville. Knoxville is only an hour and a half, so. Oh, yeah, we did some driving along that way. Yeah, yeah, so that's. That's that neck of the woods, and then the half-sitting job is in the Smoky Mountains. And it's all going to be hot, 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 just like you're saying, that, oh that temperature's going gosh. up 15 degrees here, too. And the night temperature is going to be at 15 degrees. And we've been having a really sweet summer with uh, so far with the uh, you know, lows in the low 50, highs in the low 70s. For the last three weeks, it's been sweet, so... Oh, enjoy I'm it now while it's still there. <laughs> yeah, this is for, tomorrow's the last day of it, and then it's going to kick into that other that other level that I would totally have to adjust to, which is 90 degrees. It's not that hot, but you, you know you've got to be careful. Can't leave leave yourself in the car too long with it without air conditioning. <laughs> no, you can't do that. No but I'll be camping can. for the for the. Uh, event at the peace chamber so that'll be nice i'll be on the ground on the ground on the earth and connecting that way too well thank you take us all with you won't you i'll do it i'll bring you right in there we'll do that oh <laughs> okay okay thank you rainbird for a little sharing that's good all right so rama I see it says the ego trip up there. This is Alan Watts. It's eight minutes. Okay, ready for eight minutes of our favorite. Talking about the ego, since we have heard about that today. Oh, my goodness, what a day. The biggest ego trip going is getting rid of your ego. <laughs> and the joke of it all is your ego doesn't exist. <laughs> There's nothing to get rid of. It's an illusion. I don't exist. So, uh, you're all characters that I've played. Jim Carrey was a less uh, intentional character, right? Because I thought I was just building something that people would like. 
but it was a character. The cautionary voice was my ego trying to protect itself against an assault and that I was about to mount on it. Looking for Jim Carrey again and having trouble finding him. And at a certain point, I, I realized, hey, wait a second, you know, if it's so easy to lose Jim Carrey, who the hell is Jim Carrey? <laughs> but you still want to ask how to stop the illusion. Now, who's asking? And the big difficulty is this. I want to find a method whereby I can change my consciousness. But the, therefore, to improve myself. But the, the self that needs to be improved is the one that is doing the improving. And so I'm rather stuck. Well, what is it that you feel when you feel I? What do you do when somebody says, pay attention? What is uh, the difference between looking at something and taking a hard look at it? Or between hearing something and listening intently? What's the difference? What's the difference between waiting while something goes on and enduring it? Why? The difference is this. That when you pay attention, instead of just looking, you screw up your face. You frown and stare. That is a muscular activity around here. When you will, you grit your teeth or clench your fists. When you endure or control yourself, you pull yourself together physically and therefore you get uptight. You hold your breath. You do all kinds of muscular things to control the functioning of your nervous system. And none of them have the slightest effect on the proper operation of the nervous system. If you stare at things, you will rather fuzz the image than see them clearly. If you listen intently by concentrating on muscles round the ears, you will be so much attending to muscles here that you won't hear things properly. And you may get singing in the ears. If you tighten up with your body to pull yourself together, all you do is constrict yourself with the thought that it's achieving psychological results. With the sort of psychological results it's intended. Now all this amounts to is it's like you're taking off in a jet plane. You've got a, a mile down the runway and the thing isn't up in the air yet. You get nervous. So you start pulling at your seatbelt. That's what it is. Now, that is a chronic feeling. We have it in us all the time and it corresponds to the word I. That's what you feel when you say I. You feel that chronic tension. Because when an organ is working properly, you don't feel it. When you are fully functioning, you are unaware of the organ. When you're thinking clearly, your brain isn't getting in your way. Actually, of course, you are seeing your eyes in the sense that everything you see out in front of you is a condition in the optic nerves at the back of the skull.
That's where you're aware of all this. But you're not aware of the I as the I. So when we are aware of the ego I, we are aware of this chronic tension inside ourselves. And that's not us. It's a futile tension. So when we get the illusion, the image of ourselves, married to a futile tension, you've got an illusion married to a futility. And then you wonder why I can't do anything. Why I feel in the face of all the problems of the world impotent. And why I somehow cannot manage to transform I. Now here we get to the real problem. Because we're always telling each other that we should be different. I'm not going to tell you that tonight. Why not? Because I know you can't be. Nor can I. That may sound depressing, but I'll show you it isn't. It's very heartening. <clears throat> How can I stop identifying myself with the wrong me? <laughs> well, the answer is simply you can't. And the Christians put this in their way when they say that mystical experience is a gift of divine grace. Man as such cannot achieve this experience. It is a gift of God. And if God doesn't give it to you, there's no way of getting it. Now that is solidly true. You can't do anything about it because you don't exist. You say, that's pretty depressing news. <laughs> But the whole point is, it isn't depressing news. It is the joyous news. There's a Zen poem which puts it like this, talking about it. It means the mystical experience, Satori, the realization that you are the eternal energy of the universe. It says like this, you cannot catch hold of it, nor can you get rid of it. In not being able to get it, you get it. When you speak, it's silent. When you are silent, it speaks. Now, in not being able to get it, you get it. Because there is no method. All methods are simply um, gimmicks for strengthening your ego. So how do we not do that? You're still asking for a method. There is no method. If you really understand what your eye is, you will see there is no method. What's on this ego thing that doesn't exist? What do you have for us for music, Rama? No, no recognize this. Oh, okay. It just jumped out at me with all the energies going on. Okay. <laughs> May the whales be with us. <laughs> They're humanity's human friends in a different body. Hey, Rama? Yeah. Thank you for that, Rama. I haven't heard that for a while. 
I think it's time for sleeping. Mm. So long farewell. I'll be saying good night. See you in your dreams and on that bridge. And uh, love is the answer. Sat Nam. Sat Nam Ji. Ahovitakuyasan. Thirteen thank yous. Honey in the heart. No evil. And Namaste. Aloha.